Let's go to Kennebunk, Maine, where Emmy and Peabody award-winning comedy writer Jim Earl is standing by. Hey, Jim. Well, hello, David. Oh, Senator Susan Collins. Yes, you'll be very delighted to know this is the moderate senator, Susan Collins of Maine, speaking to you. Senator Sue Collins running for re-election. Yes, I am. Jimmy is indisposed at the moment, David. Oh. He's busy cleaning up after last night's brownout. Brownout? Go get your mind out of the gutter, David. I'm talking about one of the frequent drops in voltage in our state's electrical power system. Not my husband Tom's habit of crapping the bed after eating a jar of tainted fiddlehead ferns. I always go into the gutter. I apologize. Let's get right to it, shall we? Yes. David, I'm so very proud to announce that due to my efforts, the great state of Maine just received an unprecedented amount of money to support housing for the poor and homeless. Guess how much? How much? Guess. Hundred uh, million dollars. Two million dollars. I'm working to deliver critical resources to our communities as chairman of my housing and urban grounds enterprise appropriation Senate subcommittee or huge ass. (laughs) That's the acronym for that. Yes. I see. That's right, David. And as a proud moderate centrist, I naturally spend a lot of time sitting on my huge ass. Well, you're holding hearings. The people of Maine pay me to sit on my huge ass every day. It's your committee. That's a big one. Yes. And not a day goes by without me taking care of business with my huge ass. Because the business of government is business. Just a reminder, David, huge ass is the acronym for Housing and Urban Grounds Enterprise Appropriation Senate Subcommittee. Mm-hmm. Or H-U-G-E-A-S-S. Hence the joke, David. Huge ass. Anyway. That's where you do your business. Yes. With your huge ass. Even though it's literally stuffed with paperwork, I never let my huge ass get in the way of helping Mainers. Thank you for that. How can another senator get on my huge ass? Yes. You ask? Yes. They have to raise a stink. I see. The squeaky wheel. Gets the lube. I understand. This is like a civics lesson. David, if I may also take a moment, I'd like to congratulate the graduates of 
the Portsmouth Naval Shipyards Apprentice Sailor Skills Program for Underwater Ship Helmsmen, or ASPUSH. That's uh, an acronym, right? Yes. The Apprentice Sailor Skills Program for Underwater Ship Helmsmen. ASPUSH. Yes, ASPUSH. I'm very proud to have increased funding to ASPUSH by sitting on my huge ass. Your Senate subcommittee. Of course. Right. And these these are sailors you're helping. Yes. They have fond memories of ASPUSH, those sailors, right? Maine sailors always look fondly upon ASPUSH. (laughs) Yes, that's what I've heard. Practically all of them, right? That's true, David. You're not considered a sailor unless you've been through ASPUSH. Now, if I may continue. Oh, please. I am proud to say our state's police departments have never had any problems with police brutality. Literally, we don't have any problems with it. (laughs) You're fine with it. We're absolutely quite all right with it. Good for you. I wish to announce that our biggest city of Portland is now accepting new applications for cops. Find out how you can make a difference in Portland. Specific duties include responding to the scene of a crime you just committed, interviewing suspects by shooting them eight times in the back with your service revolver, writing crime reports, rewriting crime reports, fabricating crime reports, and not writing crime reports. Coordinating vehicular traffic around the body of any unarmed civilian you shot eight times in the back with your service revolver. Visiting open businesses such as banks, markets, and department stores to establish a rapport with owners before shooting their customers Eight times in the back with your service revolver. Monitoring any suspicious activity among demons. Booking suspects and transporting them to the appropriate police department facility. Or just leaving them in the street for hours after shooting them eight times in the back with your service revolver. Contaminating evidence, fabricating evidence, and booking evidence. And lastly, responding to citizens' questions and concerns by hiring a lawyer. David, I have some good news and some bad news. Okay, what's the good news? Maine has decreased its COVID-19 response efforts by half. Hmm. And what's the good news? 
the good news is, as a result of this, we are now calling it COVID nine and a half. That's fantastic there, news. Well, there's not an ounce of science behind this, but it does make the rubes from Massachusetts feel safer when the waiter at Jared's Crustacean Hut picks his nose with their lobster roll. <laughs> Yes, David, since COVID-19 began, I have also been very concerned about the health of young Mainers. Hmm. In the past month alone, nearly one in four young adults say they've considered suicide. Uh. Do you know what keeps them from doing it? No. The thought of having to die in Maine. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds pretty bleak. To be honest, we only have one undertaker in the entire state, and he likes to fiddle with his clients, if you know what I mean. (laughs) No, no, I don't know what you mean. Oh, get your mind out of the gutter, David. I'm not talking about him hollowing out their torsos and stretching their skins to make the human violins he regularly plays at the Blueberry Festival. (laughs) No, wait, that is what I'm talking about. (laughs) He's fiddling with them. I'm sure you heard about my campaign stop this week at the Bush compound. Yes, yes. Well, I'm also so very proud to announce the endorsement of former President George W. Bush for my re-election in November. I read about that. Before he endorsed me, we had clam pie together at Lara's Fried Clam Hole in Fish Gut Kitchen in Kittery. Sounds delicious. How do you get there? How do you get there, you ask? Yeah, how would I get there? You take Moosehead Road, five crack houses past the giant man-sized mummified haddock erected in 1647 Mm -hmm. to ward off demons turn right at the meth pipe in the road go past a red barn full of old people staring at a blank television screen drive another five miles to the arundel cutoff Get out of your car, cut off your Arundel, and get back in your car. Drive another five miles past two decaying alpacas until you get to Moose Park. Turn right at Moose Lane and follow Moose River south until you reach the Moose Expressway. (laughs) You can't miss it, David. It's got the word moose on the sign. (laughs) Don't forget to take the moose loop to avoid the five-cent toll. (laughs) Drive another 400 feet until you meet a man named Moose. (laughs) Now you're at Laura's Fried Clam Hole in Fish Gut Kitchen in Kittery. (laughs) Knock, knock. Who's there? I eat mop. I eat mop who? Oh, so you're the one. (laughs) 
Uh, I really have to go uh, now, David. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh. It's been an honor, but I have to dislodge the logjam I left this morning <laughs> after fear eating a pound of banger clam loaf. <laughs> Fear, Jimmy. Eat, fear eating a pound of banger clam loaf. Hmm. Yes. Fear eating. Jimmy. Yeah. Jimmy, fetch those grapple hooks and and put on your best cleats. We got some logs to roll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Senator Susan Collins, and I approve this clam loaf log jam. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Senator. And good luck in November. Hold still. Jim? Just hold still. <laughs> Okay, here we go. Ready? Hold still. Come on, hold still. That's it. That's it. Come on, baby. Come on. Yeah. Give Queenie. Give Queenie. Come on. Come on. Oh, that's what you say ele- to elephants to blow water on you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll fade out of it. Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro, go. Fido, go. Guidance, go. Control, go. Telcom, go. GNC, go. Ecom, go. Surgeon, go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, You Sad Pathetic Hump. Tonight at 9 p.m., it's office hours where the listeners talk and I listen. If you would like to attend tonight's office hours, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the attend a live taping, and you'll get a link. You can join us for office hours. Also, tomorrow, Saturday, August 29th, Henry Huckamaki and the irritable immunologist are putting on a live pay-per-view event that you can attend via Zoom. Henry Huckamaki, tell us all about it. Sure. So COVID Town Squares is essentially what you can think of as a variety show about COVID and immunology. So if anybody's interested in really understanding what's going on with COVID or even more broadly, how our immune systems work, because a lot of the times you'll hear terms in the news or different processes mentioned, and you have no idea what they're talking about. And that one piece of information that you're missing out on 
completely precludes you from understanding the overall goal of what the news is trying to tell you with that segment. What office hour or what the, sorry, the COVID town square is for is for you to get in face to face, uh, only a hundred seats. We're only selling a hundred, only a hundred seats. So literally face to face with me figuratively with irritable, uh, where you get to ask us any questions that you would like regarding COVID or immunology. We have several other segments planned. We have a discussion topic that Irritable and I will be going over so that you'll understand the fundamental piece of immunology so that you understand what's happening in a COVID infection. We have some more fun segments, um, which are more public interest type stuff that you'll just have to be there to see exactly what they are. But I think that you'll like it a lot. So if you have any interest in coming and seeing me and irritable, asking us questions, seeing the information that we have to present, check it out. You can find it on eventbrite.com. The uh, easiest just, way to do it is to go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the pay-per-view menu. And it'll take you right to the Eventbrite page. So that's right. the easiest way to do it. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the pay-per-view menu. It takes you right to Eventbrite. Tickets are only $15. All the proceeds go to Henry Huckamaki's research and education, every single penny. So please, we'll see you Saturday, August 29th, 2020, at the COVID Town Squares, 930 Eastern Standard Time. chicken they sell comrade cluck they claim to do no harm that only when i make a buck i got to know evil blues and i just can't shake it the union came calling and the owners tried to break it they say they're liberal they claim to be progressive but let's not quibble they nothing but oppressive the workers tried to unite, the owners wouldn't hear it. They stopped it cold, tried to break that spirit. I got to know evil blues, and I'm feeling kind of dizzy. But the boys are back in town, according to Thin Lizzy. petition on the Mo Evil side. Let's see if we can help and make things right. They got fire in the belly. There's light in the attic. They'll have to mobilize cause it ain't automatic. I got the No Evil Blues and it's gonna be tough. 
We can have them unionize Cause they got the right stuff Let us now go to Baltimore, where Maximilian Alvarez is standing by. He is the host of Working People. That's a podcast by, for, and about the working class. It's in partnership with In These Times magazine. You should subscribe to In These Times magazine. It's a great progressive periodical. And Working People is about working people. A welcome Maximilian. Hey, man, thank you so much for having me on. Big fan. Well, I'm a big fan of yours. The uh, police are coming for me. I've got into (laughs) trouble with No Evil Foods. Before we talk about No Evil Foods, because you have joined the effort to get them a, a union contract, No Evil Foods, for those of you who haven't been following this, they have appropriated the culture of the left, but... One thing is missing. They don't believe in unions. And they've been doing some union busting down in North Carolina, which is an anti-union state, not a right to work state, an anti-union state. And we've reported on this. Andrew Miller has come on the show to talk about efforts to unionize the floor over at No Evil Foods. And Megan Sullivan and her friend have been organizing there to no avail. Maximilian has joined the efforts to at least annoy No Evil Foods. When did you find out that No Evil Food was, well, how should we put this, not not evil? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I, I had heard about the union busting efforts at this kind of pseudo leftist vegan meat company in North Carolina. Um, you know, there, there's been some great reporting on it uh, by Lauren Gurley in Vice, um, by Jacobin, by the industrial worker. Andrew Miller. Um, so Andrew Miller, you know, a really, really great journalist who is still currently hosting kind of audio from these union busting captive audience meetings, which No Evil Foods is trying to get uh, taken down. And, you know, I had heard about um, kind of that those union busting efforts and the failed kind of unionization uh, vote um, to join the UFCW earlier this year. Um, But, you know, Working People in general is a show where I talk to workers from around the country and we really try to kind of dig deep into their lives and their experiences uh, working where they work, Um, really try to kind of humanize, you know, our fellow workers and the people that we depend on. And so, you know, I I often get emails from folks who are uh, interested in coming on the show or who want to bring kind of news items to my attention. 
And so, you know, a couple of former employees from No Evil Foods had actually um, kind of contacted me to give me an update on the situation. And we decided to kind of make an episode out of it where, you know, I kind of interviewed four of these former employees who were involved. Yeah, in we should point out that effort. you're yeah, we should point out that you're running up against, I guess, the legal arm of No Evil Foods. That is correct. Um, So, you know, we we recorded this great um, episode with four of these former employees. Um, They talked about um, the union busting tactics that their pseudo progressive, you know, bosses um, kind of employ. They don't even call them pseudo progressive. If you're busting unions, you're anti-union, you're not progressive. So what, not. No, yeah. but as you pointed out, like they very much try to use I think one really interesting part of this story is that they very much don the trappings of progressives. Right. They try to use like the sort of leftist messaging uh, to market their product and to market their work culture. And in fact, they actually weaponize those kind of progressive, quote unquote, principles to union bust, right? I think one of the really interesting details that came out of my conversation with these former employees is that, you know, they, they mentioned that the bosses, again, who are, everyone there is in some way kind of has bought into the sort of vegan cause, right, of making kind of the these products of not using meat, of not, you know, using factory farm stuff. Like there's a very environmentally conscious messaging there. But they actually use that to argue against joining the union, even going so far as um, trying to kind of tar and feather the UFCW as a, quote, meatpacking union that went against their vegan principles. Oldest um, tactic even, in the world, divide and conquer. No salad, exactly. no solidarity or solidarity and no class consciousness. You should not side with the evil butchers in a slaughterhouse. You're better than they are. That's evil. Yeah, that's what they and that's what they say on the tape, right? That's what they that's what they say. And so I guess to to the issue at hand, you know, we thought it was important to make sure that listeners, you know, heard from the horse's mouth, as it were. And one of the um, kind of workers that we spoke with had actually recorded um, these union busting captive audience meetings on their phone and gave us explicit permission to use these recordings in the episode. And so now are these the recordings that showed up on YouTube as well? They are, and they have since been taken down by YouTube because of these kind of, um, you know, false copyright claims that No Evil Food is is using to keep this information from the public. And Andrew Miller's website still has the audio up, correct? That is correct. Um, But they, No Evil Foods has filed um, a similar kind of complaint to the hosting service that Andrew uses to try to get that page taken down. And um, they actually were successful in getting Vice to take down the audio that they posted to SoundCloud and YouTube. And the reason that Vice has a lot of money and they have a lot of lawyers. Well, this is this is how, you know, this speaks to the ways that No Evil Foods is really weaponizing kind of the um, 
you know, the, the digital millennium copyright act, right. You know, an act that was supposed to give, you know, content producers, uh, like some sort of recourse if their material was being kind of used for promotional purposes. Like if you're a musician and some company is using your music without kind of asking you and they're using it to promote their product, like the DMCA gives you a recourse to, you know, claim copyright on that. So what No Evil Foods is there is doing is they're taking that same uh, DMCA complaint and they're trying to apply it to anyone who um, puts out the audio from their union busting meetings. As though that's performance kind of, art, as though that should be protected because they're creative. Uh, where you a meeting where you hold your employees hostage and lie to them about the perils of unionization. If you're surreptitiously audio taped, you can then claim this is my song and you can't use it. Is that what they're saying? Or are they saying it's a violation of our privacy because I'm getting dinged? They're claiming I'm violating their privacy by running pictures of them on my YouTube channel. They're claiming uh, they're complaining to you. Their lawyers are complaining that their audio is tantamount to their their art their music i think they're they're trying to kind of exploit the gray areas in the dmca and use whatever um they feel is kind of gives them the best chance to silence this stuff from the public at the time because i've been talking with other outlets who have received similar kind of complaints from them and it seems like their tactics change depending on what they think will be most effective but yeah like um they they actually got the original episode that i posted to libsyn the the service that hosts our podcasts um that had about 12 minutes of audio from those captive audience meetings that were recorded by a former employee they got that episode taken down they did they libsyn because i'm with libsyn libsyn took it down and and i guess to to be clear like this is no evil foods knows that like by law libsyn has to respond to these dmca complaints by taking down the content um and then giving the content provider kind of a chance to file a counter demand which is what we're going to do um but that whole process takes a lot of time and so this is what i mean by like this they have no legal leg to stand on they're just using this law to uh tie up you know content producers who are trying to get the word out to the public at the very same time that there are actually two national labor relations board um, hearings related to no evil foods uh, going on right now. Wow. Uh, you really know your stuff on this. This is great. Have you, you you've seen the mo evil website that's been set up? Yes. Okay. And uh, they've done a great job with that. So well, I, have a, I have an interesting detail about that. If if we have a second, well, I know they try to shut that down, too. Right. So they try to shut it down. Um, but here's here's where things get really interesting, because, um, like I said, No Evil Foods has been successful in the past using these threats to get YouTube and SoundCloud to take SoundCloud to take down kind of audio clips that had been posted even by Vice News um, because they that's what they're required to do by the DMCA. And that is what they have currently done with um, Libsyn to get our episode taken down. However, 
in the complaint to remove the episode that they filed with Libsyn, um, they may have actually opened themselves up to legal action from us by filing that um, DMCA removal request under false pretenses because they actually, the person who signed that email signed it, quote, Birdie Gregson. Now, anyone who knows uh, about the Mo Evil Foods account that you mentioned knows that their Twitter handle is is at Bertie Gregson, and there is no one at No Evil Foods who works, you know, like by that name. Wait, wait! I just started following Bertie Gregson on Twitter. Is that? I thought that was an ally of ours. It is. So this is where Novial Foods, it appears that they are trying to kind of sow confusion about this because Bertie Gregson is the handle of an account that is owned by a former employee of Novial Foods. And yet Novial Foods in the complaints that they are filing to get content removed from places like Libsyn is signing those emails as Bertie Gregson. And it kind of to the former employees, it seems like a middle finger Right. Saying that we know that you're using this name. Well, I mean, is there a name? Is it possible that Bertie Gregson actually works at No Evil Foods? And that's why the Twitter handle was taken from from all the employees that I've talked to. They have um, sworn up and down. There's like, no, we like one employee in particular is like i created this twitter name it's a fake name and they're as this employee claims no evil foods is using that name to kind of stick a middle finger to the former employees who are trying to raise awareness of this but what i don't think no evil foods has realized is that if you file a dmca removal request um and swear under penalty of perjury right that you have um done so in good faith um then you open yourself up to being legally liable for any kind of damages that come with removing that episode in the first place and any kind of legal fees that are incurred in getting it restored. Amazing. Money for lawyers, but no money for unions. Right. And I would assume that you're costing them money. I would assume I'm costing them a little money. I'm thinking if you can get me the audio, because you can't download it off Andrew Miller's website. You can only play it. I guess I can just take it. I have ways to take audio. And if I were just to (laughs) send it out on my podcast feed as bonus material, not part of my show, just bonus material, what would happen? So they'd come after me and do what? So they would come after you. They would they would probably file the same kind of complaint that they filed against uh, me in my podcast, which argued that this is um, a, quote, unauthorized recording. But uh, again, if, if this is something you plan to do, you know, you should know that um, as I kind of laid out in a Twitter thread where I explained the situation, North Carolina, where No Evil Foods um, is located and where these captive audience meetings took place, is a one party consent state, which means that like the worker in question who recorded these captive audience meetings, if they consented to that recording, right. No Evil Foods has no legal basis to claim wow. that it is authorized or not. Right. Um, New York. I'm in New York. And that's a New York is a one party consent state as well. You're great. You know, you're you're, you're great. So then then it's it's legal to to audio tape it. 
It is. And um, and if they don't scare you into taking it down because, you know, that that defense falls apart, what they, they may fall back on the kind of copyright claim. But if they do that, it's important to kind of think for a second about what exactly they're claiming copyrights to. Right. As you said, the union busting kind of rhetoric that they use has been used by companies for decades. And do we honestly expect that they have copyright wow. uh, union busting speeches that they wow. get there? He's um, reading on the YouTube channel. He's literally reading a script. Yeah. Yeah. So like, you know, they're, they're they have no copyright claim to this either. Again, this is all this all falls apart the more you look at it. But what they are trying to do is intimidate, because if you get a message like that um, saying that, you know, if action isn't taken immediately, that they're going to explore legal options against you. If you're like, you know, an independent podcast producer, that's probably going to scare you right. um, into just saying, all right, I'm not going to put this up. But, you know, people deserve to hear this. The workers who are trying to get the word out deserve to kind of have their side heard and no company, no matter how progressive they want people to believe they are, has the right to suppress this type of information from the public just because it benefits their bottom line. And what have you told Lipson? So I've been because um, I'm of thinking of actually forth. I'm thinking of leaving Lipson, quite frankly. So are you happy with Lipson? <laughs> So I have to say that I have been um, happy with the way that they've approached it. Obviously, I wasn't um, happy that the episode got taken down, but I, I understand the entire that. episode got taken down. The entire episode got taken down. And so what I did was immediately re-uploaded the, the, not, the bulk of the episode with the interviews with the workers. And I updated it with an introduction from me explaining the situation. And I pointed listeners to Andrew Miller's website where they could listen to the rest of these audio clips. Right. Um, what is Andrew we Miller's website? What, what is his website? I know there's a hyphen in it. Uh, yeah, let me let me actually. Look he's it up. he's Go here. Forward. He's going to be on later. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's kind of long, but I I've posted it online. But it's Andrew Miller dot com slash blog slash twenty twenty. Right. Um, and there he he is hosting kind of a compilation of recordings that were recorded by this worker rank and file worker. Um, how do but, we get it? Yeah, to, how do we get it so everybody can download it immediately? and just start spreading it around or is that a bad idea well i mean um you know it's it's funny because i guess since we're we're exploring kind of um legal options to um kind of hold no evil foods liable for filing a dmca removal request on false pretenses um you know, there's probably I, I probably have to be careful about what I say, but um, I do know that that is what No Evil Foods does not want to happen. They don't want people to hear this audio because it's incredibly damning, right? Everything that they say is indefensible and vi and goes in direct violation of their supposed progressive principles. What if what if you and I did a stop and start? If we played bits of the audio and stop and say, well, this is not true what he's saying here is not true and we do it as a stop and start it's news it's fair use isn't it if if we do right. a stop and start is that so what think, you I did on your show that's the crucial point is yes we um i think the real um kind of underlying issue here is fair use right because you know 
not only as we've already talked about were these recordings perfectly legal, but you know, even if they were copyrighted, using them for the purposes of um, critique or news reporting or satire, right, is protected under fair use. And that is what we did with our podcast. I I didn't I just Mother Jones clips. right now. Mother Jones right now is posting uh, off mic discussions between Donald Trump and his lawyer, Petricelli, during the Trump University deposition. And, you know, he's saying things. What about the judge being Spanish? Can't we exploit that? This is this is like attorney client privilege that's being treated as fair use. I guess Donald Trump is a public figure. The complaint against me about what I posted is that the two CEOs are not public figures. That's what they're claiming, that they're not public figures, so they're not ripe for criticism. Is that fair for somebody to say that? If you pose with your products, if you pose with your products... Yeah, exactly. That's the thing is like they're public figures when they want to be, when they can promote their, um, you know, their product, when they can be quoted in articles that talk about how great it is that a vegan company, right, is is doing what they do. But when, you know, it comes to light that they are um, union busting, that they're subjecting their workers to these kind of underhanded tactics, um, that the NLRB cases that are out against them are, you know, um, pertaining to kind of un- one, I think, an unlawful firing, another with um, tampering or interfering with the union election. Um, but you can look that information up on the National Labor Relations Board website um, if, if you want the specifics about it. But it's like that's the thing is you don't get to pick and choose like, you know, when you get to be a public figure, you know, if right. if suddenly you get caught with your hand in the cookie jar and people uh, have exposed you for the union buster that you are. Can I ask you a, a personal question? And I, I hope it's not an insult. And I, I apologize for having to ask you this question. Sure. OK. And I really apologize for asking you this question. Are you a lawyer? I'm not. Oh, okay. I'm sorry I asked you no. that. It's just you, there's something. Okay, I apologize. Well, I, have, I have a I have a PhD, but um, I've been talking with. Um, it was a rude question, who, and I apologize. What's your PhD? In? Yeah. Uh, so I have two: one in history and comparative literature. You have two. Uh, your your doctor doctor. I am. That's what my mom calls me. Doctor doctor. <laughs> You're a double doctor. You're a double D. Double D. (laughs) Wow. You have a doctorate in in what? Uh, So I got a dual PhD in comparative literature and history from the University of Michigan. Wow. I'm very, people complain, but I I, I defer to people who uh, are hypereducated. It's a big complaint (laughs) among my listeners. But I can't help it. Well, wow. I mean, you know, I think the important thing is that we all, you know, you know, this very conversation right now. Right. Like we all have a role to play in fighting for kind of justice and equality for working people everywhere. Right. Right. In the episode that I uploaded, 
the vast bulk of it is not me. It's the workers themselves kind of telling people about what they went through and they provide information and insight that I can never provide. And so where I come in is to help give them a platform and where our conversation is coming in now is to kind of bring this information to light, especially when these former employees are worried about more retaliation, right? There, there are a lot of roles that we have to play. And I think everyone's voice um, has a really kind of valuable spot in that. Right. Right. I better cut this short because I think I'm going to start fawning all over you. Thank you, Max. Can I call you Max? Dr. Max? Dr. Max. (laughs) Dr. Dr. Max. This is, will you come back? I'd I'd love to, David. Thank you. This is, uh, this is amazing. Uh, And not because you're a double D. It has nothing to do with that. Uh, what what should we do? Because I, I have some ideas. Dr. Be- not doctor, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting a little flummoxed. It's the dead of August. I'm not on top no, of my I'm, game. Hey, man, we've all we've all been locked in. You I know, know. I know. I'm impressed that we are at all coherent. Yeah. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn from Americans United for Separation of Church and State is also an attorney. And he says we should be dragooning somebody from the ACLU in North Carolina. Does that have you or maybe you've already done that. Maybe you already know some lawyers. So, I mean, we've we've actually all started talking like not just me, but like I said, other outlets who have been successfully silenced um, or have had the their audio recordings that they posted taken down. Um, we're discussing kind of our options and kind of collecting information about um, what everyone has experienced since my podcast is partnered within these times. Um, we are kind of discussing like what sorts of options are available to us because, you know, ultimately again, like, I, I guess I this is kind of given like a new um, bent to the story where this company it's was offensive. already on record. It's offensive. This, they, 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 these Correct. two these two CEOs are offensive. They have Swiss money. They're taking money from I think it's Blue Horizon. They're a venture capital fund. They have deep, deep pockets and they come across as carpetbaggers who relocated to North Carolina and they have a brand and they're they're, they're it, it feels I don't know if this is true, but it feels like they're from the northeast and they moved to South Carolina. I don't know if this is true. It just feels like they came to North Carolina because it's a right it's an anti-union state and they're big on the imagery and they kind of believe their own feces. They kind of believe that uh, they're it's okay just to be vegan and that it's not all interconnected. So it's pretty offensive. It's it's everything that's wrong with the with I won't say the left because they're not lefties, but it's everything that's wrong with the Democratic Party. Right. Well, it's it's everything that's wrong with not abiding by the principles that you proclaim. Right. I mean, that's I think that's one of the really kind of sad things that came through in my discussions, both on and off of the recording with these former employees, is that a lot of them, they were really excited to work at No Evil Foods. They're vegan themselves or vegetarian. One was a line cook in, in a restaurant for like over 15 years and just hated being like the brutal treatment they got there. There were people who wanted to make a career working for a company that they really believed in. 
And they were really heartbroken and disappointed to find out that the progressive principles of the bosses that they had given their faith in, you know, basically ended when it came to the topic of workers kind of organizing with the UFCW. And only and since then, it's only gotten worse where these progressive bosses have kind of made life hell for these former employees. Um, and now they're actively trying to kind of keep the information about that away from the public. And okay. they're trying to do that by weaponizing the law against people like you and me. And that's not right. Right. The MoEvilFoods.com website is pretty great. There's a petition and this was set up by Nate and he's done a great job. Nate. In fact, I haven't heard from him. I wonder if he's on vacation. I took a look at the website today in preparation for this, and he's just done an incredible job. If you want to get more information, it's kind of become a hub of information about no evil foods. Go to moevilfoods, M-O-E-V-I-L.com, moevilfoods.com, and sign the petition and pay attention to this because it's a snapshot of what's wrong with neoliberal thinking. It's, it's, it gives us great insight. When Andrew Miller from the, uh, the Industrial Worker first wrote about this, I think he did the first reporting on this, actually, and then it got picked up by Jacobin. It was jaw-dropping to me. It was like, really? <clears throat> How do you get away with this? I mean, I, I, you know, I don't mind the Republicans crushing unions, but don't wear our our banner. Don't wave our flag and crush unions. Maximilian Alvarez is the host of Working People. It is a podcast by, for, and about the working class. And it's done in partnership with In These Times magazine, which is a great progressive periodical. Everybody should subscribe to In These Times. Is In These Times, does that come out of Wisconsin? Um, I believe their headquarters is in Chicago. In Chicago. Okay. The progressive comes out of Wisconsin, right? I think. I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. And I come out of New York, right? I'm out of New York. Right. Okay. The progressive. No, no. I'm just trying to remember where I am. And you're in Maryland. (laughs) You're in Maryland. Maximilian Alvarez. How do people follow you on Twitter, sir? Yeah, well, thanks again for, for having me on, Dave. All right, you know, believe me, us. you're going to I'm going to ask Andrew Miller. I'm going to be bothering you, <laughs> believe me, and not because you're a double D. <laughs> yeah, please, please do. No, I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so folks can you know follow me on Twitter. I think I'm Maximil underscore ALV. Um, follow Working People at uh, Working Pod. Um, and if you want to listen to the episode where I interview No Evil Foods workers, it's up on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. But there are also tons of other interviews that I've done with other workers um, in the catalog so um, definitely check those out and check out moevilfoods.com where you can see absolutely the writings about no evil foods and the podcasts and the videos that they're trying to stop thank you max thank you so much stay in line for one quick second
earplugs ain't pretty Hot times in the city I'm feeling kinda bad Seven to eight hours twice a week Don't have time to take a leak Hot times in the city in the city Hot times in the city Hot times in the city Let's go to Wilmington, Delaware. Is it Wilmington, Delaware? That is where I am, yes. Where Jess Garain is standing by. She is running for Senate in Delaware. She's trying to unseat Chris Coons, the current Democratic senator, and the primary in Delaware is just around the corner. It's in September. When is it, Jess? September 15th. So we are just under three weeks until Election Day. The last one in the country. Last last stand for the left here. Yes, the last stand for the left. I wanted to introduce you to Maximilian. You wanted to say something. Yeah, no, I was just saying that I'm a, a big fan of Maximilian's podcast. I feel like I I don't remember how I found it. I know that I reached out to you on Twitter, though, at one point just to. Oh, it was when you wrote that fantastic piece about your experience working. And I had read it and it really kind of hit home for me because it, it uh, reminded me a lot of my time in, in restaurants and doing those jobs. And I had reached out to you to thank you for writing it and then found your, your podcast through that and have been listening since. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah, you know, as, as soon as I saw that you run, I was like, oh, oh yeah, that's awesome. Um, and, you know, I was saying earlier, uh, we all, all of what we're doing means nothing if we don't have, you know, folks like Jessica kind of also kind of getting in there, fighting the good fight and really trying to kind of take this fight, you know, to, to the halls of governance. And so, yeah, Jessica, come on the pod. Uh, we love everything that you stand for and give them hell in September. Awesome. Yes. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Maximilian. I will be calling upon you in the not too distant future. You will be sick of me. Trust me. Sounds good, brother. Thank you. Keep up the good work. We do have to plan. We have to coordinate our efforts on No Evil Foods, I believe. So thank you. Jess. Hey. No Evil Foods. No Evil Foods. There's this this, this (laughs) vegan meat company Mm -hmm. that went down to North Carolina. They have venture capital from uh, some Swiss banking firm. And... They promise their workers some kind of participation in the profits, not profits, but if we do well, you'll do well. And they got some venture capital. The the workers on the floor try to unionize and wearing all the accoutrements of the left. The two CEOs went into a captive meeting of the workers and explained to them using lies threadbare lies that have been used for a hundred years why they shouldn't sign the union contract and they kind of busted the union 
the NLRB is investigating some claims that they fired some of the union organizers, which is against the law. What do we do about uh, phony leftists, phony progressives? You're from Delaware. Are there any phony leftists and progressives, phony well, Democrats in Delaware? I can't imagine. say that because I had, a, <laughs> I had a lit drop at my door for my opponent today. I opened my door up. They, they must be sending people out to lit drop at 6 a.m. I don't uh-huh. know why you would be doing that. I guess when you don't want to actually have conversations with voters, that's what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I woke up this morning with a piece of literature at my door for my opponent that at the very top, it's a picture of him and it says progressive, pragmatic, principled and i love that this Pragmatic. incredibly neoliberal at best often called to me by voters republican light um is trying to claim the term progressive and i think it, it has become a really diluted term and it doesn't seem to have much meaning unfortunately now so it makes it really hard to kind of label someone like myself when we are trying to run in this lane that is now just trying to be occupied by anyone who basically shows some interest in social justice and racial justice, but not actually in solving the root causes of those problems, but in trying to say, like, we support you, we stand with you and never actually taking the action. And I think No Evil Foods is a fantastic example of doing exactly that, of using the trappings and the language and co-opting that for actual harm. And that's honestly exactly what my opponent does too. He right. uses, he, he will say things like healthcare is a right. And that's why I want to guarantee affordable access. Climate change is an existential crisis. And that's why the best I can do is a price on carbon that will maybe get us to net zero emissions by 2050, completely ignoring timelines from climate scientists. Right. So it, it there's a real harm in using labels right now without actually digging below the surface to see what it is that this person actually stands for. And we see it in just commerce and companies all the time. Like the, I don't want to see any more socially aware companies because they're pretty much always phony. Um, a great example of this is Everlane as well. I don't know if you know that company, no. but they're a clothing company that was supposed to be all about responsible manufacturing, knowing the supply chain. And as soon as their customer service team tried to unionize, they did the same thing and busted it. And it's like, there's no, it really reminds you that there's there's really no ethical consumption in this current system. There's and no even, ethical <laughs> consumption. Can there be ethical I think consumption? If we, if we actually had a system where workers were responsible for their own workplaces, and made the decisions for their own benefit, then yes, maybe workers are not gonna make the decision to pollute their own communities. They're not gonna make the decision to punish themselves and exploit themselves. So we can get there if we make it easier to unionize, if we encourage things like worker co-ops and and actually structuring companies that way, if we disincentivize these incredible gaps between executive pay and worker pay and shareholder benefits and things like that. But it's it's not a small feat to make those changes. I, I certainly won't deny that. Well, you are in your ground zero of corporate America, Delaware. Most corporations yeah. are chartered in the state of mm-hmm. Delaware. Mm hmm. Why Delaware? Why and why Delaware? And what do you think of Elizabeth Warren's proposal that there be a a national charter instead of a state charter? 
Yeah. Well, to hit on that, that national piece, I think something like that could be beneficial because right now Delaware ends up being incentivized to do what it does. It's trying to pull these incorporations away from other states. It's trying to be attractive. It's states competing with each other for this business and rarely does that actually benefit the residents of that state. Yeah. Why do you get chartered in in yeah. South Dakota so, or Delaware? What is Delaware in particular? So 60 percent of the Fortune 500 is incorporated in the state of Delaware. And the reason for that is because they want standing here in court cases. Our chancery so if court you get, so, is basically so, the business court of the land. I'm sorry? Our chancery court is basically business court of, of our country. And there's, there's an incentive to come to it because the business law basically says, is the decision that the company made in favor of creating shareholder value, was it right by the company? Then it was the right decision. And it's very favorable toward only the corporate stakeholders in company decisions, not the consumers, not the employees, not the environment. It's very much um, business law that treats any decision that benefits shareholder value as the right decision. This is really interesting. Can we slow <laughs> down here? Why, this is really, sure. can we stop? This is why I, people I, should care about Delaware. <laughs> yeah. And Delaware is what, the, uh, next to Rhode Island, the smallest state in the union? Yeah, we are very small. I think population-wise, oh God, now I'm not remembering. We'll see with the census, actually. I'm hoping that we're not smallest anymore and we can maybe kind of drum up a little more population count. But so yeah, the, we are incredibly small. So the corporate elite decided we should be chartered in Delaware because it's a small state, small population. It's cheaper and easier to control the democracy there, to control the judges. And you just said that if, I don't know, Manville or uh, I don't know what companies, I, I know the credit card companies, a lot yeah, of them are. that's another one because of our usury laws. Right. So if I want to <laughs> sue Visa, I have to go to court in, well, I'm not allowed to, to sue. It has to go into <laughs> sure. arbitration. But right. if there were a class action suit, we would have to take it to the courts of Delaware. Yeah. So companies that are established here, incorporated here can bring those suits or those quick cases to our court system here. So it's and easier it to why, get a lock on those courts. Well, yeah. And there's this concept of the Delaware way, which when you're on the kind of positive side of that, um, people see it as, you know, we know all the players. This is a small state. We can get this person and this person into the room and hash this out. Right. But when you're looking at it through the lens of just a regular person, you're never in that room. It's always basically the corporate leaders and the government leaders who are behind that door, who are hashing things out and coming to decisions that actually affect the residents of our state. And it's created this real tension where there are people in our state who are like, we can't do things to upset the corporations. That's where our tax base is. So it's created. Is that this true, though? There, yeah, I mean, a, a fair amount of our budget comes from the the fees, essentially that the fees that companies but pay. But their their offices are in New York. Oh yeah, 
yeah, not very few of them are actually headquartered here. It's really about making money off of the incorporation fees and things like that, that drive a, a large, a decently large chunk of our budget every single year. Right. Everybody thinks Apple is headquartered in Cupertino, California, but they're no, headquartered like in Ireland? Reno. Well, oh, Reno oh, yeah. and I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, which is right. why uh, Cupertino, uh, the, 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 uh, computer program classes at Cupertino High that Steve Wozniak attended Mm -hmm. to come up with the Apple computer. They've had to cut funding for those classes because they don't have the tax base, even though Apple is a company that now has a valuation of two trillion dollars. Right. And we can't can't seem to fund education. Yeah. Or bring their (laughs) repatriate their their profits. Yeah. So Chris Coons is the current senator. How long has he been senator from Delaware? He's been senator for 10 years. He was elected in a special election following um, Joe Biden becoming the vice president. So Joe Biden left that seat. Someone was appointed to it. And then Chris Coons won a special election that was really often he's called the accidental senator because he was put up to lose. Um, There was a widely popular Republican candidate who was running for the seat. And he was actually upset in a primary by a Tea Party candidate. Was this the and, woman who admitted to being a witch? A yeah. Well, I mean, she ran it out saying she's not a witch. So right. I guess she didn't technically admit to it. But yes, she Christine was, O'Donnell was the candidate who beat Mike Castle and went on to the general election and then Chris Coons ended up beating her and became senator that way. And Kaufman was the placeholder, right? Yeah, he he was appointed to the seat for about a year and served in that role and then did not want to seek election for it. He went on to get rich. Right. I honestly don't know what he does. I think. Yeah. I mean, right now he's on the Biden transition team talking about how the deficit is going to harm our ability to get anything done, which is the exact opposite of what we need to be saying as we hopefully take over power in the executive branch. When you watch all these Republicans coming over to our side, the former Romney staffers, the former McCain wives, and staffers, they are coming over because they hate Trump, but they also are coming over to influence Joe Biden. Who do you think is more likely to cut taxes, demand austerity, get us into another war in the next four years, Donald Trump or Joe Biden? I'm going to I don't want to paint you in a corner, but I suspect with I mean, Trump, obviously, goes without saying how horrible he is. But I suspect I've been wrong about everything. Well, I won't say this. Biden is probably going to get us into a war. Biden's going to demand. If he he makes Senator Coons his secretary of state, we should be very concerned. I mean, Senator Coons describes himself as preferring, quote unquote, hard power 
more than the, the the typical Democrat. He's absolutely a war hawk. He's he's where does he want to go? Where does he want to go? He's beat the drum for war against Iran. Certainly. I mean, he was he made he went on Fox News when those Saudi oil fields were attacked and said this could be a reason to invade Iran. He has made comments about how the assassination of Soleimani makes the U.S. safer right. and and, you know, championed Trump's decision to do that. So he is certainly not someone we want taking over that position. The Saudi oil fields were attacked by the the Houthis, I believe, in Yemen. And they're being funded by supposedly the Iranians. But he doesn't seem to care about the cholera outbreak in Yemen or the barrel bombs. Yeah, he voted against ending the funding to support that those Saudi atrocities in Yemen. And I, this is not a person that we want in charge of diplomacy when he has made it very clear that he sees military power as as a primary tool. Right. And when and you win, when you win September 15th, when you win the primary yeah. and now you are the Democratic nominee for Senate, how long is it going to take for you to get in line and say, I uh support Joe Biden and Kamala. I mean, I have already said that my I think we cannot continue with a Trump presidency. I think there are real people who look like me who sit in a place of privilege and there's real concern, particularly from Muslim people, from Hispanic people about what four more years would look like. I think that we really have to push back against authoritarianism and fat authoritarianism and fascism that we're seeing out of this administration. But I think that the fight that I want to fight is the same, no matter who is in that executive branch, because I think it's incredibly important that we recognize that if we get this one authoritarian out, but then we do turn to the, toward these austerity policies and this thing that Democrats always do where they feel like they have to act like the adult in the room, cleaning up after Republican messes. And we put people in a worse place, position, we worsen this recession with austerity, then we better be really concerned about what's back in 2024, looking far more fascistic, far more authoritarian, and probably uh, much less gauche and more able to push these policies without disgusting those Republicans that are saying they're voting for Joe Biden right Right, now. Right. By the way, Jess, let me interrupt you. Uh, JessForDelaware.com. It's I guess it's too late to move to Delaware in order yeah, to vote. Yeah, you just for- missed the registration deadline, unfortunately. Okay, JessForDelaware.com. What you can do is go to Jess for Delaware and give her money. If you're an American yes. citizen anywhere around the world, if you're an American citizen or if you have residency, I think mm-hmm. you're allowed yep. to. Yep. For to example, like a green card holder. Give her money. Give her money. She's and going. hours. If you have time, we would love phone bankers. I mean, people are voting right now. So we have people who are um, sending in their ballots. I had a woman who I called the other day and she just had gotten her ballot in her hand and she opened it while we were on the phone and filled in the bubble for me. So phone banking is incredibly valuable to us right now. Your three biggest issues. Housing. Let's talk about housing. Evictions. Winter is almost, yeah. you know, right around the corner. And the evictions are starting up again. And there's yeah. no there's no protection from the federal government. No. Nope. Yeah, I support 
canceling rent and continuing eviction moratoriums. Um, I believe the stat is that over 30% of Delawareans who rent are currently in danger of being evicted. We absolutely cannot let this happen. Right. I, 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 seen... I believe in a, in, in a national rent strike. I believe mm-hmm. in national strikes. One of our listeners wrote to me, I think he was from Maine, and he said a lot of landlords are good, you know, and and they're they're they own one property or two properties and they contribute to the economy and they're benevolent. Uh, What do we do about the the landlords who aren't part of private equity? Yeah. Part of Jared I mean, I've Kushner's. also come out for canceling mortgages. I, I don't think there's a reason that we should run into a situation where a landlord also loses their home in this through this pandemic. Well, this should have never cascaded into a housing crisis. We can absolutely do what's necessary to ensure that renters are able to stay in their homes and people who own homes are able to avoid foreclosure. Um, those are the things that we should be focused on. I also just think in general, it's frustrating to me how so much of the processes that we have in our country are these punitive processes where we say, right. oh, you're struggling to pay your rent. Well, how about being homeless? That seems better. And then you have an eviction on your record and it makes it harder for you to get the next place because now that that next landlord's going to say, well, I, how can I trust you to pay your rent? Rather than looking at the situation someone's in and saying, what is the gap that we can fill for you? to improve to improve the situation to avoid you falling deeper into behind on your bills or into poverty and you know in philadelphia right now they're trying to sweep um, homelessness homeless encampments and and just destroy the tents that people are living in and where are they supposed to go they don't care about where they go as long as they're not convening under the overpass but there's truly nowhere for someone to go. And when we have this eviction crisis that is looming and we're going to add millions of people to the, the the numbers of unhoused people in our country, where do you expect them to go? And at what point are we going to stop saying that we always have to take punitive measures against people who are struggling and instead say, how do we fill the gaps that people are experiencing to prevent them from falling into these massive crevices where they just get forgotten because we are so quick to push people who are unappealing in whatever way away and try to hide them away rather than saying how do we ensure that you can face and deal with the problem that you're facing whether that's the fact that you've lost your job and you don't have income whether it's because you're facing addiction and you need services for that whether it's because you need mental health services we there are so many reasons why we have problems that we're facing and we always take this route of like how can we punish this person for struggling rather than how can we stop this person from struggling and i think that is the biggest change that we need to start seeing culturally in our society jessfordelaware.com go to jessfordelaware.com that's it vote for jess screen for senate to get rid of chris coons in our limited time that we have left a corporate charter could be written in a way to be profitable but also be kind to the workers profitable for the workers and profitable for for the communities what is a corporation? Isn't a corporation chartered because a legal document? <laughs> it's a, but it's a legal document that promises t- 
to be a good steward of society. I, I mean, the, not the, currently. Right, right now, it's a promise to make shareholder value, and and that's the only thing that that it seeks to do. But, but that's right, not part of a charter. I mean, True. it's a myth that the corporate charter states your only obligation is to the stockholders. A corporate charter says you're sanctioned by the state because you have an obligation to the state. That's why we're giving you this charter. And even the Economic Roundtable, I think two years ago, promised to, they said that they were now going to reevaluate how they viewed the role of a corporation, that they they said we no longer are going to claim that we have to maximize profits. We're also going to uh, take into account how we affect the community. Why can't that be enforced in the charter? I mean, it's not even you don't even have to rewrite the laws. They just have to be enforced in a certain way. Well, I think that's a huge gap for us. It's just enforcement in general, particularly when you look at something like labor law. Um, There are very few people working in enforcement of labor laws and that is why none of those laws go enforced. I mean, those are jobs that we could be filling to actually ensure that people are working in safe conditions, that are they're receiving the pay that they're supposed to receive. Most people have never seen anyone come from the labor department to inspect their workplace right. or to have conversations with workers about the conditions. So that is a great point that you're making. There are so many laws that we already have that go unenforced, and that's a benefit to corporate powers because they can continue to abuse workers and never have it be exposed. Medicare for all and the new Green Deal, the the three-legged stool of your platform, the three-legged stool, the three legs of your, I need a vacation. The three three (laughs) stools of your leg. No, no, Uh the three stools of your platform are (laughs) Medicare for all, the new Green Deal, and housing is, is a right. Yeah. And uh, I don't think yeah, that's I really what, I tie economic justice into housing as well, because I think right. those things are incredibly interconnected. Right. Yeah. But Chris Coons is pragmatic. Before you go, I have Jim Merle, the Emmy and Peabody award winning comedy writer coming up. He's a genius. He's an absolute genius. One of my oldest friends. He will not vote for Joe Biden. <laughs> and. Last time he was on the show, I asked him to use his imagination, which is storied. He's got a great imagination. And I said, well, okay, what happens in a second term with Donald Trump? And he said, things are going to get so bad. He kind of talked about accelerationism. He says people, they're going to lose their health insurance. They're going to lose their homes and they're going to rise up. Do you believe that? I, I mean, I don't want things to get so bad for people that that's where we are. But do you but think once that things that get, is... do you think once things get really bad, the American people are going to rise up? I think we are currently seeing. Oh, I know we are currently seeing the broadest social uprisings, at least in my lifetime, and driven by the need for racial justice and against police brutality. And I think if you continue to have people out of work, losing their homes. They're not going to stand for it. And that is a that is a powder keg. Absolutely. And so I you're saying Jim Earl isn't like, an idiot. Are you? Wait a second. Uh, you, 
know the guy. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> you're saying that Jim Earl isn't the dumbest friend I have? Wait a second. <laughs> I mean, I, 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 it's hard because I, I really get concerned about people who are already in such precarious situations to to lean into that idea of this of accelerationism because it will genuinely harm a whole lot of people but i do think there is a real risk to a lot of people who are engaged right now to that joke of wanting to go back to brunch after trump's out of office right. and i think that is what we have to really fight against is make people recognize that like politics is not just it doesn't just end with one vote that's really the beginning and you have to remain engaged and we have to fight to ensure that people are struggling less so that they can be engaged because there's a whole lot of working people who have no ability to actually engage with politics because they're just trying to keep food on the table, pay their bills, keep their a roof over their heads. Like in a lot of ways, being this engaged is sort of a privilege. You know, there's people on Twitter talking general strike, general strike. It's coming. People like when I go canvassing are not talking about that, like they're. Right hyper-focused on like getting through the next day, getting through the next week. So I think we have to remember that there's a whole lot of people who are not there and could be really harmed by trying to push forward into that sort of accelerationist yeah. space. Jessfordelaware.com. I want to thank my listeners for recommending you. No, oh, absolutely. Yeah, my listeners said I should have you on the show. And uh, I hope you come back. I would love yeah. it if you come back before September 15th. Go to JessForDelaware.com. I'll give you the last word. Let me I'm not telling anybody to vote for Biden or not vote for Biden because I loathe Joe Biden almost as much as I loathe Kamala. I don't want to get I'll talk about Kamala later and her Mm -hmm. husband. When we find out, well, I don't know about him. Oh, we're going to find out about the kind of law he practices in Hollywood, mm. and and he's the kind of lawyer John Stewart would get when he wants to bust a union. The same mm. kind of lawyer who launched Joe Biden's campaign in Philadelphia. Mm. Joe Biden launched his campaign in the law offices of a Philadelphia lawyer whose job is union busting. And we're going to discover some stuff about Kamala's uh, liberal husband and the work he does. So I'm not telling anybody to vote for Biden. Uh, I agree with Jim Earl 100 percent. That doesn't mean he's right. I'd like you to respond to this. I think that things in motion stay in motion. It's Mm -hmm. Newtonian. And that the idea the people will rise up is a pipe dream because in America, they disappear. They disappear. They don't have the food. They don't have the medicine. They don't have the energy to rise up. And what we saw in Kenosha, we saw the police and the militia cooperating. Right. Things in motion stay in motion. When you start moving to the right, you you continue to move to the right unless an object of equal force has the gravitas to stop it. And I'm not saying that I see you. I see you. But I don't see any gravitational pull to stop this motion. I don't see it in the Democratic Party. 
No. I, I, I just read that Barack Obama said, you know, from 40,000 feet, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders are identical. That's what he said. And then he wonders why his wife suffers from mild depression. She should be catatonic married to Barack Obama. Yeah. And I I do hate statements like that because people can see through it. And I think it really takes for granted how smart people actually are about their own lives. And I think it works to try to squelch movements and and just make people it's like when people say you know we're we're fighting for the same things and it's like we're really not we are absolutely not you are fighting to make status quo slightly more palatable for slightly more people and i am fighting to completely change the systems that we we live and operate in Right. right and those are not the same things and we don't have the same goals and yeah. we are not responsive to the same people And I think that is used as a tool to just kind of shut up the left or whoever just saying like, why are you freaking out? We're trying to fight for the same things. We're on the same team. And it's like, we we clearly aren't. And I think that is used as a way to shut down dissent or shut down ideas that are sort of challenging to power. And we have seen how when you challenge power, the response you get and I think you're right that when we see things like police and white supremacist militias essentially working in concert with another one another, we have to be really careful about what we are saying we should be doing to respond to that. Right. Because the, those those white supremacist militias have been looking for this for a while and have been talking about starting these race wars or whatever they want to call it. People are showing up to these demonstrations just looking for a reason. To, to shoot someone, to go after someone. And I think that it's it can be really dangerous and we can lose a lot of people if we aren't prepared to deal with that. And I don't think that we are in a place where we know how to, how to deal with that right now. Because who are we going to turn to in this moment to get support? I mean, even we hear the police are saying, I think the, the, the cops in Kenosha said something like an individual was involved with um, using a firearm to break up a conflict. Right. And that's how it was referred to killing two people and shooting a third. Right. So that's what we're up against. We're up against that level of propaganda and of accepting of white supremacist violence. And we do not right now have the organization around how to counter that. Even the quote unquote I'm not even going to call it left media, but like liberal media does not offer a strong counter narrative to that. So this is a situation where we really have to figure out like how to organize the people that we have on the left on actually getting getting real pushback on these ideas and getting our hands on media power or or labor power or any sort of power because we really don't have it right now and and that's why we're struggling and that can be a longer road that i think is is part of the problem that like we are not in a place where we have built up that infrastructure and that organization at this point jessfordelaware.com jessfordelaware.com go there give her money and if you don't have any money, go to JessForDelaware.com and find out other ways you can help Jess Garain replace Chris Coons in the Senate. Tell your friends, if you have any friends who live in Delaware, 
tell them about Jess. Thank you so much, Jess. Yeah, thank you, David. Stand the line for great. one. Stand the line for one quick sure. second, please. I'm on my way to be a billionaire. Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care. I have a plan to get there by and by. As long as I stay healthy and I never die Fifteen bucks an hour Five days a week Fifty-two weeks a year And thirty-two thousand years I know it's a long time, honey To thirty-four thousand and twenty But when I get there, babe I'm gonna be in the money I'm on my way To be a billionaire Now you can make fun of me But I don't really care I have a plan To get there By and by As long as I stay healthy And I never die All I really need Is a second job or a third Lift myself up my boots And join that elite herd of the 600 billionaires in the USA Who make more in a second than I do in a day I'm on my way, yes I am I'm on my way I'm on my way Oh, yes I am Now you can make fun of me, but I don't really care I have a plan to get there, yes I do, by and by As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never die As long as I stay healthy and I never Joining us from Kenny Bunk, Maine, is Emmy and Peabody Award-winning comedy writer uh, Jim Earl, who uh, turns out Jess doesn't think you're uh, a sub subhuman primate and capable of rational thought. Well, what can you say? I mean, <laughs> look at me <laughs> and look at my friends. Oh, good crew. Mm-hmm. Jim still plays to the audience in the chat room with visual jokes. Thank you, Jess. I, I yeah, hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for week. the time. And, and, you know, let's let's do this again. JessForDelaware.com. Hello there, Jim Earl. Hello, Hello, Jim. David. Hello, Dave. Hello, uh, Davey. Great yeah. job once again with uh, Susan Collins. Oh, has, has that uh, dropped yet? Have you dropped it? I yet? dropped it. Yes, I did. I want to continue the conversation we had last week, if you don't mind. And I will tell you that I agree with everything you say. I do agree with everything you say. But? But Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, the psychiatrist, said something. Oh, geez. You know, my dad was a doctor of psychology and the head of the psychology department at Claremont Colleges. So apparently the Baker's kids go hungry. 
What I'm saying is, if your father was that brilliant when it came to psychology, how did he end up with a son like you? Well, he had three other sons as well. So I was left on my own. So are you schooled in psychology? He did a lot of uh, tests on us. Yes, he did the... You know, the colors test and the stimuli, the T-maze and uh, the colored uh, blocks that you had to associate with other blocks and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, we, he, he used us in his data. Really? Mm-hmm. And he was a professor? Yes, he was a professor as well. Yes. Your dad was had a Ph.D.? Yes, he was a doctor of psychology. Was he a psychologist? He was a doctor just like Jill Stein. Is he, did, was he a psychologist? Did he see patients? He, he did for a little while. And, and how did he diagnose you? What did he say you were suffering from? Uh, irritable bowel syndrome. Hmm. That's why you're a red diaper baby. We'll keep doing that joke. Okay. We, did, <laughs> we didn't have diapers back then. I went, I went roughshod. <laughs> It was a free. It was a free home. <laughs> In other words, you couldn't sell it after yeah. you kids were. Let's it talk. Was ab- the 60s. Yes, it was, it was the sixties. Yes, Let's talk about Berkeley, San Francisco, Willie Brown, Kamala, uh, Kamala. How do you pronounce her name? Kamala, right? Kamala. 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 That's, that's the way you're supposed to, but nobody does. Right. Right. She is from uh, the Willie Brown machine. I knew Willie Brown. Willie yeah, the Brown, machine. the sausage making machine. Well, she was she had a, an affair with him while he was married, but that's okay. I mean, we knew that Willie Brown was a man about town, mm-hmm. and before he became mayor of San Francisco, he was speaker of the assembly. He was the most powerful man in California. And they couldn't get him on anything. He was a Democrat. And they tried, but they couldn't get him. Did you know Willie Brown? I, I, I knew Willie Brown pretty well. Personally? Really? Yeah, yeah. I was, there was a period of time when I was, I'm not, I'm going to share some information. I was his favorite comedian. He used to find comics and take them around Sacramento. And he flew me to Washington, D.C. to entertain the, he called it entertaining the California delegation at the Mayflower Hotel, but we were really entertaining lobbyists. I, I remember oh. vividly he was able to fly me and my family to Washington, D.C., and we stayed at the Mayflower Hotel. I, I remember I was so naive thinking, this seems like a waste of tax dollars. I shouldn't be participating in this. And then I was told by my manager, no, 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 it's, it comes out of a different fund. Uh-huh. And I remember thinking, but still, uh, you're the Speaker of the Assembly of California. People are starving. Why do you have money to fly me and my family to Washington, D.C. And, and put me up at the Mayflower Hotel? This, I, I remember thinking this is unseemly. And I asked yeah. his staffers because I was naive. And I said, I don't understand this. How are you able to to afford i mean i'm not going to reach i'm not an idiot i'm going to cash the check and bring my family this is a once in a lifetime opportunity but 
where are you getting the money? I don't understand this. And Willie walked up to me at the Mayflower Hotel. And I I have to say, I there's a I have a big place in my heart for Willie Brown. I do. I mean, if you're from San Francisco and, mm. you know, so he said to me, I understand you're worried about how you're getting paid. Come here. Come here. And he shows yeah. me the list of people who are coming to the show, the ticket sales. And it's literally Philip Morris, ExxonMobil, insurance companies. He says, these people have so much money, they're not going to even show up. They're not coming to see you. They're paying this money to see me. And I said, is this legal? He goes, it sure is. And I I remember flying back from Washington, D.C., thinking he gave me a gift besides the trip to Washington, D.C., I flew home from Washington, D.C., and I realized I didn't want to be the 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 clown, the political clown uh, for the people, the power brokers. I remember thinking this is disgusting because there is a way to make money. You know, that's how Mark Russell made money. There's a way to be Uh like a, a, a comedian who entertains at these events. There's a lot of money to be made. It, it really soured me. Um, well, I, I I remember Willie Brown. He just seemed like a real sleazy guy. You know? They called you him know? Slick Willie. Yeah, yeah. And he he talked like a used car salesman. And um, But know, he was the most successful African-American politician. No African-American politician in American history had gotten so many votes. If you add up Mm -hmm. all the people who voted for Willie Brown over like a three decade period, no African-American in American history had accrued that many votes until Jesse Jackson ran for president. Yeah. So he and he is emblematic of everything that's wrong with San Francisco, isn't it? Well, it's a very corrupt town. It's always been an incredibly corrupt town. But how can we be bad? We have an African-American mayor now. He's Willie Brown. He became the mayor of San Francisco and and he took Kamala under his wings. Yeah. How can he? Under his wings. Yeah. And how, how can they be bad? They're people it, it of color. Proves, it's, you know, it just proves the identity politics hole that you get in when you say, well, hey, you know, why we can also have people of color and 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 women be incredibly corrupt, warmongers and cheats and liars. That's that's the true measure of a free society. San Francisco, every woman in San Francisco is a potential Karen. (laughs) They are, but they don't know it. There are no African-Americans. There are very few African-Americans living in in San Francisco. I don't remember. I left in uh, 97 to go work at the Daily Show, and I would come back uh, for, for... vacations you know for christmas and new year's i would come back and i would really miss the town because it was a, it was a beautiful place and you could still get an apartment for a room in an apartment for two or three hundred dollars yeah. and uh it's just turned into 
a pest hole. Can you explain uh, something to me? Silicon Valley te- pest hole, yes. Gavin sure. Newsom, the anorexic governor of California. No, he's dyslexic. Is he dyslexic? Yes, I think he has. He has a. Uh, he puts the food up his ass instead of his mouth. That's that's a form. I, I know that. His ex-wife would know that about that. That's what I wanted to ask you about the the anorexic governor of California, Gavin Newsom, was married to Kimberly Gargoyle. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Kimberly Gargoyle. And then she goes off and becomes the the girlfriend of Don Jr. She becomes the uh, uh, triumph of the Will Scarecrow, screaming Scarecrow uh, at the Republican National Convention. How do you go from loving Gavin Newsom to loving Don Jr.? How can two men, opposite ends of the spectrum politically, how could they both love the same woman? How can she love? Do you really think they're at opposite ends of the spectrum politically? Well, yes, because Don Jr. is a a Republican and Gavin Newsom is a Democrat. So they both both don't like Medicare for all. They both would shit can any chance for single payer. And the only difference is Don Jr. has never done that. He's never had a chance. But Gavin Newsom has. And he did. So wait, wait a second. Are you saying Gavin Newsom is an opportunistic political infection and only became a Democrat because only Democrats can get elected in San Francisco? Is that what you're saying? I think he became a Democrat because uh, he had a rich Getty friend who helped him make a bunch of millions in the business and in, in restaurant businesses in San Francisco. And he became a San Francisco aristocrat. Yeah. And apparently he came from money as well, right? Yes, he did. But he the, the Tommy Newsom fortune, I believe. Tommy Newsom. No, no, that's a, that's another guy. That's that's a. That's oh, another. he didn't inherit the Tommy Newsom fortune. No, 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 no. This okay. is completely different. Tommy nope. Newsom. I don't even know if he had a fortune. Tommy, Tommy Newsom. Did he have a fortune? He was just a band leader. Just a right? band leader. He was Doc Severinsen's backup leader. Yeah, but he supplied drugs to Doc Severinsen. That's true. He was, just, right. he was this heroin pusher. Right. And that's why and, and that's why they called him Doc. Yeah. Because he Doc was Doc Heron. <laughs> Doc Horse. Bring me my horse. Where where's where's my horse? <laughs> he used to scream. Did the Kimberly Gargoyle speech scare you? You said Triumph of the Will. It was something. It was like a bad John Frankenheimer movie. Well, if, if, if you saw her speech in a movie, you would say, fire the right. We need a page one rewrite. This is not believable. Well, right? It scared me because I hadn't been that hard in years. <laughs> I can't wait for the divorce. I cannot wait till she and Don Jr. get married and then split up. I think it'll end in a hunting accident. <laughs> With uh, him cutting off her tail. Uh, I think, no, I think he's the one who ends up 
above the uh, the fireplace mounted. She's going to she will destroy him once that relationship turns sour. She's going to turn into Amorosa, right? God only knows. I don't even know who who are these people. Why are they? You think they're using <laughs> drugs? Word is that they're taking cocaine. Well, if if Donald Trump isn't on something, I you know I don't know who isn't or is. I mean, he, he appears to be on Adderall all the time, and Adderall is something uh, attorneys use to concentrate and stay awake. So if he if if Donald has a problem concentrating on anything, he might be on Adderall. Right. And the Nazis Certainly. lived on stimulants, right? The the, the troops the yeah, troops were being that. fed meth, right? Well, the 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 bomber, the fighter pilots, yeah. And they say that the reason they were able to do the blitzkrieg is they were blitzed seriously on methamphetamines. <laughs> that that they yeah. that Churchill and the French were amazed at how quickly they were able to get through enemy lines. They, 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 it didn't make any sense to them. I'm getting a phone call from... Uh, well, that would be Churchill making an, ex- an excuse for his, sh- his shitty military preparation and right. ha- having no military to speak of. Now, you maintain... To go to war in, uh, in, the, in 1940... With right. Germany, which yeah. is why, of course, the much-aligned uh, Neville, Neville Chamberlain did the wisest thing in the world and saved Britain's ass by delaying war for uh, the number of months that he did. You're so saying that they, were, they weren't equipped? That no, they, they weren't. The British military knew they weren't equipped, and, and uh, there was, they would have lost. They would have lost immediately, within two months. The German army would have overrun them. They had nothing. They didn't have an army. They didn't have an air force. So you're saying that he was a hero, Chamberlain. Chamberlain saved Britain in that respect. They allowed, he, Britain, allowed Britain to build an army. But he died a broken man. I know. And Lord Halifax was not a Nazi sympathizer. He just didn't believe that the British had what it, what it took. I don't know anything about Lord Halifax. I'm sorry. I'm going to admit my ignorance okay. about things. I don't know anything about Lord Halifax. I don't know about the G-spot. I don't know how long it takes, or the, how, how long the sun's in the sky. What are you reading for relaxation? Nothing. There's no relaxation. I haven't read any fiction in over a decade it's just all newspaper and what about the democratic platform democratic okay that's that's fiction yes i've read that that's fantasy is there anything we have to wrap it up but is there anything anything joe biden can do in the next six weeks there are about 57 days left yes back medicare for all that's my so-called one issue. <clears throat> I would vote for him if he passionately changed his mind and backed Medicare for all, <clears throat> because that would change everything. That's not a one issue, by the way. It would change everything in our society on multiple levels. People would be able to 
change jobs. They would be able to move from town to town, from city to city, state to state, without fearing losing their health care, going into debt. It would save over 70,000 lives a year. Okay. People, people get out of shitty relationships, shitty jobs, and it would it would send loads of money into the economy from the ground up, which is the only way to save this stupid-ass country. Now, there are rumors that Donald Trump is going to outflank Biden on the left. Would mm-hmm. you vote for Donald Trump if he guaranteed Medicare for all for white people? Would you vote if he promised... White people. Yeah. If if Donald Trump said Medicare for all for for white people, because that is the reason we don't have Medicare for all. Truman, we've learned from Professor Harvey J.K. that the Democrats almost gave us Medicare for all. But the Southern Democrats didn't want African-Americans integrating our hospitals. This is true. Mm -hmm. So, you know. Being pragmatic, politics is the art of compromise. Would you vote for Donald Trump if he promised Medicare for all for white people? For white people? Why, yeah. why do you put for white people? Because he that? because that's the only way he could get it through. I would. Uh, I don't think I would ever vote for Donald J. Trump because uh, I know his record, and uh, there's no way I would ever trust him to do anything he says because he doesn't have an attention span. He can't focus, and he has no conscience. And I think he's a social. Suppose they. Suppose. All right. But you, you, you brought up something earlier, uh, saying that. Uh, you, you seem to imply that I'm a, some sort of a privileged. I didn't say that. Person. I didn't say you were privileged. Well, did your last guest? I think there was something about the 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 uprising by default that was kind of labeled as acceleration of chaos in order to get our way. Right. I think and, you're an accelerationist. No, I, I don't know. But that not, has nothing to do with privilege. I, 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 I don't think you're a man of privilege. Well, I don't even think you're a man. That it would benefit, that it would hurt the most vulnerable instead of ultimately benefiting them. And I believe it would be the, the opposite. I think there's no other way to benefit the most vulnerable by, except by rising up and doing what's necessary. If, if the powers that be will never give up their power. Well, and I, I, I and, and, and others like me and you, and by default as well, have been maligned by at least uh, three blue checkers, uh, Hollywood types, who I, names will not be named. But we both we all we both know them have been maligned as uh, people who care more about their privilege, white privilege and their station in life and their own bubble than they do kids in cages. And you refuse. We're refusing our vote for Joe Biden because we're privileged and we don't know how other people suffer. 
and all that utter manipulative horse shit. And this is the, the, the thing that they did to us in 2016, even before the primaries began. And they started it before the primaries began for this uh, election cycle as well. And they will never relent. And as long as people like that are out there, I don't think there's any hope for the Democratic Party because they're the ones who fund the Democratic Party and speak for it. And Hollywood, as much as it has been lined by the Republicans in, in the right wing, I agree with the Republicans in the right wing about Hollywood. They're oh, all I do too. Use, useless hypocrites. I agree with you 100 percent. Two faced morons. Rob Reiner, and, Rob Reiner, Rob Reiner. Yeah. And Norman exactly. Lear, Norman Lear, Norman Lear. Executive producers at uh, at the Simpsons and uh, various stars that make the rounds. John Stewart, John Stewart, John Stewart. Mm-hmm. I agree with you, a hundred percent. It pains me to say this. I agree with you. I agree with you a hundred percent, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're right. That's the problem. Well. Do you think anything is going to change? Do you think do you think Joe Biden, when he enters the White House, suddenly he's going to magically make all his allies in law, law enforcement stop murdering black people on the streets after he's promised them an extra one hundred million dollars? Right. Right. Do you think he's going to back Medicare for all when? People are 40 million people are facing evictions and losing their jobs and don't have Medicare for they don't have any medical coverage because they're losing their jobs. You think he's going to back anything approaching what Donald Trump is currently outflanking him about? And that's uh, increasing Medicare coverage for anything covid related. Now, Joe Biden doesn't have anything approaching that. He's got this fake public option. That's meaningless. And they've abandoned the public option. That's yes. They won't even well, you go. You can't with ever it. tell because he, he goes triangulates back and forth. Every time there's a bad news report about his platform or what he's doing, he, he backtracks from it. So you can't trust what he's saying either. So mass uprisings, mass general strikes, the only way out, I believe. Well, Joe, unless Joe Biden goes down and writes on his platform and holds a and broadcasts a, an important groundbreaking speech saying Medicare for all. That's it. OK. Uh, I agree with you 100 percent. And then we'll wrap it up. I'll say something and then you get the last word. And by the way, are you coming back for the diabetic diabetes town hall later today. Yes, with uh, with uh, Martha Previtt. And Dr. Huckamaki. What are you doing? Yes. What are you eating? Nothing. Oh. The reason Japan and Germany and Great Britain and France have social safety nets is because they were destroyed during World War II. I agree with you. That's... They're the only Germany. That's accelerate, but that's the accelerationism. In other words, it takes that much to bring people a, a safety net in the 
in this in this world. Well, we are, are you willing? Are you? We are the world's greatest purveyor of violence in this world. So, you know, we've been a complete sham our whole history. We're not a democracy. You never have been. We're we are the worst thing to ever happen. America. Yes, to this to human history, and there's no way of getting around it because of climate change. Climate change and, and constant warfare that that accelerates climate change, accelerates pollution and environmental destruction. What do you think? What do you think are all those tanks and troops and uh, what? How many? We have like a eight hundred bases around the world and the. And our Navy churning up mud and, and diesel soot everywhere. It's, we destroy everything we touch. We spread disease. But we got great sitcoms. That's important. No, we don't even have great sitcoms. We can't even produce great TV. We're importing all our good stuff. Wow. We're going we're gonna to produce a good sitcom, though. Yes, we are. You and I. Yes, we are. We have an idea for a Zoom sitcom that we'll we'll talk about later. Thank you, Jim, for, for cheering me up. I agree with you 100 percent. I do. I do. Hey, we'll be OK. We got our bubbles. Yeah. Jim Earl. Follow him over on Twitter at Jim Earl 666. Great job, Jim. You are loved here. You're, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. We'll be right back. come to for help with all their problems and i just throw out wacky animals that 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 they have to like you know use as examples to improve their lives 
Dr. Jennifer Vertolin joins us. She's an animal behaviorist, author of Raised by Animals, and she wants to be in this Zoom sitcom that Jim Merle and I are thinking of doing. The idea for the Zoom sitcom is to, we're doing this big COVID squares town hall tomorrow, Saturday at 930, 9 p.m., 9.30 Eastern Standard Time. It features Henry Huckamaki and the irritable immunologist who were great friends to you, Dr. Jennifer, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. When I was not feeling well, uh, they checked in on me and and uh, and that was really that was really awesome. Lots of people checked in on me, but they yeah. were they were two of them. I called you to find out where you keep your jewelry. I believe. <laughs> I was worried that should you know you go to the hospital or something. Absolutely. I mean, I think I probably told you where all of my abundant jewels are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I usually take them with me. That I wear my jewels. Yes. Yes. Anyway, Jim and I are toying with the idea of doing like a Zoom sitcom where we're driving to the studio Uh to record our big show. And we do it on Zoom with these Zoom backdrops and we keep running into obstacles. And each obstacle is played by the brilliant Martha Previtt, who does Melania and Martha Stewart and Susan Collins. On oh, yes, the show. yes, yes. So we never the, the idea of the sitcom would be Jim and I trying to drive to the studio to record our special. And we just keep running into obstacles. So maybe well, you can be one of the obstacles that you have to call every time you hit a new obstacle. Like somehow you have so much anxiety or stress that you have to call your your therapist and uh i mean that's what i'm gonna do when i'm driving across the country on saturday (laughs) right right jim when did we do this the the sitcom how many years ago 10 years ago 10 years ago i think it was 10 years ago yes that's awesome well that sounds like fun that really does that's that's a great idea you guys will be terrific i think that's what once this covid town squares thing takes off and becomes the hit it should be cool we'll, we'll do a sitcom well i hope i get to attend sometime i i can't uh this time but maybe next week when i'm firmly planted in another state right we should let's talk about you thank you jim i'll see you later Today, when we do the diabetes yeah, town hall, I'm going to go eat. I'm going to have something to eat. Okay, <laughs> there's some graham crackers or something. Good. Have some sugar. Does does the did the doctor ever do any uh, TMAs experiments with rats? I have. I I don't really like to experiment on animals, uh, so no, I have not done any any uh, maze uh, experiments with rats. Although they're pretty outstanding, I would have a rat as a pet for sure. Why? Why do you ask? My dad did. Yeah, I did on a you know stimuli stimulus experiment. Seeing which uh, which would they go left or right this time? Okay. And uh, if they weren't rewarded, would they keep going to the same uh, part of the teammates? And uh, what he found out was shocking and earth shattering. What did he find out? I can't tell you now. Oh, I feel like if they don't get rewarded, they don't keep going. That's sort of how we all are. 
Well, it was kind of like uh, the less they the less they were rewarded, the more often they they would show up. Kind of like a gambler would show up. Oh uh, well, yeah. So actually, once you pair the, uh, once you pair a stimulus with a reward, the best way to firmly entrench it is to only intermittently reward. Yeah. Meaning, right? Like. I think so it has more value. Happening. I think this is what's happening with Trump supporters. Like they got some, they get some little intermittent little tidbit and they keep thinking that if they, if they stick with it, they'll get something bigger. Like all those promises that he made will finally come true. Um, you know, and, and so the best way to entrench and manipulate is give a reward for first doing what you want. And then, and maybe that's why so many marriages only have sex like a few times a year. <laughs> well, it's an, it's part wow. of addiction. It's part of addiction. My father also ran the uh, the first methadone program in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, but it, with any behavior training, like I can train Mr. Buttons to go into a crate. I reward him all the time, and then I just reward him every couple of days, and he will sit for hours in that crate just hoping I get a treat. And eventually he gets one. But I could give him a treat three months from now, and he'd still go into that crate, um, pretty much hoping he'll get he'll get a treat. So it loses its currency. Too much of a treat, it becomes less special, is what you're saying. No, actually, I think, uh, and Jim, you know, chime in too. I, I think what we're saying is that you only initially need to pair a stimulus with a reward uh, uh, regularly to establish a link between the behavior and an expectation for the reward. And then what his, what his, he was saying is down founders that they continue to go into the, the teammates, even if they're not getting rewarded, like they were initially because they're hoping it's essentially, you can have an optimistic rat or a pessimistic rat, but it's really a brain, um, it's a neurological imprint sort of on the brain, you know, well, I got a reward and I did this and I got a reward. So that means if I do this, I'm going to get a reward. And, and then if you just reward them maybe infrequently, you can't, you have to balance how, how long you wait. If you wait too long, you can extinguish the behavior. Um, well, the behavior is, is run by uh, the thrill of the stimulus. And as long as you, you get it, if you get the stimulus, on a regular basis, it doesn't have the addictive thrill any longer. And so it's, it's like taking heroin. Heroin has a real high peak, but it's not as uh, powerful uh, a drug as methadone. methadone. You keep chasing the dragon when you try heroin. It's yeah. never as good yeah. as the first methadone time. levels right? you out with a, with a high, uh, but heroin, you have those high, uh, real highs and real lows. And that's the, uh, the addictive part. Right. And so... Uh, people will will gravitate towards things that oh it's there now uh, as opposed to oh it's always there okay and so that's part of the addictive personality and uh, why uh, we have no free will okay I gotta go eat thanks <laughs> well, I, I had one qu- I want to hang on before you go Jim Dr. Jen yeah my understanding about uh, understanding about the tolerance of frustration mm-hmm. is that when you put rats in a maze and you get them close to the cheese, but they still can't get the cheese, they become mm-hmm. more violent than they would be if they smelled the cheese from far away. 
Does that make any sense? I I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not familiar with that work. Uh, you know, I, I really, I, I've used um, some of the information from from the research done on rats to focus more on how, how cooperative and empathetic they are and how you can instill either desirable traits or, or um, and also there was a, a study that, that showed that you can basically train a rat to be racist um, against rats of other colors. Um, they don't start out that way normally. And so how do you train, how do you train them to be racist? (laughs) Well, of course I'm using a very human term. The rats themselves are not like literally racist. Um, and racism is more of a systemic inequality, uh, in our, in our society, but you know, rats are born in litters that vary in color. Some are gray, some are white, some are black and white. There's just diversity in the litter, and rats that are left in their natal uh, uh, litter, um, anytime there's a rat in distress, they help any rat they encounter. They don't discriminate in who they help because they see all rats like themselves. They were just a rat is a rat is a rat. If you manipulate the litter and you take a rat, it could be a gray rat, and you raise it with only brown rats. When it sees another rat in distress, it will only help brown rats. Right. And so the, to me, the moral of that story is that the more we're surrounded by diversity, the more we see others like ourselves, the more empathetic we are to different people because we don't see a distinction between ourselves and others. So that's sort of the moral of the story of that rat experiment um, left alone, they will help any rat. It doesn't even have to be a friend rat. It can just be any rat, like a stranger rat. And they, they go to their aid. But if you manipulate the, the colors of the rats they're exposed to when they're growing up, they limit who they help. Fear of the different. It's not fear. I don't believe it's fear of the different. Um, in fact, it's just familiarity. It's, it's, you know, they don't have mirrors, right? So they don't know what they look like. So they, um, they basically, uh, a rat, another rat is any color to them, or it's only one color if you manipulate the litter, right? To, um, so it's really about when you're raised with different people from different backgrounds and different languages and different appearances and different abilities and it's all just part of your experience you don't you learn to discriminate that's the point right and you learn because people limit the exposure of their children they teach them um, about how some are better than others and which how to identify them right but Left alone, kids just see other kids as kids and, and as themselves, right? We, we are social animals, and rats are incredibly social animals, too. So right. they make decisions about lots of things based on other animals, other rats that they interact with. How is Senor Button? Well, Senor Buttons is okay. He's uh, in his crate because um, he's hoping to get a treat. Um, I, I really uh, up the, uh, the the pairing of the stimulus and the reward before a big trip. So he's okay. We're still, um, I didn't hear from the vet yet. So um, we're trying to figure out what the next step is when we get to uh, North Carolina. And 
and but he's he's you know he's purring he's being annoying he's uh, eating and drinking and doing all of his business and so those are all good signs so we're hopeful that the trip will go uneventful um because there's been enough sort of events really there <laughs> certainly have been and can i ask you about your plans or is that personal what what do you mean my plans well, your geographic plans. Oh, yeah. So I'm teaching remotely, right? Um, I'm currently remote for for U of A, and, and so I'm I have classes started, and so it doesn't really matter. But my mom is in North Carolina, and you know, maybe like many people, you've been separated from family, and 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 for her, she's on her own, and so I'm just going to help her out for a little bit, and um, and be closer, right? She's she's old. Uh, er, well, she's old, <laughs> but, um, you know, life is harder when you're a senior and you're alone. Uh, and so, you know, my brother can't, can't go. Um, but I got the okay. And so, you know, I'm, I'm traversing this treacherous <laughs> middle of Arkansas, Oklahoma and Tennessee, um, you know, but it's self-contained. So no, no bathroom stops. Food is coming with me camping. So buttons will be a camping cat. Oh, wow. Camping. <laughs> oh yeah. Camping. Yeah. Wow. So I'm going to take some pictures and, uh, this will be his first adventure. In, How do you in- take a cat camping? <laughs> I don't know. I've never done it before. Is but he on a leash? Well, I do have it for an emergency, but he's never loose cause he's not trustworthy. Um, so he has a big pen that's about four feet in diameter and two feet high. And so even if I've traveled and stayed in hotel rooms, he, he sleeps in there. And, um, and so I'm hoping that four walls of the tent, cause I got one of those big ones, uh, won't be any different to him than four walls of a ho- hotel room. <laughs> right. And right. not, we're not staying in the middle of the you know wilderness cause he's a, practically a prey item you know i had a bobcat swing by the other day and um there was a bit of a tensed moment because the bobcat saw me but then he also saw senior buttons and uh but do cats eat other cats well bobcats will kill domestic cats they may not eat them but they will kill them coyotes will eat cats for sure um and coyotes and bobcats have you know a tense relationship as well but, um, but yeah, no, the bobcat, I mean, it was a young one. It was a kitten, um, or a little bit bigger than a kitten, but not doing so great. So a hungry young cat, a hungry young bobcat is more dangerous <laughs> than a uh, healthy, uh, adult bobcat who, you know, is, if he was out there alone, that would not have been a good situation. But I thought cannibalism doesn't exist in the animal kingdom. I thought mad cow disease came from cows being fed other cows well but okay so cannibalism does in fact exist in 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 nature and we're part of that by the way there's some cannibalistic human society but i mean it's not it's frowned upon yeah i mean it's frowned upon um in in most now most cultures right but um so when a bobcat kills a cat and doesn't eat it that's not cannibalistic this is a competitive interaction Right. And and now when a coyote kills a domestic cat, they're obviously not the same species. Mountain lions will kill bobcats, but they don't eat them. Wolves will kill coyotes, but they don't eat them. 
right? So we're talking competitor versus cannibalistic. There are, I mean, lobsters are notorious for killing um, each other if you put too many of them in a tank and you don't tape their pinchers, right? Um, And there are many species where adults will cannibalize and eat the young of the same species. They generally don't eat their own young, but they'll eat someone else's young, no problem. Really? Oh, yeah. And even the sunfish. So the sunfish, um, the males uh, guard the nest. And and once a male has a nest, like females think he's super cool and super awesome. And they will lay their eggs in a nest that already has eggs. So he ends up with like a pile of eggs that are his because he will fertilize those eggs after the female lays them. Because in fish, obviously, it's external fertilization. And sometimes because he has to guard the nest, he can't leave. So he might nibble on a few eggs to sustain him. So he's actually cannibalizing his own offspring. Hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. So fish fertilize. So they don't have sex. No, it's all on the outside. Right. I mean, although the brown trout has been um, the female has been notorious for faking it um, to kind of get rid of a pesky male. Um, it's a little bit easier because they, they lay eggs and then well, I'm going to ask you, let me ask you a really stupid question. It's been a while since I had a fish tank. Okay. Do fish fornicate? Yes, externally. So what so does externally fish- mean? Well, so they fornicate in the sense for reproductive purposes, females lay eggs and then, then they take off cause they can. Right. That's who gets stuck raising the kid is is whoever can get away first uh, gets away from the responsibility. So that's why in fish, males are really the more parental. Um, well, hang on. I, I, I apologize. I apologize. So, the so wait, 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 wait. The male sprinkles his sperm over it. And that's fornication in fish. Hang on. Hang on. I you I you broke up the okay. woman. The female lays eggs. Yes. And then she flies away. She swims away because she's a fish. Okay, and then, <laughs> and then the horny male fish uh-huh. doesn't chase after her. He sees eggs, and that yeah. excites him sexually. Uh, that causes him to release his sperm. That is now, sick. Seriously, no, no, that's just how it works in fish. And but here's something funny: the brown trout female has been known to shake and shimmer as if she was going to lay some eggs. So they watch her very carefully because they got to they got to dump their they got to sprinkle their seed quickly to fertilize those eggs. And you remember we're in water, right? So it's tricky. You got to have good aim, right? As but well. it's sick. No, what? seriously, I'm being serious. I'm not trying to be cute or controversial. Male fish. Get turned on sexually, not by the sight of a female, but by the little baby she leaves behind. No, 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 no. So, again, the brown trout, let me tell you what happens in the brown trout. Don't bring up the brown trout yet. I'm talking about the the vast majority of fish. No, he is paying attention to the female and watching her, anticipating, right? She does things that let him know. And then he's being responsive because that's what probably if he's feeling excited, it's because he's watching the female and she does these things. She shimmies, she shakes and then she drops eggs. And he then he's already primed to to sprinkle his seed because he's been watching her. 
Okay. This now, is immoral. This is immoral. Crowd, I'm going to get this. This in. is immoral. She fakes it. And he, she does all that she like, lets him think she's going to lay eggs, but she doesn't. And he, what do they call it? Premature um, release. <laughs> yes. And he uh, basically misreads. He Well, he doesn't misread. She's telling him, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm ready to mate with you. I'm ready to drop my eggs. And he goes and she never drops eggs and she just leaves. This, so that's how they get rid of of males that they don't they don't want to mate with. All right. I, I'm being honest with you. <laughs> I do not approve of fish. I don't. I think it I think it is. I think it is absolutely unacceptable the way they mate and the way they have well, sex. Maybe, but your chat group just put in female fish premature evacuation. <laughs> which is just... I stand <laughs> in judgment and I accuse fish. I'm going to bring Bert Ross in here and I know Bert is going to back me. American hero Bert Ross. There is no way I'm backing you on this. Of you, course, you're a man. You're a, you, the, you, you. You turned down five hundred thousand dollars from the mafia. You're a man of 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 morality, and you approve of the way fish reproduce. You, you have been a city slicker too long because you have got to be hopefully one of the few people left in the country who just realize that fish do not mate where a fish, a male fish has a penis and penetrates the vagina of a female fish. I mean, perhaps I've had the advantage of seeing salmon mate, so I understand, but that's not a, that's a revelation to you. More importantly, Jen, <laughs> Dr. Jen, how old is your mother? She's 78. I really, really resent you're referring to her as old. <laughs> well, I, I said older. No, then you said old. I mean, <laughs> I will be 78 within less than a year. And I, I you, you really have to correct that, please. Okay. What would you like me to say? Uh, middle-aged. <laughs> then I'm a teenager. <laughs> that's, that's correct. Middle-aged means we're all going to live to 140-something. Okay. You know what's amazing? What? Math is amazing. I just figured out that when I'm 78 next year, mm -hmm. I will have lived half my life with my wife. Cool. She, being 14 and a half years younger, has already lived far more than half her life. And there was a time when I first met her when a very tiny fraction of my life was with her. And if I live long enough right. to become really old, then the percentage of my life with her will be greater. Math is amazing when you think of it. Math is amazing. Math is fun. That's about as deep as realizing that fish don't make the way mammals do. But it's... <laughs> I, and birds I, don't either. I mean, I think I, think I blew... His mind or, you know, when I said that they don't they don't even have a penis except for ducks. They do. Well, birds, what? Birds don't male birds don't have a penis. They lost their penis. What about roosters? Where did it go? Where did it go? It, it disappeared. 
It was no, it wasn't really necessary. What it's about just, roosters? No, no, they just have a cloaca. Remember the whole the the the, the all-purpose. The, you know? the the hens have the hole. No, the males. That's no males do too. <laughs> how do you then? How do you get the eggs fertilized? Well, he, they put the hole over the hole. The male gets on top, puts his hole over her hole, and away they go. The exception is ducks. They still have their penis because they're in the water, you know. So, a hole can't penetrate another hole. No Doesn't have to. Yeah, you just match it up. Have you ever? It's not like putting a square peg in a round hole. It's it's a circle and a circle. <laughs> so they, they what? They're, nothing's going to go between the two, unless uh, they're. Yes, I mean the male will, you know, and they have lots of courtship and lots of of sexy stuff. Males dance. Males do all kinds of great stuff to to woo female birds. And the rooster, I mean, just look at him. Who wouldn't want to, uh, you know, mate with the rooster? Uh, which hen wouldn't want one? So no so, wonder roosters are so angry. That. Roosters, <laughs> I would be angry too if I had a fornicate. That Bert, did you know that? No, but I'm not shocked by it. You're not repulsed and disgusted, and you don't stand in judgment. You don't stand in judgment. <laughs> I, I've never thought of it that way. I, I here's the question. You know what I love? It's like I can ask any question about any animal, insect. It doesn't matter how long is the penis of a of a hummingbird. And I I asked Dr. Jen like she would know. I I had I have a friend who was very very anxious about having a daughter or or any child because he was concerned that he wouldn't be able to teach his issue. All there was to know about music, okay. which if you think of it, it's a, it's a ridiculous con- concept. There's no human being ever from Beethoven to Leonard Bernstein who knew everything about music. And so when we ask you these questions, it's a little silly because you obviously can't know everything. But salmon. Yeah. Do they procreate only once? Yes. The technical term is semel paris. Um, yeah. Well, okay, so it's one time, one shot, and then it's it. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I went fishing with my brother in uh, uh, Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, I guess. And we were on a um, a river. The fish literally Uh can go 150 or 200 miles up this river to the place that they were born. And by the time they get there, they are their flesh is literally starting to come off them. Mm-hmm. Some of them make it in pretty good condition, but many of them are weakened. Mm-hmm. And then I actually saw this is why, David, I kid you, but I, uh, I actually saw the mating. The female salmon lays the eggs. Almost immediately, a male comes along and sprays the sperm over the eggs. Right. And then within minutes, they start to die. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, if you told me I could ejaculate one time in my life and then I'd have to die, this is not a great deal. I mean, <laughs> I, this yeah. really, and they, it's not only that they die, but the flesh starts to fall well, off. And wait, 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 wait. And they're doing it in their mother's home. They go back to their mother's home 
to have sex. Their home. That's where they were born. Where they, they were, were born. born. Yes. And you don't think that's sick? No, it's, 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 it's wonderful. The, you know, think about it. First of all, they're born in fresh water, streams and, 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 and rivers. And then they, they undergo this huge change and they become mm-hmm. anadromous. That's the technical term. Uh, where where you can switch from freshwater to saltwater, yeah. right? And then they hang out in the ocean for a while, about two to four years. Yeah. And, and then they come back, but they can't switch back, right? So they're going to die no matter what because they can't switch back to tolerate freshwater. You can only switch once. You can't go back and forth. And, you know, and so, so then they're, the, they're, they... But they, the sexual they, urge, the sexual urge is so overpowering. I mean, I, I'd swim, you know, in the old days when I was younger, 100 yards maybe, 200 to yards to, to mate. <laughs> they're, going, they're going hundreds of miles. It is a compulsion. And the minute they get there, the female lays her eggs, the male covers them with a sperm, and then they die. Yeah. Do you know how they find their way back? I'd love to know. They smell. It's chemical. So they can smell. They imprint on the smell of their stream or creek or um, river that they were born in. But how would you but how would they know where in those hundred and fifty miles they were born? Because it it smells unique. It's like a fingerprint. Now, imagine uh, the problems we've created by pollution and all that stuff in freshwater. Um, we basically they they get lost, right? It's uh, that's just the way that they navigate. <clears throat> I forget how the scientists uh, that study this stuff figured that out, but I do know that it's a chemical imprint, um, and how they that's how they navigate back. Suppose you planted. Suppose you captured a salmon mm-hmm. in salt water dropped him in fresh water, showed him some eggs, and then took him back into the sea. Would he die? What do you mean? I mean, like, why would he, like, you show him some eggs, like, to force him to... To To turn uh, him on. Well, I don't think it works that way. Um, uh, <laughs> they're not going to, that's not how they mate, right? You can't just pick up a salmon from the ocean and then drop it over some eggs and and then that's what's going to happen. Like, that's not how they work, right? They Think about this. Like, salmon have been around for a really long time. You're talking about a pretty strong evolutionary pathway for reproduction that really doesn't get... Um, mucked around with. Now, what can happen is you take eggs and so fish farms, right? They do this. They have, and, and I remember when I um, asked in a restaurant, it was the salmon wild. The, the, the waitress said, it's from the water. <laughs> and I was like, that does not answer my question. And I said, is it wild caught salmon? And she said, but it's, it's from the water. And I said, no, 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 no. And she, well, I, I said, are they free swimming salmon or are they farm raised salmon in the water? And she said, oh, I think they're farm raised. I said, so that's actually what you say when you're trying to answer this. But so fisheries, right, they will, um, they take eggs and fry and they hatch where they are. And that's, you know, and then they have these pens 
and and there's loads of problems with that, you know, from disease and lesions and genetic modifications where some of those salmon have escaped those pens and, and they worry about any interbreeding between the, <clears throat> the genetically modified fish and wild fish, right? So this is a problem. But, um, but I don't think um, you can just catch a salmon in the ocean and then put it in fresh water over some eggs and it'll be turned on. There's no female. They, you're missing the part that even in fish, even though they do this um, differently, they have to, they see each other. There's an interaction between the male and female fish. In the farm? How about in the farm? I don't know. I haven't researched um, much what's going on in, in the fish farms. I know that there are um, there are hatcheries, right, where they will um, hatch salmon and then and then let them let them go. So I'm not quite sure how that process works. And where do they return? They certainly don't return to the. Yeah. Again, I don't farm. know. I don't know kind of what the the process is, and it'll be different for different fish. Jen, I need to ask you about orcas, better known okay. as killer whales. Right. They, I have been told, are are not whales. They are uh, dolphins. Is that true? Yeah. yeah. What, is, what is the difference between a dolphin and a whale? Um, well, it's a toothed whale, right? So toothed yeah. whales belong sort of in, in the dolphin family. Um, difference between a dolphin and a whale. Gosh, I I don't know off the top of my head, honestly. Okay, well let me let me go move on. They're orcas, killer whales. I think come into two kinds predominantly. One is the uh, residential, the local, which, which eat mostly fish, and then they're the itinerant, which are very aggressive towards other mammals, specifically you know sea lions. Sometimes other whales, uh, penguins, etc. So, how do they? Has there ever been an instance that I haven't heard of it where an orca kills a human being? And if not, why not? Because I was uh, again in the off the island of Vancouver, Vancouver Island, uh-huh. and I was surrounded by hundreds of orcas. It was like an orca convention. And <laughs> And there were some people in kayaks, and these, uh, we'll call them whales for the time being, are, are huge, especially, and, I, and you would see them rise and look at the people in the kayaks. Uh-huh. So I think they absolutely saw what, what was there. Right. They could have knocked over that kayak in a, in a second and, and, t- and killed those people easily. Uh-huh. And yet, I haven't heard of an instance where these orcas that can be very, very aggressive have been towards humans. And if that's the case, do we not taste good? What is that about? Okay, well, there's a couple of things here. These are great questions. So the first thing is that there's actually three main types of killer whales slash orcas. Um, there's resident, like you mentioned. There's transient. So these are ones that will come in and out, right? And yeah. then there's offshore ones. So that that are farther offshore, right? And so I think what you're saying is that the transient ones are considered the most aggressive. Yes. And so so most likely what you were encountering and what those people were encountering was actually residential ones, not transient ones. 
Um, the difference between the three is also they look different. So killer whales aren't just black and white. They come in all kinds of shades between black and white to pale gray and white. Another idea out there that there is differences in appearance and color even in other animals. Um, and they differ in diet. They differ in the habitat that they use, so the foods that they choose to eat. They also differ in their language. That was part of the problem was with one of the issues with blackfish was that there was there's different communication between different groups of killer whales and also different types of killer whales. So why why do the aggressive ones? Has there ever been an ex- an instance that you that you've heard of? where a, a, uh, an aggressive killer whale killed a human being. In captivity, yes. And my okay. guess would be that if those kayakers started harassing uh, those orcas, or if there was a young uh, calf and they were harassing and misbehaving, which seems to be what people do, and if anybody had been silly enough to feed them, that would create a sort of perfect vortex of problems, right? How about, so, if somebody were, how about if somebody were swimming? Again, I wouldn't advise it, and I don't know what they would do. It depends on have those um, orcas been fed by people? Is there a calf or multiple calves around? Are you behaving in a way that is threatening or irritating? Imagine irritating um, I, I mean, remember there was that picture, uh, there was that little video of a seal um, at one of the, a California seal um, uh, or sea lion. I can't remember. No, it was a seal uh, that that grabbed that girl off of, grabbed a young girl off the, the, the what do you call it? The pier? The deck, the pier, the uh, and, and brought her into the water. And of course, that um, that that animal had been fed by people. So one of the big ways to create a, a really negative interaction is to uh, create the expectation of a food reward. <laughs> I, I, but what, all I'm saying is, based on your answer, you don't know of an instance where a human being, I'm not talking about in captivity, sure. what was killed. And, and that's kind of interesting because I can't imagine that People haven't been swimming where they were or something. I mean, no, I I don't think so. But and that's why it was so damaging, that movie. Right. Um, That that portrayed uh, killer whales as this really aggressive. um, There was a movie made um, sort of like Jaws was made, but it was about killer whales um, and portrayed them as killers. Right. So. but not to my knowledge, you know, again, if it has happened, I would expect that the human was doing something. Mm. Can I ask a question? <laughs> of course. First of all, I just want to repeat, I do not approve <laughs> of any of this. Sea <laughs> I was looking at a sea lion playing with a swimmer on uh-huh. YouTube, just caressing it like a cat. Mm-hmm. And I thought, but cats are afraid of water. So it's not like cats crawled back into the ocean and became sea lions, is it? Are they are sea lions related to senior buttons? Okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm confused. You saw a sea lion caressing a human. I saw a swimmer. Uh-huh. 
And a sea lion just kind of swam up to him, uh-huh. looking like a kitty cat. Uh-huh. And I and and put his flippers around him like a cat, an affectionate uh-huh. cat. And I you know, it almost was like they were rubbing noses and mm-hmm. you could hear it purring. It wasn't purring, but that's a sea lion, right? Right. So I don't know the context and I don't know where this was. Uh, one, I would say totally ill-advised. Um, B, probably had been fed by people. But, um, you know, I mean, all kinds of animals cuddle and touch each other and are affectionate with each other. But with so, humans. Yeah, of course, uh, with humans. When they are, um, like, when they're, you know, interacting with them and, and, and have some history of interacting with them. I don't know if the sea lion was looking for food. I don't know if it was a lion, right? I have no idea without the, the context. But um, mostly younger animals are playful um, and interactive. And, and I think we've talked about when we were talking about grooming, how much touch is really important in social species. And they're social animals. So, you know, it's not terribly shocking. It's disappointing that it's having this interaction with a human, um, potentially in a wild environment. That's worrisome. But, you know, it's not shocking that it would like affection okay but my question is and again i don't approve of humans and sea lions uh, just inappropriate touching and but Hmm. uh are sea lions related to senior buttons no but they look like cats they act like cats how do you mean they look like cats i'm sorry how do you mean they, they look like cats? They have whiskers. Uh-huh. Lots of animals have whiskers. They look like, I mean, <laughs> there's no connection between a sea lion and a regular lion. No. No, no, no. There isn't. I guess they're the, the name, right? Um, they're, they're part of uh, eared seals, right? And, and so uh, you've got tons. They're, they're, they're pinnipeds basically. Um, and they, they actually came from on land. So, right. They can navigate still on land on their front, um, on their front legs, but no, they are not, um, you know, related to cats. I mean, I have a skirt. Does that make me a cat? <laughs> Jen, do you yes. know what it is to host a podcast for like 14, 16 hours? Do you, do you have any appreciation that over time, David weakens, he gets a little tired, he, he, he acts absolutely amazed to find out that fish don't fornicate like humans. He starts to imagine that cats and seals Why? maybe uh, reproduce. I mean, well, I, mean I will never go swimming in the sea again when discovering this is filthier than... Hef's Grotto at the Playboy Mansion. I mean, what fish are leaving behind? Male fish are disgusting. Well, and octopuses and sharks and I mean, octopi. Well, and sharks actually have a penis, I believe. Really, I have not gone into the ocean since George. But you know, in uh, fact, I think the original phrase was, "We're going to need a bigger little man on the boat." I think is what. W.C. Fields, when offered water, said, 
Better here than in Philadelphia. That's not what he said. Well, fish fucking that. All right, I want to I want to make the ocean a scarier place for you. Uh, so, as someone rightly pointed out in the chat, um, shark, some sharks have two penises and some sharks have two uteruses. So um, they're on double duty. Um, I, I suppose, uh, you know, but yeah, they, they have so, so multiple orgasm is not hard for for those kind of sharks. No, and even lizards. Uh, so most lizards have a, a what we call a bifurcated. That's like a bifurcated. You got two. Um, so you know, they maybe they stole it from the fish. Uh, I <laughs> I was on an island not too far from the Komono Jack Dragon, but I oh, decided. Okay. I decided not to go. Really? I decided, I decided that I could I could have been killed. So I, I you know, know, I was I, feeling bad about being a shut in. <laughs> I, I, I think I'm right. I, I think, you know, at first I hear Dr. Jen is going to go camping across country with Senior Buttons, her cat in a cage. And I thought, well, that sounds fat. I should be doing that. And the more I get to find out about nature, I'm happy in my little crummy apartment with my pet water bug, Mitchell, and the, the mouse, who I hope is a mouse and not a rat, who pops his head in every week just to make sure I'm okay. Oh, that's, that's much healthier. I don't. I don't approve of any of this. I, well, I still, David, we're Jewish. We don't camp. Camp camping is not for us. Well, camping. I, I prefer to glamp, but that's really not an option right now. And uh, glamp. glamp is basically glamorous camping. So give me a, a really nice cabin. Um, give me a tricked out, um, you know, Travado. Uh, that would be how I would prefer to uh, to navigate. Or, or you can go. You can go on safari, three thousand dollars a night, and they call it camping. It's not camping. Have I'm you talking been- about you know a canvas tent, yeah. dirt on the ground. Mm, not yeah, not it's not for me either. But you know these are unusual times, so yes. I am uh, taking extra precautions. I have yes, an observation yes. about these times which I just wrote a column about, which has not appeared yet, but I wrote it. Uh, and it's called Isolation. And it's, it's like, you know, we started with Amazon, which has done remarkably well. And people, the, the malls and the stores are dying because if you can just push some buttons and voila, the product is there. Why, why go out shopping? And now with the pandemic, well, there, we don't go to the movies anymore. Uh, we just watch on uh, Netflix and there's more content than you can watch, I think, in the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. And then you don't go to the workplace. So you you Zoom and conference call out of your house. And there's and then the kids are now 24 mm-hmm. seven learning from home. And so we never leave the house and people are going crazy. I mean, you have all uh, suicide is up, Prozac and alcohol sales are up. But there is some good news. The good news is that the earth is getting cleaner. People don't need two cars because we're going nowhere. Right. There's no traffic congestion. Uh, there's no traffic. And the earth is cooling off. I can feel the earth getting cooler during this podcast. And it's getting cleaner. There's no smog. 
the the bad news is that so long as we stay in our homes, uh, there is no continuation of the species. It takes two to tango, even if you're talking about without penetration, you're just talking about spraying the eggs. You need two. Right. There is no coochie coochie, the quote. There is no hanky panky. Whoa, 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 whoa. Well, well, hang on. You said coochie coochie. That's okay. But when you start saying hanky, I got kids listening. No, no you know, H word, P word. Hanky, you know what I love hanky. about David, who's a, who's a professional comedian? <laughs> Whenever I get close to being to funny, the punch, to the fucking punchline, he, he has to interrupt. I love it. All right. Anyway, so, so, so okay, there's no hoochie coochie. One thing is no, no, no. Hang on, hang on, Doctor oh, Jennifer Verlin. We, 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 we. Ruin the rhythm. It's all right. The irony of all this. But hang on. I want to get. I want you to do your punchline. Yes. Okay. Here we go. I I can't wait. By the way. Please tell me the next time you're performing live, because by God, I got to be there. And just as you're building, I'm going to say from the audience, by the way, anyway. No, no, you were saying that in order for the species to survive, we need some hanky panky. The irony is that we are going to have a cleaner, cleaner, healthier planet, but there'll be no future generations to enjoy it. So I disagree on lots of levels. The planet's not cooling, and it's surprising for you to see that. Was that was a joke. That was a joke. Okay, I was going to say, you're like, your state is burning to the ground. I mean, it's... Jen, it's, Jen, yeah. Yeah. joke. Okay, sorry. I, if I say I can feel the temperature getting cooler during this podcast, <laughs> that might be a clue that it's humor. <laughs> Yeah, my friend. I'm, <laughs> I'm so happy. I am what? so happy. Jen, you're Jen. You're not the first person to miss my humor. Okay, all right. But <laughs> I'll, I'll just say one more thing. Like you're right. At least for humans, we need two. But every other group, um, I think, except for mammals, can reproduce without a male. Parthenogenesis, virgin birth. It's been discovered in every group except mammals. Uh, well. Anyway. I think Whoa. the Virgin Mary. We have, we have to wrap this up. We have to okay. wrap this up. I, mean, I just wanted to leave that there. I wanted to just, just sit there. I, uh, I, I'm wrapping it up because Dr. Liam O'Mara, who's running for Congress in California, is about to join us. And the conversation, okay. Virgin birth. I, 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 I'm so, I apologize to Dr. Liam O'Mara that he has to hear this kind of conversation about the way fish fornicate it this was i don't i i have to really reevaluate the the direction of this show this was one of the most disgusting segments we've ever had and, <laughs> what? And, uh, are you sure <laughs> before we i say goodbye dr liam o'mara is running for congress in california and everybody should go to liamomara.org and give him money. The man is the Democratic nominee for Congress, and we hope uh, he he actually gets there. Uh, can I ask you a personal question, Doctor O'Mara? Sure, anything. Are the cats back? Uh, yeah, I, actually, I I brought them up here with me too, which is nice. Okay, um, it was uh, it was always really it was 
really difficult to leave them at the other house while I had to come up here for the internet access. Right. Well, let me let me just introduce you to Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. She's an animal behaviorist, mm-hmm. and uh, she is an expert on animals and she's written raised by animals but oh, for for some reason she thinks cats are better than dogs and uh dr liam's uh, liam o'mara's two cats uh, ran away temporarily right well the the house is broken into and it took a while to arrive there so with the window out and the, and the door out it, it took a while to to find them all um yeah, all three of them were still on the property they were just traumatized and hiding sure. from, oh the, my from the break-in yeah. so um i was worried for a while though because if um if they had actually slipped out or over the fence given that my closest neighbor's a mile away and there's coyote in those fields oh yeah yeah. Um, so I was, I was happy that we, it, we eventually found all three of them still there on the property. And so I'd like to you. Yay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, and actually, if, uh, if, if you'd indulge me for a second here, just as a fun one, because there's an animal behaviorist and I'm obviously on to talk about politics. I had someone um, bring something up interesting yesterday that we talked about what lessons I took for politics from being around tons of animals, because I've been around tons of animals all my life. I have quite a few. I have currently, three cats, a dog, two Mojave tortoises and fish. And I have tons of wildlife in the field that I take care of, including like there's a California king snake lives under the house. Um, so I, I quite like different animals. And the, the key thing that stands out to me is that they all are, they're all different psychologically. And you have to learn to relate to them in their own way rather than trying to assume that there's some kind of sameness or that they understand you. I I think that a lot of people who have problems with cats, for example, have problems with cats because they treat them as if they were dogs and they just walk right up to them and pet them. But that doesn't work for a cat. You know, if I'm I'm introduced to a new cat in someone's house, I will completely ignore the cat. I will sit down and look everywhere but at the cat. and, And then if the cat gets a little closer, I'll just put my arm down without looking. The cat will eventually come over and get curious and sniff you. And once they've done that, you have made a friend for life. If you show them respect, they'll show you respect. My cats are insanely loyal, affectionate. They follow me around. They're every bit as loyal as my dog. And my dog also is lovely. But dogs, too, completely different psychology. Dogs were bred over the course of 10,000 years to do particular tasks. So if you find out what your dog is sort of wired for and you give them that, you don't have behavior problems. My previous dog was a golden retriever. We had to play ball. The current one here is is a hunter. As long as she has time to wander around and hunt rabbits and squirrels, no problems. Perfectly well behaved. People are always blaming the problems on the animal when it's the way that they treat them. That's useful for voters as well, you know, just understand different interests. Oh, my gosh. So my heart is just bursting. So first (laughs) of all, I completely agree with you, and I would take it a little bit of a step further. But the psychology aspect also extends to personal space so how uh, with wild animals in particular, how close or far you are is very species specific to what they're comfortable, comfortable with. And I would even say that it, it may be mostly OK to approach dogs quickly, but it's not always OK for every dog. And so you have personality differences right. that also are part of that sort of species level differences. But what I love that you said the most was that. We, may, we have a very egocentric view of relating not only to other animals, but frankly, to each other. 
right? And and we're we're always assuming that the other is exactly like us, and that in and on many of the reasons we get angry and frustrated is because the people and other animals violated our expectation of how we thought you should be and decided that you were. And so I, I think that having respect for other species and, and relating to them as they are, instead of imposing yourself on and projecting yourself onto everything else and having certain expectations um, is, is one of the most healthy and functional kind of perspectives that I could ever, um, you know, celebrate hearing from another person when it comes to animals. And I agree with you that it, it extends to politics, relationships, work environment, everything. Um, so yeah, there's a very, um, I guess, I don't know if you want to call it speciesist or anthropocentric or whatever approach that we take to the natural world. And I think a lot of that comes from particular shifts in the axial age in our mythic tradition. So getting back to one of the other questions came about, about our, our religious past yeah. that sort of said, the world is yours, do with whatever you want with it, rather than us thinking of ourselves as part of the natural world and as one species among many, each of which has particular evolved characteristics. And not only are there differences among species and how they approach things, but there's differences among individuals too. So if you approach them respectfully, you'll make friends. I mean, one of my, uh, I I have a long history of adopting like, um, you know, feral or abused animals. My, my dog was abandoned. Um, my, my, my cats were, were, you know, my, one of my cats came from the terminal Island in the port of Los Angeles. He was literally a Harbor cat. So a feral got his ear clipped and everything from a trap new release program. And I spent years with him and he is today the most affectionate, loving, adorable critter, just follows you around, purrs, talks to everybody. Um, but it, it took work to reach him and make him feel comfortable again in order to interact with people. Right. So there's a certain patience you can also take from dealing with, with animals that I think is a useful lesson for uh, uh, interacting with people in politics, just to find what are the interests people have, approach them respectfully. Yes, uh, these are your positions. I hear your concerns. And, you know, here's my perspective. And let's talk rather than talking at you, which we get way too much from politicians in the media. Oh, I agree. And I just want to clarify, too, that that this view of, of, of us dominating the environment and nature is a very I teach a class on this uh, wildlife conservation and um, and culture. And it's a very uh, Euro uh, imported Christianity colonizing viewpoint. Um, historically, humans, indigenous peoples still um see everything as uh, uh, an independent spirit that they're part of and relate to and are important and integral uh, to who they are. And, and, and so they don't see this separation. Right. Right. And they don't interact with the environment as a domination. Uh, That's that's an imported and it has basically built the entire way that at least here in, in the United States, I won't say America because America is all America's. So in the United States, it has formed the foundation of our conservation and, and, and environmental approach and our way of relating to animals. So um, and, and I think obviously to each other. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I don't want to uh, take up, but I, I, I love this conversation. And I I think that also what I find joyful is that you see these parallels that extend into politics because part of what I do is sort of how can we improve our lives, whether it's through in politics or in work or in families or relationships, friendships, 
by looking at other species and thinking about how we behave and, and looking at how they behave in these kinds of situations. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, and the, uh, the history of that particular set of ideas is all as often fascinated me. It was actually something that I got sucked into during my, uh, my dissertation research. The, uh, the sense of a kind of um, of separation and a kind of like domination versus a lot of the previous um, approaches to nature that you see in uh, the traditional polytheistic approaches or like um, the uh, the animist understandings where there's like just natural spirits all around you and you're supposed to like interact with them. Yeah. It does teach you something very different from the world was created for a specific purpose. I put you here to test you and I'll destroy it. And ultimately that goes back to the Persians and they're, they're the first to draw a, a sharp distinction about 3,000 years ago and to say the world is basically created as a kind of what it um, was created as a, uh, a kind of like testing ground as a, for a battle between good and evil, that it was poisoned by a dark force at the beginning and that we have to somehow master it and correct it and it will be destroyed and fixed at some point. And that idea moves from there into Judaism, and Christianity, and Islam and forms the foundations of that particular western perspective but right. it, it, it is distinctive and it does have a particular origin uh, and that sets it apart from say south asian east asian sub-saharan african american traditions right yeah i ask a question I'm, I'm confused well hang on for one second L- let me just uh let me introduce dr liam o'mara yeah, right, we got an big sidetrack yeah no no this is fantastic but i want to make sure that we raise money for you yeah thank you uh, liam o'mara Dot org. Go to LiamOmara.org. He is endorsed by Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny. So that's all you need to know. Just go to LiamOmara.org. And if you're an American citizen or you're you and you explained to me last time you were on the show, if you're if you have residency, you can donate. Yeah, yeah. yeah legal residents can donate. They just can't vote. Right. And Dr. Liam O'Mara. Uh, is a, ca- a candidate for California's 42nd congressional district. He is also a Ph.D. and a professor of Middle Eastern history, as well as a lifelong union worker. And I'd like to introduce you after we got that out of the way. That's important to uh, Bert Ross, who was the mayor of Fort Lee. He was the youngest mayor. I ran for Congress. Hang on, let me let and me. Nobody, and nobody ever called me congressman. And, and I have to run. I'm sorry, so I'm going to have to jump off. I just thank safe you. travels, Jen. Safe travels. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Nice to meet you, Doctor Romero. Great conversation, Doctor Doctor Jennifer Verdlin. Thank you. Raised thank by you. animals. Buy it. Uh, so, Doctor, hang I'm, on for. I'm, let me give you your introduction, Bert, so I'm, he knows who he's talking. To, okay, a guy, a guy who enjoys life and out the cocker. I mean, what? Doctor Liam O'Mara, Bert Ross. Hang on, Bert Ross. Just so you know, is my second hero. When I was growing up, my father said, "I I bequeath to you two heroes: Ralph Nader, number one, and Bert Ross is my second hero. He's the backup hero in case Ralph Nader can't fulfill his duties." As my favorite American hero, I will call upon Burt Ross. This is God's honest truth. My father literally said, these are your two heroes. I'm not making this up. And the reason Burt is my hero is because when I was growing up, he was the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey. And he was offered half a million dollars by the Gambino family, a bribe that he turned down. 
And had he put it in Apple stock, it would be worth <laughs> six trillion dollars today. So this one. The, I, I'm confused. Uh, first of all, do you know Roy Matahedda, Professor Matahedda at, uh, at Harvard in, in Middle Eastern history? Um, owned by the name. I, we, I yeah, he, he went to a school that I went to, fat, fabulous. He won a MacArthur Fellowship way back when. Anyway, the I you are the Democratic candidate, the Democratic nominee. By the way, he had a slip in the fact that he went to Harvard. It's it's a character flaw. I didn't. That, no, that was, that's a character flaw. No, that's he was a he was at George School, my high school. He was a. I did not say that he was a classmate of mine at Harvard. What I said is he was a professor at Harvard and happened to be a classmate of mine at George School. So I've been smoking. You insecure. He won't even tell me where he went to college. He's so insecure. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You are. Wait a minute, David. I'm, I'm you, a proud you, UC, University of California alumnus. So. Um, you are the official Democratic nominee. The Democrat. Correct. How could that have happened? Do you realize? Have you met people in Congress? I know. I know. I was thinking they the same thing, Bert. Understand twenty percent of what you said. I I was thinking the same thing. The public, the public would understand forty percent, <laughs> but the congressman would understand twenty percent. Yeah, we we uh, we honestly do have some. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, what can you say about the Louis Gohmert? <laughs> like, um, yeah. That's right. Even, yeah. even King and, and uh, all right. So but, you're, you know, you're I, in a heavily, you're, I, I assume, in a heavily Republican district. I have spent a lot of my life actually engaged in discussion with people with wildly different views and, yeah. and uh, life stories. I continue to interact with people in um, in social media discussions, you know, that are coming from like, you know, sort of far right perspectives, you know, libertarian yeah. perspectives all over the place and try to approach people patiently. So I think that. I would enjoy actually interacting with a lot of the people in Congress, but I know what I'm getting myself into. <laughs> you know, you know, with campaigning, I I have the opposite approach. I can tell you, your your approach is fine because I have quite a few friends, including some close ones who are for Trump, and I have spent extraordinary effort and haven't budged one of them, maybe one, possibly. But I, I'm weakening because no matter how much passion I have against him, that's how much passion they have for him. And you're certainly right that if you try to tell people that they're mistaken, you get nowhere. They dig their um, heels in. Yeah, it's a it, it's just a psychological issue. What I often yeah. do is try to skirt around it to the side and find other areas. And what you can do over time is like seed things. People have to change their own minds. No argument in person or Facebook changes someone's mind. It's just not how it works. But you can lay down interesting things that they can pick back up later in order to challenge their own perspectives. So we had Thomas Frank. I assume you're in a heavily Republican district. It's um, it's an interestingly purple district. It's historically red in terms of its representation. Um, There's been increases in the. the registration. So actually, while while independent numbers went up for more than a decade, they've actually declined in the past year because of the Trump issue hardening perspectives. Mm. But it's about uh, 33 percent Democrat to 38 percent Republican. So they have an edge. 
and the independents. And, and the incumbent, the you're running against the incumbent who ran two years ago, and what percent of the vote did he get? Um, he's actually, this is his 28th year. Wow. Um, you know, uh, last time uh, he won by, I think, five or six points, something like that. Um, the closest anyone's come was 2008, when it was like two points away from taking the seat. But looking at the numbers going into this race, and this is where I would encourage people to help out and fund my fantastic data and field team, we have by far numbers since the 1990s. I mean, the, if you look back at that 2008 race and you look at how what the numbers looked in the primary versus the general, our numbers in the primary and the turnout in the primary was far greater. LiamO'Mara.org. Go to LiamO'Mara.org. And how is the economy? It's down by Riverside, right? You're, you're near Riverside? Yeah, it's in southwest Riverside County. How, how is the economy? I understand big box stores are building warehouses and destroying the environment. Yeah, it's you. essentially um, a giant logistics area. They build tons of uh, warehousing and shipping centers. So we get tons of extra pollution and traffic and road damage from that. Um, and then they connect with the, the rail lines a little bit farther out from here. Uh, and they, they sold people a song and a dance as they came into the area that, oh, this will create jobs and help out. But every one of those factories is going to be run by robots. And all the trucking jobs are going to be computer driven as well. None of that's sustainable. And we still don't, we don't have a single university anywhere in the district. We've got two small community colleges. Um, it's just, there's nothing sustainable in this area. And the, the poverty rate has stayed stubbornly high for, by California standards. Less than half the population of the Inland Empire makes a living wage. So we had Thomas Frank on the program a week ago, author of What's the Matter with Kansas? Mm-hmm. Great oh, book. Yeah. I'm uh, a huge fan. Yeah. I, he, yes. In fact, I almost got him today. He's going to do it next week. He's going to come back. Listen, liberal. And his latest book is uh, uh, P- The People Know a History of Antipopulism. And one of the things he said during the interview reminded me of what you said about cats, that you have to have patience with cats they're like voters they will eventually come around but you have to be consistent and the Mm -hmm. early populists in the late 19th century believed in the patience of ideology that you that that the people are basically smart they just need time to come around and as long as you're patient as a politician and consistent you will win. And, and the populists did win for a brief period of time. Is there a problem in the Democratic Party with a lack of patience and an inconsistency that that, they, um, that it should be as simple and as patient? The policy should be as simple and as patient as what the Republicans do with their voters, because the Republicans are simple and patient. Why can't the Democrats simplify things and then patiently push it decade after decade after decade? Well, part of it is that working with more liberal thinkers, you're essentially herding cats. People don't agree with each other. So it becomes a much more fractious big tent, whereas um, the conservative coalitions, even if they disagree on some issues, they have a few things in common and are willing to work in lockstep to protect the few things they have in common, where we tend to emphasize the areas of disagreement and difference. You know, you're not like me on that. So therefore, I hate you on everything. 
And it makes it very difficult to build larger coalitions and maintain consistent movement-based politics. Uh, the populists had an easier time of it because they did focus much more on the economic issues and didn't take on as many different things. And they tended not to you know, focus on and alienate people over the, the minor differences. But even there, it was always somewhat. So if different. I were if I were able to if I were the leader of the Democratic Party, I call you in and I say to you, you know what, we have to we have to be like the Republicans. We have to simplify this and be consistent, and we need a 40-year plan. Mm-hmm. What are the, how do we simplify it and per, be persistent and consistent? What, is, what are we selling to the American people as, as Democrats? And ultimately, that's, that's kind of the question, because the Republicans did engage in a long-term strategy to get where they are, and they were very patient about it. And you had a lot of the groundwork late in the 60s and 70s, didn't start to, to, to bear some fruit on the national stage until the 80s, didn't take Congress until the 1990s. They worked at it slowly and patiently, and they seized control of a large part of the working class in the process. It'll take a lot of time to undo that. And if you take the sort of um, preachy, elite-centered approach approach the Democrats have taken, especially since the early 1970s, there's a significant shift there where we have essentially abandoned working Americans, stopped talking about working and labor issues as the dominant theme, and started focusing instead on college-educated professionals. That basically meant that we lost touch with a lot of ordinary Americans. At the end of the day, most Americans are not going to college. It's just not how it works. Right. I mean, it's never been how it works. And if that's your electoral strategy, it's not surprising that we've gone from controlling three quarters of state houses to one third of them. This makes me so angry, Professor. It really does, because Mm -hmm. the idea that that everything can be solved through education Mm -hmm. or jobs and the idea that it's jobs and (laughs) education. Oh, hang on for one second. Bert wants to say something. Bert. Are you what, Bert? I have to unmute you, Bert. Muted. You have. Hang on. Let me unmute you. I, I can't hear you, Bert. You have to. There. Go. What, Bert? Can you hear me? Now I can hear you. Okay. First of all, I have to leave. Good luck. Uh, the second thing is that in six of the last seven elections, despite whatever we're doing wrong, we won the popular vote for president. Only in two thousand and four when John Kerry lost the popular vote, and it was not by a lot. So it really is an electoral system that really skews it uh, towards towards the um, toward the red. In any case, terrific luck. If you get elected, you will be infinitely smarter than about 99.9% of them. Be well, David. Thank you, Bert Ross. Read him over at the Malibu Times. Be well. Thank you. My second favorite American hero. He really is incredible. They're, they're, his story is just, I always say to him, you know, uh, weren't you scared standing up to the Gambino family? And he always says, the thing that amazes me is, why am I an outlier? Why wouldn't everybody do it, what I did? But back to uh, the Democratic Party, a, a consistency uh you're not going to find that from the the Harvard technocrats because they're they're open minded. They're looking for new ideas. 
Well, sort of. A lot of them can be extremely ideological and orthodox and unwilling to take the kind of experiments. I think it's worth looking back to the kind of people that uh, Roosevelt leaned on in order to get done what he did during the Depression. He brought in tons of people who were not established experts, um, who were willing to experiment. I mean, hell, Harry Truman never went to college. Right. I mean, it's a, we we used to be willing to experiment in order to try and improve things, but falling in line with that kind of um, orthodoxies. And again, um, uh, Thomas Frank does a great job at pointing out the, uh, the sort of like the tyranny of the Ivy league, basically that they've taken all the top jobs in recent democratic administrations, which means that whatever orthodoxy they're teaching is what you get. And you don't get the range of perspectives we need. And I think on a broader level, this is a massive disservice to the American people that we don't have a range of perspectives in the public sphere and in Congress. We don't have people actually debating substantive issues. What we have is a bunch of bullshit talking points and then the talking heads repeating them on corporate media and there's no real discussion. Right. And that's why Trump, during this week's convention, that's why his acolytes can accuse the Democrats of being elitists, because even though they don't claim to represent the one percent, though they do, it's it. They they more importantly claim to be smarter than everybody. And that's more of an yeah. affront to voters. It is. And there's nothing wrong at the end of the day with some kind of expertise. I mean, I obviously have to run on the fact that I have a decent understanding of public policy um, and the history of public policy. But it's when you talk down to voters with it, when you assume that they have to accept you. Mm-hmm. When you say, like, this is just the obvious, you're not going to vote for the racist, are you? Of course you're going to vote for me. And you just take it for granted rather than actually listening to someone's concerns and articulating a concrete response to those concerns. Right. I think Democrats have, for the most part, given that up, especially in the heartland and in rural districts. Absolutely. It's it's paternalistic and it's offensive. What are the biggest concerns you're talking to the voters what are the biggest concerns in your district? What what are they afraid of? What do they need? What do they want? And what what do they already have? I mean, it depends a little bit um, uh, on their leanings because there's a couple things that come up specifically with more conservative people. But in general, there's a lot of commonalities. Uh, the traffic and, and the resulting pollution is a huge part of it. A third of the population in my district commutes out for work. So the freeways are choked. And the reason for that is you don't have economic development in the area that supports the population. What we have is all these massive bedroom communities. And, you know, it's worth noting my incumbent contributes to that because he's a real estate developer. But you get all these bedroom communities of people that then commute back into L.A., Orange or San Diego counties for work. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge problem there for us. Um, and then the cost of everything is climbing, too, because as more people move into the area, it's raising the house prices. But since the local economy is not strong, the people who already lived here are being priced out of housing. So we have massive homelessness issues. We have tons of housing insecurity issues. We have people struggling to get by. Right. I mean, this- do they vote, though, when you have massive I mean, homelessness? Depends. Yeah. I mean, obviously, homeless generally don't vote and a lot of the working class and youth don't vote either and some of that is part of a general frustration and apathy with american politics oftentimes it seems like the politicians don't listen to us anyway what's the difference who cares right um and you know some of it it just has to do with the perception of the area why should i turn out for a democrat the republican's going to win anyway it's a waste of my time i'll just 
you know, and and then, of course, you have all the issues that we have with working class vote all across this country. Voting on a Tuesday is stupid. Yes. Either make it a public holiday, which is a bit of a fight, or just move it to two days across a weekend, like tons of other developed countries. We make voting harder in this country than any other rich country. Right. Right. We're talking with Dr. Liam O'Mara. He's running for California's 42nd Congressional District. And as a Democrat, he has the nomination. And go to liamomara.org and donate money if you're an American citizen or a resident. Uh, And if you know anybody who lives in the 42nd Congressional District in California, tell them to vote for Dr. Liam O'Mara. You began running I think you were on the show before the pandemic. The conversation has changed. Certainly. Uh, well, how, how has it changed? How has your campaign changed uh, because of the, the pandemic? Well, the campaign had to adapt essentially to a, a digital infrastructure um, because we couldn't do the big public events we were planning and we couldn't do all the door to door stuff, um, interact with the voters, even if. People felt comfortable doing it on an individual level. I wouldn't want them to do it just because I think it models bad behavior mm-hmm. when we want people to to distance as much as possible. So um, I'm thankful there that I had an overwhelmingly very young and a nimble campaign staff. We could come up with tons of new ideas. We immediately launched a, uh, a weekly show that we did for uh, four months straight, kind of interacting on a, a key issue. And we're in the middle of, of transitioning that to a, a more open um, and more open ask me anything sort of town hall format for uh, turning out the vote for people who don't already know us. Um, and then we've massively increased um, the social media, video stuff, um, uh, phone banking and text banking. We have several days a week we're phone banking. And actually in a recent um, statewide California Democratic Party event with 14 congressional candidates, we were four people short of second place for the number of positive contacts we made. Wow. And that's pretty good for an almost entirely volunteer campaign running on a shoestring budget. I have really good motivated people and I cannot sing their praises enough. But what is the good on text banking and phone banking? What What is the good that is coming from this? Because this is a new abnormal or a new mm-hmm. normal that a lot of this stuff isn't going to change. I mean, Zoom meetings and uh, not going to the office. The, the idea of a bedroom community it may come to an end, especially in your district. The idea, you know, we may find more and more people working out of their homes, not because of the pandemic, but because it's a gig economy. They discovered that we could leverage somebody's car. We could leverage their home through Airbnb. And corporate America is discovering what do we need offices for? Just have them work out of their their homes. But that could be a net positive if we do it right. It could be good for local businesses if people are working from their homes. It could if we actually get smart people in the house again who understand that investments in infrastructure give a three to one benefit in productivity gains. We have terrible internet infrastructure in my area. Um, my, my team is spread over a very wide geographic 
uh, area because it's a large district to begin with. And we interact almost entirely through things like Zoom and the bad Internet connections you get, even in the biggest city like Corona, really uh, cause problems for us there. And, and hell, my house in Lake Elsinore cannot be wired for Internet. It's literally impossible to wire it for it. They just never bothered connecting it to anything. So I'm stuck at my grandfather's old cabin just to get a cheap DSL connection when you've got more for, uh, forward thinking countries like you know uh, uh, South Korea, even like former Soviet Estonia, investing heavily in infrastructure, you enable a lot more of that kind of innovation. You set people freer to do things. And there will be lessons we take from this that, that carry forward. I, I can see us going back to uh, a number of in-person kind of like club and uh, party meetings and whatnot, but plenty of things are going to be scheduled for Zoom right. going forward. Because people are going to appreciate that convenience, especially in an area this big that involves that much driving during the republican convention they talk about america being exceptional with a, a quality of life second to none what's it going to take for the american uh, people what, what yeah. is it going to take for the american people to stop believing that second to it's, none honestly I, I i try to make that point and it's difficult because you want to make sure people understand you're bringing these things up because you're a patriot and you want better for americans but we are uh 52nd in total freedom 35th in health 27th in social mobility 17th in living standards and falling steadily wages have not increased adjusted for inflation for 40 freaking years while productivity has skyrocketed americans are being ripped off and we're being turned into a developing country coming at it from an analytical standpoint from my other profession there are many metrics in which it is more it makes more sense to compare the united states to developing countries like brazil and mexico than it does to the rich world we what have, what are we doing right? We're in common there. And if people cannot, I mean, and on some level, unconsciously at least, a lot of people do get that. It, it was part of Trump's initial appeal, which is why it's funny to have them like flip it to try and stay in power. But the argument was America's in decline and I can fix things, right? Populists, and this is one of the places where like, okay, so the Steve Bannon got arrested recently. Um, Steve Bannon does diagnose some problems correctly, but all of his solutions are wrong. Right. They do notice some of the decline sometimes, but it's easy to kind of like still pull them along emotionally into other areas. And you fall into that whole second to none American exceptionalism issue. Yeah, yeah, we're exceptional in that we are in serious decline because of mistakes in public policy. Right. We have to change direction. It's a type of populism that Steve Bannon promotes. It's a type of populism that teaches you to blame your neighbor instead of the right. people who are above us. What do we get right as a country these days? What are we doing right? <laughs> you didn't know I was going to ask you a gotcha question, did you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> what are we doing right? I'm, I'm trying to think. What are we? It's a it's honestly a tough one because, yeah, I I I got to say I love my country. I can't stand public policy. I think we've done almost everything wrong. Healthcare, education, infrastructure. I mean, you know, the, the military, almost everything. We're in the, doing the precisely wrong thing. Okay, I want to, I know you're short on time. I want to introduce you to Alan Minsky, who's the executive director of Progressive Democrats uh, for America in a second. Uh, but I just want to just stay here for one quick second. In the past... 
I always thought it was my responsibility to be very critical of the United States. It's too easy to say I love America. And I, I said, you know what? I'm going to look for the flaws and point them out comedically or whatever. But I'm going to stay on top of America. I'm going to hold its feet to the fire. Now. It's it's gotten to the point, especially in the past eight years where I can't think of one thing. I, mean, I feel like this is sacrilege to say this, but I can't think of one thing we're getting right. One thing to be proud about. I, I, I guess I'll give you one that. Well, in be. terms of public policy, maybe. Well, OK, yeah, that's a, that's a little harder. But um, do you have time for me to bring Alan Minsky in? Do you want to stay? Can you? Well, sure. Yeah. Here we Hello. go. Hey, Alan. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a Leon Mamara fan, so we're going to be, PDA is going to be looking at the, the race. And, uh, Have you endorsed, has the PDA endorsed Dr. Leon Mamara? Um, no, we, we, we didn't, uh, but we, um, we will look into it, and it's, uh, there's a strong likelihood of it. Well, as the executive director, as the executive director of the PDA, maybe we can get a, maybe we can make headlines here. No, it doesn't make, it, it doesn't, it doesn't go by fiat for us. We have a process. Uh, we'll have to poll the um, people in the district, and he'll he'll pass the poll, and then he'll go to the NET and he'll pass the poll. But I'm not allowed to say anything right now, other than that. Okay. I mean, I predict he'll pass both polls. So great. You were going to respond to something. Well, that... I actually wanted to ask him. Can you mind if I ask a little bit about numbers in the race? Because Julia Peacock got what for? He was down to 56 caliber, right? 56, 57. So, <laughs> what's your sense of this? I mean, obviously, each one is distinct. That was the you know midterm tidal wave election, and now we have Trump on the ballot to vote against. Right, prospects might be even a little better. And what's your sense of the race? And and I, I I do sense you as being more progressive than Julia Peacock, and how that resonates in the district. It actually does, and I've managed to attract a ton of self-identified conservatives and swing voters there, um, some right libertarians, never Trumpers, um, uh, even one guy who moved from Republican to Democrat. You know, uh, you know, just because he was so excited about the race, largely because of the way I try to frame issues more economically and don't come across it as um, more antagonistic. Mm-hmm. I love the way that Julie could resonate with the base and, and motivate Democrats. She was a great public speaker for that. But you ended up with things like um, to, I don't know, for like voter registration. Hey, do you hate Trump? Come over here and sign up. And this district went for Trump by 12 points. We need to focus on the issues and the fact that I'm running as a, I mean, for me, the answer to a right populist is a left populist. I can talk about a lot of the same issues and I can present, you know, more fact-based solutions to them, but I'm starting by reckoning with people's lived situation with their actual economic reality and also trying not to focus on the areas of like disagreement. People will know and people know that I am a strong progressive, but mm-hmm. I'm not throwing things like, um, you know, I don't know, abortion or guns or whatever in people's faces. Those aren't the focus of the campaign. They're just not important to it. What's mm-hmm. important to me is how can I improve your quality of life? How can I reduce your cost of living? How can I improve your wages? And that, right. I think, has resonated a lot with people. As far as numbers, um, if you look back, the closest we came to flipping the seat was uh, in 08 with, uh, mm-hmm. with Hedrick. He came mm-hmm. two points away from that. Um, if you look at the primary numbers and compare those to ours, they were, they, there, there's a four-point difference. Um, we, have, we have the largest share of the primary vote in this district since the 1990s. Wasn't the district adjusted a little bit, though? Oh, the district changed dramatically over, over time. 
But I'm just saying, I mean, like from all the way even in size to yeah, in terms of defeating Calvert, though, you know, with somebody else, like numbers wise, his district was actually more Republican too. His district was 45 percent Republican. Today, it's 38 percent. So the numbers are much better for us than they were when it came very close to flipping. And one of the reasons he got so close was that, again, that focus on the economic issues. He talked about things that mattered to more people. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Omara, by the way, I'm Alan at pdamerica.org. Let's uh, communicate. I'll communicate with your campaign staff, too, in the coming days. Great. Yeah. yeah. You Thank just you. need 31,000 more right. votes than Julia Peacock got. And there are just looking at our coalition of the people who we can identify as the people who turned out in the Peacock race versus and including all the new Democratic registrants and Democratic registrations gone up by three percent. Um, and then tons of the uh, um, left-leaning MPPs we've identified. We already have there's there's 150,000 available votes there without swaying additional MPPs. Um, so the, it's 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 definitely possible to do this. We have we have a purple district. The problem is, can you get the funds to keep the field team calling? And our calling in text banking is almost entirely to independents and moderate Republicans. Because we know the Democratic base is still going to turn out, as they have in the same basic numbers. We need to increase the youth vote. We need to increase the working class and Hispanic vote. The California Democratic Party still struggles to do things in Spanish. We're text banking and phone banking in Spanish. Are you up against the same kind of voter suppression other districts have, especially in red states? Um, no, no we, we don't really have a lot of that. The biggest issue we have with with that, honestly, in our area is just the stupidity of the way we time elections to begin with. But right. voting by mail will help that in California. Um, but the lack of money to actually reach people, it, it's still hard to to reach and connect to enough of the, uh, again, the youth and working class voters who are disconnected from the process and show them, look, this time there's a chance to get a real champion for you. Let's right. pay attention to it where for the most part, it's like ah, generic liberal here, generic conservative there. No, who cares? I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to go to work instead. Well, while I, while I fully applaud your, your just standing up and running for office is the best thing for people to do, especially with the political commitments you have. But what will really test your mettle is if the result is close in California, you won't know the final result <laughs> until sometime in 2021, practically. It takes a long time. That's that's where the California system fails. Yeah, several of those seats in Orange County, right. they, they, they took weeks and weeks afterwards to, to flip. And honestly, uh, yeah, I'm I'm a lifelong stoic. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, working 80 hour weeks is not really been a huge change for me anyway. Um, and I'm, as far as I'm concerned, it, where it goes is where it goes. I'm in this long haul because I want to make a difference in the lives of Americans. I want more people to stand up and push back against this. Regardless of how this goes, I'm not leaving. Right. Dr. Liam O'Mara is the Democratic candidate for California's 42nd Congressional District. He is a professor of medieval Middle Eastern history, and everybody should go to liamomara.org and donate money if you're an American citizen or if you're have legal residency. He is endorsed by Howie Klein and the Blue America Pack. That's all you need to know. He's endorsed by Howie Klein. Perhaps the PDA will find out. Thank you, Dr. Liam O'Mara. Thank you. And I'm glad to see the cats are okay. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you.
<laughs> I hope you come back. That'll, that'll win an American election, that's for sure. Alan the, uh, Minsky joins us. He is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats for America. And it's good to have you back, sir. Are you watching the Republican convention? I watch what I can. I'll be watching tonight. You know, I'll, I'll be watching and probably tweeting. And uh, I'll, I'll have the roll aids and the Tums nearby. Right. Who is the PDA endorsing right now? Who's topping the list? And does oh, that right include? Now we're, in all due respect to all uh, elections that will come to their resolution on November 3rd, we are razor focused on Alex Morris versus Rich Neal in Massachusetts 1. We're razor focused on supporting Senator Ed Markey over Representative Kennedy for him to hold his U.S. Senate. Let's, let's stop right there. Let's stop right there. Oh, yeah. Nancy Pelosi endorsed Kennedy over Ed Markey. That was grotesque. And Richard, Richard Neal the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee seems to be a shoe when he's running against the, the, the mayor of Holyoke. And mm-hmm. there was a fabricated scandal. Let's start with the fabricated scandal involving Mayor Morse of Holyoke, California. Has that hurt, Neil, when the truth came out that that there was yeah. no sex scandal, that it was homophobia? Has well, that the problem is, is when it was dropped and how many people voted by mail in the five to seven days. After and briefly refresh. We have an international audience. So just briefly bring us up to speed on the quote unquote scandal. Uh, Alex Morse was uh, certainly gaining momentum. Now, Richie Neal is uh, arguably uh, the second most powerful uh, member of the House of Representatives. Uh, as the head of the Ways and Means, so he controls the pocketbook of the House, which controls the pocketbook of a lot of the U.S. government, actually. So he also controls the president's tax return. He does, and he, he, he uh, as much as any Democrat uh, on Capitol Hill, has been a friend to Donald Trump. Because legally, he could, ha- he could have Mnuchin in a jail cell right now for not turning over that, that tax return of... Donald Trump. It's written into law that we that the House Ways and Means Committee is entitled to the president's tax return. And somehow. Right. Well, this gets into the contradictions of the moderate Democrats, because one would think if you watch MSNBC, uh, anybody who uh, blocked that process going forward would be enemy number one. And yet, of course, the sort of logic of the moderate Democrats is to not support a candidate like Alex Morse but rather to support the defender of the American political and economic and social status quo like Richie Neal. And there's just nobody who really personifies that uh, centrist, moderate wing of the Democratic Party like Richie Neal. I mean, apparently what, he, he gave a birthday party to an uh, um, investment uh, financialized insurance a little while ago. He, you broke so, up. I'm sorry. He gave like a birthday party. He was at a birthday celebration for one of the like financialized insurance I mean, that's Richie Neal's world. He has a war chest of funds coming from corporate America because he's one of the, you know, in, in California. And I know Dr. Amara's running for U.S. Congress, but in, you know, the statewide politics in California, um, you really see the logic of corporate America and its relationship to the Democratic Party, because California is the largest state, the richest state in the country. And by the way, uh, you know, Dr. Amara and you were having a great conversation about what constitutes anything that's progressive about the United States of America and public policy, there are things within California that we could point to at the state level, but not as much as we'd like. 
especially not as much as the public probably would have expected electing the Democratic Party to such a huge uh, majority of seats up in Sacramento and in the governorship. And, okay, you go to the Democratic Convention, the California Democratic Party Convention, and it's astonishing, wall-to-wall corporate advertising. Why? Because they know it's a single-party state, and they have to basically buy the support of enough Democrats so that the progressive Democrats can't change public policy and we still live in a corporatocracy, which is what we live in. Well, Richie Neal, of course, is the wall at which all progress stops with the House in terms of really substantive change on innumerable major public policy issues. Uh, I mean, obviously, most notoriously Medicare for all, but you'd go on down the line and imagine further, as we wish that there could be a progressive agenda. If the Democrats have the Senate, Democrats have the House, Democrats have the presidency, it will stop at Richie uh, Neal's committee, okay? So this is a huge, 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 I mean, Elliot Engel losing to Jamal Bowman, Joe Crowley losing, losing to AFC, add them up together, and the institutional heft of Richie Neal is greater than that. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow. So how is it and looking? Elliot Engel's right foreign policy. Hugely important committee, of course. Well, foreign policy, ways and means. Money, the purse, the house, foreign policy, the executive branch, right? Right. Crowley okay, so was the ba- was Washington was Wall Street's bag man, though, wasn't he? Yeah, and now O'Neill is doing all the work that needs to be done there. And how does it look? The, the, the Massachusetts primary is next Tuesday. I believe it looks good. Um, now, two reasons there. Let's be honest. Um, okay, it's looking good for Markey against Kennedy, according to polls that came out the past few days. Okay, obviously, we're very much looking forward to having Markey win. If Senator, if we have a Senator Kennedy again, an uh, organization like PDA will push and push and push and push and demand that he become like Ted Kennedy when he was a senator. Okay, we don't want to see that happen. We think Ed Markey already is a progressive champion up on Capitol Hill, and the Representative Kennedy is somebody that we are really. He's Robert Kennedy's grandson, not Teddy Kennedy's grandson, and there's a different. This well, this Kennedy is not Ted Kennedy's grandson. No, and in fact, very different, even around issues like Social Security, potential partial privatizations and things like that. So and Robert Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, there was a, a very, very big conservative streak in Bobby Kennedy. Oh, sure. And uh, of course, the famous transformation and then life ended. In, in, yeah, uh, I mean, he worked traffic. for Joe McCarthy, Bobby Kennedy, not to discount him, but Teddy was the real progressive um with with morse the reason things are so promising i think given what has happened um it's either alex morse is going to defeat richie neal or we're going to see a rematch in 2022 okay that's that would be groundbreaking right so what what happens to pelosi well you want to go over the details yeah 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 yeah, yeah. because all okay what happened basically was about three weeks ago now, almost perfectly timed so that you're at the point where votes start, right? In the mail-in ballot, and, you know, and I don't want to get into Massachusetts and mail-in ballots, but super progressive Massachusetts even almost defies logic. They, you had to apply to get a mail-in ballot, so it was a process. So you applied, you got a mail-in ballot. Obviously, people were reluctant to go to the polls. This is Western Massachusetts, not a lot of COVID density in the district. Uh, but still, so there's anticipation there'll be a big turnout at the polls. Okay. But uh, obviously more than ever, people voting by mail. And it timed perfectly three weeks ago, 
uh, news drops that the Democrats at University of Massachusetts, the college Democrats, feel uneasy about Alex Morris in terms of him being a lecturer there, him attending events as a candidate, and um, expressing some amorous interest in them through um, uh, social media apps and dating apps, right? Mm-hmm. And Alex Morris is gay and he's single. And, uh, and then, the, so that came out, and the fact that he had been a lecturer there, it all sounded like, oh my, this is a problem. And of course, the details were unavailable. As it's unfolded, two things have become incredibly clear. One, he did absolutely nothing different than any young person does in terms of the standard social protocols of dating in the 21st century, at least this past decade of the 21st century. Absolutely nothing different. In fact, the communications have surfaced. He's incredibly... Um, Nice, gentle, and not in any way being overly forthright. Okay, so this is way off base as an accusation. And then, of course, the second thing and the other shoe drops that this was coordinated. There's a good degree of coordination, and the people involved in the coordination include at least hardcore partisans for Richie Neal. Right. So, and it doesn't pass the smell test, and it is turned to where this is now casting all sorts of. Uh, you know, questions about the O'Neill campaign and has elevated Morse as he has consistently, by the way, came out swinging and saying he'd done nothing wrong and saying, you are, you are going over my sex life publicly. Why don't you look into the corruption of Richie Neal and then just delineating that corruption. So he has just been an absolute champion in his response to this and uh, has cut an incredibly heroic figure. Um, we are, we have proudly endorsed Alex Morse. Uh, I, of course, got contacted by the conservative Boston Herald right off the bat. Are you pulling your endorsement of Alex Morse? Uh, I said, we're looking into it. Didn't give him a quote. We looked into it. And we, Justice Democrats, um, Sunrise, we're all, and I believe Working Families Party, we're all sticking hardcore right with Alex Morse, who will be a fantastic champion. And if people don't know his backstory, he got to be mayor of Holyoke around 22, 23 years old. And he comes from a working class household whose brother died of an opioid uh, overdose. Um, and he is just a very much an advocate for working people. The average household very much in contradiction to Richie Neal and will be a true champion right off the bat of progressive caucuses inside the house. And that guy doesn't pull any punches. But he's fantastic. But why would, would why would they be challenging, Marky? Why, why would the counties even think about doing this? Oh, I think, I, I mean, I, it is a good question. One, they, I think they saw him as simply not having a profile high enough to be competitive with a Kennedy. And I think the Kennedy, this young Kennedy has presidential aspirations and probably getting pushed. Look, neoliberalism is not a dead ideology, sadly. It runs the friggin' world. It is a dead ideology in terms of its capacity to win popular support when people are able to take the measure of what it has led to in society. People know that what was the American dream, social upward mobility as a promise of life in the United States of America, the, the, the promise of a prosperous middle-class existence in you know, technological industrial societies is fractured all across the world, except the very few places where neoliberalism really never took hold and the social democratic social contract post-World War II social contract only ever available to white people in the United States really 
is still alive. Where are those places? It's, you know, Central Europe, up in the Northwest Europe, up to Scandinavia, and to a degree, some of the more uh, fully developed East Asian countries, which have a different formula for that kind of model, but it's been a maintenance of a middle-class society there as well. Okay, so there you still have the promise at least of a prosperous middle-class society. There's not all that much cause for upward mobility, but it's there, right? Right. The United States of America, that is shattered, as your previous guest was saying, and so you cannot win on that. So what do you got to win on? You got to have a name like a Kennedy. You got to go back to this old mythology where they can BS the public with the idea that John Kennedy and Ted Kennedy's returning when this chapel have no intention whatsoever to bring any of those public politics back. Okay, so you're, you're a progressive. Why am I getting? Why am I getting uh, feedback here? You're a progressive. Mm-hmm. The progressive, well, yeah, sure. Okay, I, I'm a different kind of progressive than Neera Tandon. It's a bit of a vague term, but what it has come to mean. She's a neoliberal progressive, which <laughs> yes, means I, you know she and wants and to and legalize marijuana. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, uh, she wants to message so that she can her people can win elections and they continue to just take all the money and have it go towards her. Uh, you know the the, the Mark Pocan, Congressman Mark Pocan. Yeah, good guy. Mark Pocan, who is head of the Progressive Caucus. Yeah, good guy. Really good. Mark Pocan. Yeah. Is a good guy. Yeah, I like Mark Pocan. Are you going to tell me something bad about Mark Pocan and I'm going to choke on it or something? Because I like Mark and he does. He supports a hell of a lot of good policies, endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. I don't think that was a popular decision with the the leadership of the centrist wing of the Democratic Party, but go ahead. He hasn't. Why are we getting feedback there? What's are you on? Do you have a headset on? No. What could I do? Should I put a headset on? I think while you're putting a headset on, Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny says that Mark Pocan is endorsing one neoliberal Democrat after another and that that while he claims to be a progressive, that the, the candidates, the progressive caucus, are endorsing are not leftist progressive by any stretch of the imagination. Um, is this better in terms of sound? Uh, I'm sorry? Is this better in terms of sound? Much better. Much better. Okay, well, there we go. Okay. Okay. I'm back. Oh, no, now we have, we have echo. Echo? I think I was. Oh, now it's okay. Okay, so uh, I should have you uh, talk to Howie Klein about his problems with Mark Pocan, who he says has been. Happily so. But, you know, look, here's the other thing about Mark or anybody else who who uh, maybe people have questions about. The rubber's going to hit the road if Biden's elected, because, look, all the public policy positioning, I won't say posturing, because it's been more significant than just being able to be reduced to posturing. Um, It's more real with a Democrat in office. You have the you do have the chance, maybe an outside chance. Certainly, you probably would need some popular mobilization to achieve it of having some of the stuff signed into law. There's been no chance of that with Mitch McConnell controlling the Senate and Donald Trump. So, yeah. All right, so what do you see? We have Jim Earl who's back, and I, oh, I I, I'm not know. ambushing you. I'm not I'd, be happy, lur- I'd be happy to be ambushed. Man. Uh, I'm not like going to lure you into a debate with Jim Earl. Uh, we were, you and I, Alan, were talking yesterday about Jim and his guy. refusal to vote for Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, Alan Minsky, are you voting for Joe Biden? I will, yeah. 
you are going to vote for Joe Biden. I'm planning on voting for Joe Biden. And then, of course, it pains me. I'm only doing it, you know, look, I'm the head of the Progressive Democrats of America. And I'll say this honestly to the the listeners of of the David Feldman show, because I I owe them my full honesty, I think, uh, because it's a great it's a great group of people who who track this show. Um, I was hoping you would say it's a great institution. It's a great institution (laughs) (laughs) with with all the with all the ionic columns, Uh uh, you know classical architecture that goes with it so so um yeah because uh you know i'm doing it now because i just don't want the cognitive dissonance of dealing with the argument otherwise um because i live in california and it's i agree with norman solomon it's a waste of time to to talk about how people are voting in these safe states um what's important are the swing states okay and of course i would i would definitely vote uh, you know, clearly for for as I would have for Hillary Clinton last time in a swing state voted against Donald Trump. Is it reckless for people to say, because I had Norman on the show Tuesday with Howie Klein, Howie Klein will never vote for Biden. Norman Solomon says, if you live in California or New York, it's mm-hmm. academic. Your vote doesn't count. Mm-hmm. So he lives in California, too, by the way. Yeah. And they're saying, but if you live in a swing state, then, you know, you kind of have to vote for Biden. Uh, I think that's almost cowardly. I I don't get your argument on this, but I think we should probably move on because we can take this up when we talk later. It's it's it seems inconsequential to me, you know. Well, you but you are going to cast your vote for Biden, even though your vote doesn't count in California. So that suggests that your vote does count in California. No, I just don't want to deal with the cognitive dissonance of this argument. I don't want to contend with it. I don't want to talk about it. It's irrelevant. And and are you positive about the swing states? You're looking at the internals. Do you Mm -hmm. know for certain What's a swing state and what isn't? Are we going to be surprised on November 3rd? Oh, you know, I heard actually the great radical historian uh, Gerald Horn talk the other day, and he just broke the election down into such it's you know, it's just repeats ad nauseum over and over and over again. You know, the the European Caucasian American vote is going to go whatever between 55 and 58 percent for the Republicans. Right. African-American votes going to be this number to this number. The Latino votes could swing about 10 percent. So there's a significant potential swing there. But it's going to be this to this. These states are going to go this way. It's going to come down to this set of states. And Horn's right. It's that predictable. And somehow the Democratic Party is so stupid and so inept. They somehow misinterpret this every single time. The Republicans don't and get it right. So they yeah. so why even hold the election if it's completely predictable? It was predictable in 2016. I mean, we'd save a lot of money if we just ran Wisconsin and, or just and, ask and the Michigan. pundits. No, 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 no. You can you, you, it, it, there is an election going on. I am not I do not believe that this is all what's that movie with Jim Carrey, you know, the Truman Show that we're living through. There is. So there is an election. There is an election. Yeah. And do there, we know there, actually there are 51 of them is the point. OK. And do we know how Indiana is going to turn out? Do we know how North Carolina is going to turn yeah, out? Do we know we, how Texas? We don't, we, no, we don't know. Look, Indiana was won by Barack Obama in 2008. It didn't turn out to be a close election, though it was down the stretch. Remember when Sarah Palin was not was named for the first two days, McCain and Palin were heading the polls. Um, but by election day, people sensed Obama would win. Of course, there was a unique election. No one was certain. Uh, maybe there was this undertow of racism that wasn't being reflected in the polls. People worried up until the election result was in. Turned out Obama won Indiana. When the Democrat is winning Indiana, it's not a close race. That's the point about it. And who's winning in Indiana right now? 
Trump is. But if you know, there were it wasn't long ago, maybe what um, ten days ago, that people thought this was going to be a land, landslide election. It doesn't feel that way now. And you know, I actually have had a weird experience. So, so, so time. this is what this is the point. Yeah. This is what you know. Pundits are never held accountable. Yeah, and this makes me generally. But yeah, know, and 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 be people, careful though you're you're hosting a radio show. Well, I know, but but <laughs> you're you're glossing past a really important point. Go for it. Yeah. Where where so many people I trust are saying to me, if you live in a swing state, then you have to make a decision. But nobody will go over the swing states with me and tell me. The swing states are very clear. It's it's Arizona, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Those are probably the core four with maybe North Carolina fifth um, at this point. Uh, Some states that were swing states a while ago seem to have pulled more in one direction or the other. Virginia seems relatively safely blue. Ohio would seem relatively safely Republican, which doesn't mean the Democrats won't win. But if the Democrats now win Ohio and Iowa, it'll be a a safe victory for Biden. That's how how this is just all poised in a very predictable way. And are you afraid of the, the Trump administration claiming victory when there is none? I'm afraid of the world right now, David, and I try to be brave in the face of it. And I go forward as, as you know, how I, dangerous this is the question. I, I, my I, point I, and my, the reason for that answer is that we go forward day by day by day. I didn't see this week happening. When have we ever had a massive level four hurricane completely blast into the Texas and Louisiana coast, hitting the largest oil refinery in the country, almost dead on. And it's what the fourth story in the country. I mean, that's the world we're living in right now. This This is is, the world we're living in. So when people say they're not voting for Joe Biden, and I'm not telling people what to do yet. Yeah, but you're a pundit, so. It's different now. (laughs) It is different. Do you agree that it is different now? It, it is different now. And that's There's why you're voting for Biden. Jim Earl is sitting in on this. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, of course it is. And But it's not. Look, my voting for Joe Biden over Donald Trump, you know, I can delineate the reasons why Trump has to lose. OK. And, um, you know, first of all, he is absolutely stoking the fires of American racism and race relations like no president has in our time. And there have been some crap ones in in my life already. Right. But this is to a greater degree. He is a global warming denier at a point where in a serious reversal of American policy and the deployment of American capital uh, has to take place. Okay, and it's inexcusable then, even if Biden is an unknowable and untrustworthy um, a player when it comes to uh, this kind of adjustment that needs to take place in terms of U.S. energy policy, right? Um, the fact that even an unknown is up against somebody who is a denier right there. If you are voting for the denier or you are not doing something to defeat the denier, you know, I don't even want to hear about it and have you any claim any moral high ground, okay? You're just saying burn, baby, burn. Let the planet burn, okay? If you are not going to do something to try to interfere with the re-election of Donald Trump. Now, you know, if you have any evidence to counter that in terms of Trump's uh, fossil fuel burning and pro-fossil fuel burning policies, um, let me see it. But I see zero evidence of it. So I I have very little tolerance for the people who aren't going to get involved in trying to defeat Donald Trump in terms of the presidency. And again, if you are someone who claims to believe in science and believe in rationality, on the issue of the climate emergency and all the attendant things like environmental racism, um, the need to rebuild, uh, you know, 
uh, middle class uh, jobs in the United States through a manufacturing base that can take place through the reworking of the energy system. Of course, all of those things. But simply put on climate emergency. So I'm not on video anymore. Oh, hang on, hang on. Jim, you're on. You just uh, bombed the, the conversation, which is fine because I was then of a thought and sort of trailing into nonsense. David, right. go ahead. Well, let's wrap this up because we're going to do our diabetes town hall. And you'll come back next week? I'll come back next week and take me up. And I'd be happy to talk to Jim and everybody and, and, and take it up with you. Yes. I'd love to come back next okay. week. Alan, too. Alan Minsky is the executive director of the PDA, Progressive Democrats for America, of America. And uh, enjoy, uh, enjoy the Republican convention. Tonight. I'll do my best. Yes. Thank you. Uh, nausea. Take care. Thank you. Well, it's time for Ask Henry. I should point out that before we start Ask Henry, we have a big, big pay-per-view Zoom event coming up tomorrow, Saturday, August 29th at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It is a COVID town hall. Oh, yes, we're, yes. we're calling it the COVID town squares. And it's at 9.30 Saturday. Tickets are $15. The irritable immunologist and Henry Huckamaki will answer all your questions. And we're only selling 100 seats, so it can be up close and personal. But we're doing something different today, Henry. Why don't you explain? And you, and you right. brought along a very special guest. That's right, David. So we discussed last week uh, for the Ask Henry segment segment to kind of mix things up instead of being Ask Henry every week. I was thinking maybe every other week we would do a Henry Asks segment and I would bring on different guests that I've been wanting you to bring on. Last week, Martha had the idea to bring a, a specialist in diabetes on or somebody that is a an educator of diabetes and i have martha previtt martha previtt runs diabet- diabetic fury and it talks about the problems people with diabetes in america have getting their insulin so go ahead that's right and uh martha had the great idea to have a diabetes segment and well my mom dr gina huckamaki is a certified diabetes educator in addition to being a retired pharmacist so welcome dr gina huckamaki thank you no thank yeah, long, you long time no see uh from all the way down the hallway <laughs> so uh, Gina, if I may ask about your background, can you tell me a little bit about why you would be qualified to speak on diabetes and a little bit about your uh, career background before we get into this? Well, initially I started off at Northern Michigan University getting a bachelor's in chemistry and math. And then I went to the University of Michigan and got my doctorate in pharmacy. And I was the first doctor of pharmacy in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. And so that makes me old, because now you have to have a doctorate in pharmacy in order to be a new pharmacist. Um, and then I also had done some training uh, for through LifeScan and Washington University to get a certified diabetes educator. I did the national exam and passed that. And so I was, um, my career, I started off in working as a consultant in a nursing home. 
and doing the pharmacy consulting for them, as well as starting an infusion company for the corporation that I was working for. Um, and so most primarily nursing home consulting and infusion is where I started. Then I went to retail when I had Henry to try to free up a little time. And after that, I ended up at the assistant pharmacist at the VA hospital in Iron Mountain, Michigan. Right. So uh, now that we want to talk a little bit about diabetes, and as you said, you're a certified diabetes educator. What is diabetes and how many people in the U.S. have diabetes or pre-diabetes? Diabetes is really an endocrine disorder that's primarily um, causing hyperglycemia or high glucose levels. But it's really not just a sugar problem. It's really a whole metabolism problem. So the processing of the foods or the energy sources that we take in, that's all messed up. We think of it as a sugar problem primarily because that's how it's diagnosed. So when they go to diagnose diabetes, what they're looking at is your blood glucose. And so that's how it's diagnosed. That's what's monitored. If you get a self-monitor, what they're testing is your your glucose levels. And that's what ultimately causes all the complications. So they're thinking of diabetes as a sugar problem. It's really an all-around metabolism problem. And the number of people I have it in the United States, it's extraordinary. There's like literally 100 million people that have been either diagnosed with diabetes, have pre-diabetes, or they're undiagnosed just because they haven't been tested. As you know, the medical care in our country, typically a lot of people can't seek care until they really have a problem. And so there's a whole host of people that are walking around with at least pre-diabetes, if not overt diabetes, but they don't even know it until they go in to try to find out some other con- you know some other condition they have blurred vision they're peeing all the time they just can't figure out what's wrong they have yeast infections all sorts of different complications but they never got just a simple test to indicate that they were diabetic so in reality we have probably in excess of 30 million that actually have full-blown diabetes in the u.s so that's, that's extraordinary. We have almost one in three Americans has either diabetes or pre-diabetes, whether diagnosed or undiagnosed, and about almost one in 10 Americans has full-blown diabetes and is having to suffer with the, the complications associated with that. So before we go into the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, you said that the main thing that people are noticing when they're diagnosing diabetes is high glucose in the blood. Why is there glucose in the blood? What does that do? And why does having too much of that cause a problem for us? Okay, we need glucose in our blood, but we need it in a very narrow range. So when you have too little glucose, your brain depends on having a certain amount of glucose. It can't function on any other energy sources. It really doesn't operate well on on proteins or fats. So we actually need a sugar supply, a constant rate of sugar that's feeding our brain. The problem is, so you need it at a certain level, but if you go just a little bit past that certain level, it's binding to the other proteins in our body and causing all the complications, the conditions of the disease itself. So there's this really super narrow 
window between too much and too little glucose that, that our body has to maintain on its own. And when it can't, that's when you have diabetes. So what, what's the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? And after you answer this, I'm going to bring Martha into the conversation as well then. So uh, type 1 versus type 2 diabetes is something that we hear about a lot, but perhaps people don't know the difference. Okay, so when you have type 1 diabetes, you literally have an absolute deficiency of insulin in your body. And you need insulin in order to bring the glucose levels, the too high glucose levels, back down into the normal range. So when you have type 1 diabetes... You don't have that. You cannot live without insulin. So when you have type 1 diabetes, we literally have to get insulin into your body. And the most common way would be injection. And and to interrupt for one second, what what would be something that would cause type 1 diabetes or increase your risk for type 1 diabetes? Well, there's several theories on this and there's several precipitating factors. Uh, one of them would be an autoimmune disorder. And that was the primary thought that your body actually is attacking itself as in other autoimmune disorders. For instance, I have MS. And when you have MS, your body attacks the nervous system. So it takes the myelin off the sheaths and puts holes in your brain. Well, when you have diabetes, what your body's doing is attacking the beta cells that make the insulin. And so it destroys the insulin-making capability of your body. So there's an autoimmune component to it. But that's not all. They found some other things that, that potentially could, could cause a problem. So, for instance, in 1983, they found in, in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, that there was an outbreak of a coccidia virus. When they had that outbreak, there was a spike in type 1 diabetes diagnosis. So... Is there some viral component to it? Are certain viruses actually increasing your risk of it? Then there's just localized um, increases in incidence over anywhere else in the world. In, in Finland, there's a 50 times higher chance of having type 1 diabetes than in China. What is it in the environment, particularly in Finland, that was increasing the risk of having type 1 diabetes? Native Americans, much higher risk than anybody else in the population in the United States. And there was actually a gene, like a conserved gene, they call it the thrift gene, that when they had periods of famine, you know, uh, initially, so they'd have feasts and then they'd have famine. The only way that their body could possibly survive during the famine was to develop this thrift gene that stored all of that energy, well, when we have the food sources that we have now and, and, and people tend to overeat, you don't need that thrift gene anymore. The only thing that thrift gene is going to do for you is initiate diabetes. So what about type 2 diabetes? Okay. The, the other one was heredity. Identical twins, they can see that they have a much higher incidence of developing uh, type 1 diabetes than if you, if you didn't have identical twins. So there's a hereditary component to it. As well. Now, type 2, completely different. You'd almost think of it as a different disease just based on what is happening. You don't have a complete deficiency or lack of producing insulin. You actually might have too much insulin, and your beta cells might be pumping out a ton of it. The problem there is resistance. Your body cannot use the insulin that's floating around to bring the glucose into the cells. And so you you have a really high uh, glucose bloodstream causing your disease, your dis- 
diabetes disease. And then, you know, the, the type 2 diabetes, there's a whole bunch of other risk factors. We know as you age, your pancreas poops out. When your pancreas poops out, those beta cells aren't making insulin like they used to. So the tendency is as you get older, the longer we're living, the higher chance that we're, we're everybody would develop type 2 diabetes if we lived till we were over 100 years old. What about old. obesity? Obesity, huge factor. Um, whereas in type 1 diabetes, that's not the usual diagnostic onset it's usually young and a lot of times very thin but type 2 diabetes 80 percent of people that have type 2 diabetes are obese and you know in our country 42 percent of our population is obese so we have an enormous amount 90 percent or yeah 90 percent of the people that are diagnosed with diabetes have type 2 diabetes and and 80 percent of those are obese so, Martha, I'm going to bring you into the into the conversation for a moment. Um, when we're thinking about diabetes, we're, we're, people that don't have diabetes are typically only thinking about the component of having too much sugar in the blood. But, of course, the complications with diabetes are much more significant to somebody that has diabetes than just simply having blood and uh, sugar in their blood. So would you like to talk about some of the complications that are uh increased risk for people that have diabetes? Oh, sure. There, um, there's heart disease. There's a uh, kidney disease. There's damage to all the vessels in the, in the body, the blood vessels. Um, so that um, includes all neuropathy. Um, you can have pain and burning in your extremities, in your hands, in your fingers. They go numb. Um, it, it clogged my arteries. Uh, I had coronary bypass uh, surgery three years ago. Um, I, this is actually my, my 36th anniversary, my diabetes anniversary. Um, this week, I was diagnosed 36 years ago. And um, um, like uh, uh, you were saying before, that it, it was an auto, for me, it was an autoimmune disease. I had no history of it whatsoever in my family. So when I was started to exhibit all the symptoms of of um, increased thirst, and I just dismissed it. My my mom and my dad, we nobody knew like why I was so thirsty. And I said, well, it's it's summertime. I'm hot, and I was young and active, and you know, it, it didn't think of anything of it. And and I I uh, I came down with a flu like virus and. Three weeks later, I, I was in the hospital with a blood sugar of like 700, and I, I nearly died. Uh, I was in diabetic ketoacidosis, where uh, your body uh, converts. And, um, well, you can probably explain that better, but it, uh, it, your body is deprived of insulin, and all the sugar builds up in your blood, and I think your cells try to almost eat themselves, and and in order to to get energy and um it and it builds up um ketones in the body and your your uh i can't really explain but your mouth tastes like acetone like nail polish remover and that was one of my biggest symptoms that you know and then i i couldn't keep anything down I, i everything i ate i ended up vomiting um i was extremely skinny and um, I, I, again, nearly died before they figured out why I, I what I had. And uh, when I was admitted to the hospital, I was 13 years old and um, it was really scary. 
And uh, the other things, uh, what else can it do to you? Um, you know, every day is, is a balance of, of eating the right things. Uh, sometimes if your blood sugar is high, you're going to be tired. You're going to be cranky or, you know, it can be low. It could make you tired or cranky. But it's, it's a balance of, of three things. And those are diet, insulin, and exercise. And if any one of those things is off, your, your whole day is off and it completely wrecks yourself. Um, you know, you could, you could have low blood sugar. If you take too much insulin, your blood sugar will go low. And then, you know, then you have to have sugar. And so people will be confused. Well, why are you eating sugar? You're, you're diabetic, you're diabetic. You're not supposed to be eating that, but you are. Um, I've had instances where I've passed out um, in public places and, and people confuse you with being drunk. Um, and that happened, happened to me and, and I was rushed to the hospital. And even the, even the doctors in the hospital, at, at, this is at Massachusetts General Hospital, uh, uh, thought I was drunk. I had low blood sugar. You know, I'm a type 1 diabetic Um and it, it's, a, it's a disease that you pretty much have to maintain yourself. Um, very few doctors that I've had in, in 36 years, you end up knowing more than the doctor knows about the disease you're, you have um, because they can only tell you what to do. Um, they don't really know that much about it other than that you need to take insulin but it, it's different for everyone. Everyone has different insulin requirements. They eat differently. They have different metabolism. They have, so there are so many variables that it's, it's a difficult disease to treat. And there now, there are so many different ways to treat it. Um, but basically it's, it's the same way. You have to inject insulin. Um, and insulin, as you know, is, is very expensive. Um, the disease is a is a money maker. It's 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 like Wall Street. It's too big to fail, and it's too big to cure. And they make so much money on now devices instead of curing the disease. They're making money with devices and test strips because it's not only just taking insulin. Um, you have to figure out how much insulin you need and how much insulin you require based on your blood sugar. So. That involves checking your blood either by finger sticks or if you're fortunate enough and you have good insurance or if you have the money to pay out of pocket, you'd have a continuous glucose monitor. So one of those things is, you know, thousands of dollars. So unless you have Medicare or unless you have really great insurance, as I said, you, you, you can't afford those things and you can't afford the best tools to take care of yourself. So what happens when you don't take good care of your blood sugars, then you're going to have increased risks of, of complications. And that includes, you know, blood vessel damage, um, damage to your arteries, damage to your, your heart, your, all of your organs in your body. Um, and, you know, eventually it, it will kill you. Uh, there are many people that have, you know, died of just complications of, of diabetes. And in addition to, you know, worrying about uh, going into a coma, if you take too much insulin or if you don't eat enough or if you exercise too much, it's, it's a lot. It's a, it's a devastating disease. It should have been cured many 
many years yeah. ago. Um, Martha, you bring up a good point of how despite the fact that nearly one in 10 Americans has diabetes and nearly one in three Americans either has diabetes or pre-diabetes, it seems like a lot of healthcare professionals are undereducated on what diabetes is, what kind of uh, complications arise from that, what things to look out for. So you also brought up the fact that there's a ton of drugs out there. So if I can swing the conversation over uh, on this point, Gina, why, why are there so many drugs that are available for treatment of diabetes and and why can't for example why can't insulin be taken orally why do we have to always have these injections with them so kind of a two-parter why are there so many treatments and why can't insulin be taken orally so insulin is the gold standard and when you have type 1 diabetes you have no other way to get insulin in your body and that is the hormone that you need to lower your blood sugar you have an absolute deficiency of insulin it needs to be in there you can't swallow it orally because it's a really delicate protein. And you know how acidic our stomach acid is? It would destroy that protein in a heartbeat. So they haven't been able to come up with an oral version. They had tried things like the inhaled version, you know, a nasal version. And as far as I know, they still have, they're not super effective doing it that way because the doses are so minute. And to be able to deliver it in an accurate formed by an inhaled version is difficult there's problems when people have asthma and that sort of thing so you have insulin that's the gold standard if you have type 1 diabetes that's it you have to have insulin if you have type 2 diabetes there's a lot of different options insulin is ultimately going to end up on your menu because eventually your beta cells are going to poop out enough that you end up almost being like your type 1 diabetes but there's a lot of other oral medications that can be used and some, some other injectable medications because we didn't go through the cascade of hormones that are involved. It's not just insulin. And there's a whole bunch of things like glucagon and glucagon like peptide and somatostatin and epinephrine and uh, anyway, so there's a whole bunch of other cascade of hormones that are involved in this process. So our options on treatment are things like drugs that may keep our liver from making glucose. Believe it or not, our body can make its own glucose from the storage form. So there's drugs that are aimed on stopping our body from making that excess glucose or dumping the storage form of glucose back into the bloodstream. There's ones that are based on the other hormones in our body that will help us, our body, manufacture either it looks like insulin or it works like insulin type of hormones that'll control the blood sugar as well. So there's a whole bunch of combinations of products that can be used in type two diabetes. And then, like I said, type two diabetes, you may ultimately end up on insulin as well. Now, what was part two of the question, Henry? You already got it. Why, why uh, insulin couldn't be in, uh, taken orally. So I guess, uh, Anybody that has questions, raise your hands. Uh, that's the warning. I'm going to ask one more question, and then we'll open it up for questions. Martha, if you have any questions as well, feel free to uh, get that ready. But last question for you, Gina. Why are we missing so many diabetics when we screen for them? As you said, we have 
100 million people in the United States alone that are either diabetic or pre-diabetic, but we only know a fraction of that. Most of those are undiagnosed. How is it possible that we have so many people with diabetes or pre-diabetes that are undiagnosed even sometimes after they go in for diabetes testing? Okay, so the first part would be that we, a lot of times, our, you know, our health system is reactionary in our country. We don't typically screen a lot, particularly when it's going to cost money. Okay, so we don't screen people up front until they have an actual problem. So what people go in for, they're, go, they're already going in with signs of diabetes before they're actually tested for their glucose levels to see where they're at. Um, they'll go in with things like I said, they're really thirsty and peeing all the time. I'm impotent. Um, I have all these infections. I don't, you know, I don't know what else is going on. I'm really tired. I'm very crabby. I feel like I'm hungry all the time, whatever it might be. But they aren't tested up front along a process because our healthcare system is reactionary. So that's one problem. The second problem is a lot of times if you are tested, you go in and you're fortunate enough to have an insurance where your doctor is trying to get you to do your, your routine health visit. They might test your sugar. But a lot of times what they're testing is your fasting blood sugar. Unfortunately, your pancreas it, it, it will still be making insulin and it, and it's able to produce it. You have to have 80% of the cells that make your insulin die off or be non-functional before they will recognize that your fasting level is going to be out of whack. So fasting level, just to clarify, that would be how, how they would do that many hours after you'd last eaten. So Correct. you wouldn't have that glucose from the food in your system anymore, right? Correct. So it would be... They would tell you to come in in the morning, get your blood drawn in the morning before you've eaten breakfast. Okay, but at that point, a lot of times people, their body is still able to catch up. But if they tested you two hours after you've eaten to see how high your blood sugar has actually gotten, if it's well above 140, then you probably have some impaired glucose tolerance going on. And so they would be able to diagnose you much better if they weren't just testing fasting, but they were actually testing after you've eaten, how high are you getting? The other thing that's a better marker is something called a glycosylated hemoglobin. And what that is, you've seen the HbA1c. What that is, I'll call it an average, but it's basically an average of what your sugars have been over the last three months. Glucose takes and binds onto proteins, and the one specific that we measure is the hemoglobin protein and how much of that sugar is stuck onto the hemoglobin. That percentage number is something that we could tell whether you're having a problem. If you're above 5.7 and you're not diabetic already, um, they would they should start looking. Why, why is it that high? Because when you get getting to your target goal when you have diabetes is less than 6.5, less than 7 per the ADA. And sometimes for elderly, they'll adjust it to less than eight. And the reason they do that is so that uh, you won't end up being hypoglycemic. So HbA1c would be a better marker and testing not only fasting, but testing post-meal would be a a better marker. David? Well, I have an idea if everybody's game for it. We have Dr. Gina Hakamaki and the doctor's good son, Henry Hakamaki. We also have Dr. Philip Hershenfeld here. 
and his son, Ethan Hershenfeld. Would the four of you want to... Might, parents? Well, it might be interesting to have Ethan take over the questioning now. And oh. we're talking about diabetes because we're, we're coming up. Tag team match. What are your thoughts, Henry? On I'm fine with that. Uh, Ma? Sure. Okay. But, uh, before, before we get to that, Martha, did you have anything that you wanted to, to ask before we get into the, the Ethan segment? Well, I'm not sure. Before we get to Martha, I think this might be interesting because it's two doctors and their sons. It's kind of, and I don't know where we're going to go with this yet, but go ahead, Henry. Ask Martha her question. Yeah, Martha, you got anything? Yes, I, I was wondering if, if, if you could also call me doctor. Uh, I have a doctorate, but it's, it's a Juris doctor. But since uh, Dr. Jill Biden can call herself a doctor, I like to be called Dr. Previtt. All right, Dr. Previtt, would you thank ask you. Dr. Huckamaki a question? <laughs> no, I'd like to thank you, though, for, for joining our Can we do this again tonight? Henry, can we do this again? I'm, I'm fine with whatever you want, David. It's your show. How about No, uh, no it's your show. Can we get Dr. Huckamaki back? Oh, sure. He just has to come down in the basement and tap me on the shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Walk. So, so yeah. let, let's do this. I don't know. I don't know where this is going to lead, but it is the dead of August. Let's try this. If everybody can stay, Ethan, you take over. But I would like till Henry and Dr. Gina, uh, if they can stick around and Martha. But why don't we have Ethan? take over the conversation briefly and conduct the interviews and, and bring your father into it. We're talking about diabetes and mm -hmm. health issues. And mm -hmm. I do think there is a psychological component to all this uh, because uh, there there is undiagnosed rage. Speaking of undiagnosed rage, I also think Congressman Alan Grayson is here. Are you here, Congressman <laughs> Alan Grayson? Yeah, my Zoom participant number is six four six three three. Oh no, no, no. We, we're live. Don't give out your number. number. Don't give out your number. Oh God! Oh, oh God! Did I mess up? Uh, no, I messed up today. Unmitigated rage that I. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'm just so impressed that you have almost half a million people on this call. It's incredible. Uh, how? So let Isn't me. That how that works? Yeah, hang on. Let me take a pause here. And, and just see if I can get everybody to stick around. It's the dead of August. I should be on a vacation. All of us should be on a vacation. Let me just talk to everybody. I'll be right back. You know what? I tried to organize this and I, we're rolling. So Congressman Alan Grayson joins us from Orlando. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. Yeah, the panelist, the wood panelist. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is a psychiatrist. Oh, perfect. perfect. <laughs> uh, his son, Ethan, joins us. His son, same last name. I'm sorry, same last name. Same last name. Ethan Hershenfeld is here. He is a, a, a comedian and an actor and a singer. We have Dr. Gina Hakamaki, who is has a doctorate, I believe, in... Pharmacy. Pharmacy. And her son, Henry Hakamaki, 
is fighting Ebola in Germany as an uh, immunobiologist, but he's not allowed back in Germany. And also with us is <laughs> Martha Previtt, who will now be talking. She's a lawyer who uh, runs Diabetic Fury, but will now be talking as Melania Trump to describe her. Uh, can you describe your diabetes as Melania Trump, please? Hello, Davey. I'm very sweet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, I'm full of sugar. <laughs> Why did you do that to the rose garden? <laughs> uh, ask, ask so Congressman uh, Melania. Why don't you ask uh, Congressman Alan Grayson what you ask everybody, Melania? Hello, hello, Congressman. Would you like me to show you my teeth? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to turn this over. If everybody's game, this is why Zoom is such a remarkable improvement over telephone conversations. I show you now. <laughs> Try doing that on your telephone. All right, I'm going to turn this over to Ethan Hershenfeld. Welcome. Welcome to Son of a Doctor. It's the game show where a doctor appears with an offspring. Beyond that, I don't know the rules. Let's turn it back over to you, David. No, no, no. What am I doing here? I'm moderating. Oh, I'm going to see if anyone has questions, and then I'm going to pose the questions. Well, yeah, I would like you to interview your father. A okay. little as a psychiatrist. He's a psychiatrist. Okay. And yeah. try to, uh, and since we have Congressman Alan Grayson here, yeah. maybe ask him some public health questions. Henry Huckamaki is very concerned with public health. And First of all, I want to congratulate the. Oh, sure. I feel like the ninth wheel here. No, no, it, we can do this. We can do I, this. I, I want to congratulate the Congressman on his, on his career choice, first of all, because if you're a person with a lot of rage, uh, this is, uh, as a congressperson, you could rage on behalf of the machine. You know, I just want to say that I, I feel like I'm listening to the reincarnation of Gary Owen. I am 62 <laughs> years old. Last night, I, I hate to admit this in a place where people are listening, but last night I was watching, to, I was listening to Laughing. Do you remember mm -hmm. Laughing? Very and interesting. Sound, yeah. Exactly, exactly. You sound like the announcer. You sound just like Gary Owen. Wow, oh, I got to look that guy up. That's amazing. It could be a reincarnation thing. I was born in '68. Yeah, could that they... guy pass on? Oh, uh, I don't know. Maybe he's still alive. I don't really know. I don't want to call somebody dead if they're not. That would be bad. He did pass okay. on. He did pass on. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, let's have a moment of silence. Friend of yours? Friend of yours? No, I just killed him. But the way of all comedians. Let's, There's a let's, fine line between humor and murder. <laughs> I killed him last night at the club. Yeah, that's right. All right, Ethan, go ahead. I want to talk about the. I want to talk about the uh, the idea of rage, Doctor Hershenfeld, and how it can be put to good use. The the constructive quality of rage, which maybe we're seeing on display in a transformative way uh, in Kenosha and elsewhere in our country right now. I want to say that. And then I want you to maybe you could uh, uh, address the congressperson and, and talk to him about uh, the use of rage from, from a seat of Yes, power. go ahead and dress the congressperson. For all you know, I'm sitting here naked. 
Address the congressperson. That's a very, no, I didn't say undress. I said address. <laughs> Jesus. That's so a we have game Malavia show. back on the phone? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I show you my yeah. teeth now? <laughs> All right, we are uh, all in this together. <laughs> okay, uh, yes. let's play. Let's do it as a speed Drift. round. Dr. Hirschville, rage, good or bad? Rage, by definition, is really hard to use in a constructive way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rage gets in the way, actually, for most people. So it's like turmeric in cooking. Ruins the whole thing. Assertive, good. Rageful, bad. If you're, what, what, the problem with most people is they confuse the two, and therefore they cannot be appropriately assertive because they're afraid it's rageful, and they keep their mouths shut. Right. When they should be saying something assertive. Which is where guns come in. That's a handy way to say something without you speaking. Can just put your headphones in. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, well, thank you. Thank you very You're much welcome. for that. I'm a terrible game show host. I have, say, I have something to say about diabetes if anybody's interested. Please do, but please pronounce it as diabetes, like the older people do. Or just call it the sugars. Before sugars. we give up on rage entirely, I want to point out how popular the rock band Rage Against the Machine was. How do you explain that? Yeah. yeah. People like it, but I just don't think it's effective. And anyway, that's just the name of an entertainment group. It's not... Um, it's not what you can use in real life. If you use rage in real life, the only effect you have is people say, oh, look how angry that guy is. They don't pay any attention but, to what you're saying. But that's just but the name saying. was not chosen at random. The name was not chosen at random. Rage against the machine yeah. is showing your humanity against an automation. That's okay. meaningful. It's a good concept, I agree, but, but I don't think it's an effective operating procedure. Um, I, I think um, we, we could draw a constructive distinction between you're saying uh, you're saying can't use the rage. You can feel the rage but you, and, and then you could use it. You just don't express it. Wouldn't you say that? Couldn't a protester uh, be fueled by rage, but put it to good use? Yes. OK, good. You win. That was correct. Ring the bell, David. Okay. And can you ask the congressman, before Mm -hmm. we go back to diabetes, Mm -hmm. can you use anger in in the House, in the in the well of the House, in the well of the Senate? Can you does it work? I rather not talk about that specific use of it in politics, but I do want to point out that. Uh, people on both sides of the political spectrum have employed rage in public speaking uh, to dramatic effect. If you if you um, just watch a Hitler speech and turn off the sound, um, you'll be amazed at, at how evocative it is in terms of rage. And then if you turn the sound back on, you realize that how much more 
The same thing is true, on the other hand. With Kimberly Garfield's speech. Yeah, go, go for right. It. Another 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 oh, good so, example. I'm sorry, Congressperson. The other thing you notice when you turn on the sound is that it's in German. <laughs> I, yes, I didn't want to mention that because I didn't want to offend any of David's uh, right wing Nazi followers. Um, but <laughs> that they, you know, David would tell you that they're good people too. Yes. Um, both David sides. would say that. Both yeah. sides. Both, both yeah. sides. Both sides. Yeah. Right. But, like like a slab of beef, both sides. <laughs> but, but but think about it. I mean, the, you know, the, both of them had uh, a dramatic ability to organize and, and to attract followers. I'm not saying that that's a good thing in Hitler's case. It's a very bad thing. But um, nevertheless, they both found that rage had its political use. Right. I do think that the Republicans have cornered the market on that. Let's say that from from the pulpit, they have hatred, they, rage, fear, yeah. for for sure. I mean, they're working. Their email, they're working. They're see. ringing that bell very yes. effectively. Yeah. So. Right. No, I mean that's that's all they've got, really. That I mean, you you listen to them in Congress for six years the way that I did, and you realize it's just ringing the same two or three chimes over and over again. Right, but it's extremely. Um, we will protect you from the brown people. Yeah. Is what it uh, seems to come down to. I think fear and rage, those are two sides of that same slab of dripping beef. And, and they both, <laughs> to mix metaphors, they both resonate. If you ring that, if you hit that note, they really resonate with people. And that's, I think that's, that's what they're working. It works very right. well. Right. No, actually, if you, if you turn on Fox News and you turn on the closed captioning, it just repeats over and over and over again. We will protect you from the brown people. We will protect you from the brown people. Right. Little known fact. Yeah. I, as I said, uh, uh, importantly, uh, this week, uh, on a social media post, the RNC's platform 2020 is some of my best friends are black. <laughs> That's sort of in a side note. Yes. Yeah, or so used to be before that. you, before they shot them. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so um, let's talk about the sugars for a second. So the, the older people in New York, when they want to say diabetes, they just call it the sugars. And he's got the sugar. My aunt Natalie has the sugars. Can we talk about that use of the plural? I, I, they really just mean the singular. I think you're mishearing it. They're saying that you're Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> that means you're from Michigan. It brings you back to Akamaki. Michigan. Yes, you'll notice how Mich- 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 people from Michigan insist that they're Michiganders because right. they don't want to be tarred with that brush. <laughs> talk about the psychosomatic origins of diabetes, or if you prefer not to, let's talk about the fact that the, the main psychological component of diabetes is the psychological phenomenon of really not being able to resist eating a piece of cake. <laughs> David, when, when have you changed the format of the show? I don't remember ever hearing the phrase before, if you prefer not to. <laughs> when, Let's talk about. You self- want to try to work that into your questions, David? <laughs> if you prefer not to. This is a master's class in how to host a show from both Henry and. It's Ethan. also all about consent. <laughs> it's about consent. I want the guest to consent to the question. Right. Lean Ultimately, back and think of England. We choose, we choose. We choose what we eat, and we choose when and how much we eat, and what we refuse to eat. And in those choices, do we not? 
Someone stop me. I'm going nowhere. No, go ahead. You're onto something. No, I was going to say. Is what I guess about I'm... cannibals? You're only referring to people who eat, not people who are Cannibals? Who are people who eat canned food? So what about, <laughs> yes, people who are eating. You're, you're not giving them any sort of equal time here. But you're on to something. You are on to something, which is my point that I was going to get to before. Thank you. Because I think it's a mistake to talk about the two different diabetes in the same breath. They're two different diseases. And certainly late onset, mature onset diabetes is not the same as juvenile onset. Juvenile onset is, as I understand it, an autoimmune disease. Sometimes start off by different things and people, and by the way, um, I know a bunch of people in their 80s these days with juvenile onset diabetes who've been able to take really good care of themselves. That's, the worst, Benjamin, that's the worst Benjamin Button scenario <laughs> in history. That's the only thing getting younger about that, with diabetes. David, your senility, David, your senility was that. Early onset, or was that mature onset? <laughs> By the way, I thought that late onset diabetes means it happens after dinner. <laughs> it does happen after dinner, exactly. But, but your point is that for many, many of the late onset diabetes, the best treatment is to lose weight and to exercise. And I've helped a number of people over the years do that. And guess what? It goes away unless yeah, but you're I know that your weight loss technique involves amputation, which what, what was that again? I said his weight. If loss you lose weight, it goes away. That's what I heard. You if can you cure diabetes by losing weight or switching to a plant based diet for many people. Yes. Yeah. And, and really up their exercise. So they're, they're, they're two different diseases. You know, if one person cures their diabetes and then the next person cures it and so on and so on down the line, you know what that's called? The domino effect. Domino sugar, sugar effect. That's a sugar joke. There's Thank no you. cure. Yeah. If I can interrupt, there's no cure for a type 1 diabetes. Right. And, and by the way, I don't think that, there, that that's because there is some industrial medical cabal that doesn't want to cure it. The people, the researchers in medicine are not dollar driven. They're getting a relatively small salary. They don't get anything from the treatment of the disease. And they're driven by other things than I want to get rich and therefore let's not cure this. That's a controversial statement, Dr. Hershenfeld. Not to me, it isn't. <laughs> Congressman, you want to respond to that? Uh, am I still here? Yes. I, I'm sorry. Oh, Ethan, I, I, I'm still here? Yes. I didn't realize that. Okay, what I wanted to ask <laughs> is, what did the one diabetic say to the other? <laughs> You're not my type. <laughs> That was a short date. Anyway, go on. <laughs> Dr. Hershenfeld. What? You're, you're saying that I'm not challenging you. Go ahead and challenge I, me. I'm hoping Congressman Grayson will jump in here 
and uh, question. Do you think the Do you think the medical community or the scientific community is working purely out of intellectual curiosity and the goodness of their heart, or yeah, that plus the Nobel prizes, basically, right? And they want to be successful like anybody else. And if you measure success in dollars, you do not go into medical research. You become a plastic surgeon. All right. Can, can I say it's something? an interesting phenomenon? It you know the, there is a sort of a professional ethic. It, it's true. There's a professional ethic in science that's beautiful in its own way. There's also a similar professional ethic among lawyers. But look how that gets twisted and perverted. Um, I, I think I think that it is true that most science scientists do science for love of science. So that's a beautiful thing. Um, can we have a, a comment from from Jim Earl? Emmy yes, and Peabody. Man. You got to say Emmy and Peabody award winning Jim Earl. And, oh, and I did that all for profit, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Look, Please, you know, Mr. Earl, Dr. Earl. In over 100 years, the treatment has not changed in one bit. It's still injecting insulin and testing blood and urine. That's it. And you're telling me that I, I'm going to use this old cliche that we can go to the moon. 40, 50 years ago and spend that much money on that and $5 trillion in the last five months on Wall Street, but we can't fucking come up with another treatment, uh, any any kind of breakthrough stem cells, stem cell research or anything with type one diabetes. That's utter horseshit. The amount of money that's made off of this disease is abominable. And there's one reason and one reason only for that greed. And and I'm not talking about researchers at universities. That's different. This is this is the industry. This is Eli Lilly. It's Sano Sanofi. It's it's all the big drug drug makers. It's not. They won't make money like they do. Novo Nordisk. Another. Yeah, I agree with that proposition. Eli Lilly has no interest so. in doing that. But it, 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 the best thing you could do for many diseases is better education. And hardly any money is put into that. May I ask a question to uh, please, Dr. Please. Gina Hakamaki and the congressman? and to Dr. Hershenfeld and Henry. And that is, I agree with everything Jim Earl says, that it is greed. But there are Western countries that aren't as greedy as America that really do have the best interests of their citizens in mind. Why are we not seeing Germany, France, Canada coming up with cures for diabetes sweden sweden yeah but why does that not happen is it because perhaps insulin does a pretty good job we just need to make insulin cheaper in this country the the level of research that goes on in america is enormously greater than the level of research that goes on in the rest of the world combined we're talking about medical research the, the the NIH's research budget is $40 billion a year. That's larger than all drug companies combined. 
and that's by far larger than the corresponding agency budgets everywhere else in the world. So I think the answer is that this is one of those things that actually does make America different. The fact that we are willing and able to invest $40 billion a year into health research. And if it's not going to get done here, then it's probably not going to get done anywhere. I'm going to butt in there for a second. So the congressman's absolutely right that the U.S. spends an incredible amount on medical research. But here is where the U.S. differs from a lot of other countries. We have an incredible amount of public funding for medical research. But what happens once that public funding is done? So research institutions like the NIH are at universities, which is where a lot of the basic research is done. The legwork is done there. All of the initial discoveries and the initial tests that are done to see how effective different compo- uh, compounds are for treating diseases are done on public funding. But what happens then is the research that's done initially with the public funding is then sold off to private pharmaceutical companies to develop the drugs and then sell the drugs to the public and at incredible profits. I mean, just look at the, the salaries that we have of CEOs of pharmaceutical companies. It's obscene. So the congressman's right. We, the U.S., spends much, much more on medical research publicly than basically every other country in the world. But the thing about it is, is that it's spent on the early stages of the research and the research, the the fruits of the research are then farmed out to for-profit private pharmaceutical companies. And those pharmaceutical companies then turn around and profit off of the people whose investment via taxes was what funded the research to begin with and the publicly funded institutions. And before the congressman, before the congressman or Dr. Hakamaki responds, I just want to warn, I just want to warn Congressman Grayson that Henry Hakamaki is my future son-in-law, not yours. Okay. I just want to warn you that I've got four minutes left, but maybe that's, warn warn isn't the right word to use. I I want I want to I want to tip you off to the delightful fact that I now have three minutes. Oh, to, this was oh, this was <clears throat> this. OK, resp- I, you know, it, in, in a weird way, um, the health research this is a very strange thing to say, but I think it's, it's valid. Health research is one of the few actually functioning parts of the U.S. economy. Um, and that's because it generates enormous amounts of private wealth. Uh, but it actually does get done. And the, the things that end up getting researched uh, are, are remarkably abstruse uh, in the pursuit of, of, of profit, of, of the, the only legal monopoly that, that one can really have in this country, which is a patent. There's no other legally protected monopoly in this country. So, so it, it does really attract enormous amounts of resources, enormous amounts of talent. My wife is a medical researcher. Um, and and um, it, it, it is more good than bad if you can live with the fact that it's driven by the almighty dollar. Um, I tend to think that the reason why we don't have a better treatment for diabetes is that it's, it's probably a difficult scientific problem. I don't see any effective way that drug companies could put a Bosch on what would be an effective treatment. But, you know, some medical problems are more difficult than others. Uh, 1985... I founded the Alliance for Aging Research, and we generated a 600% increase 
in funding for research on the causes and potential cures of aging. And the results of that after so many decades are very slim. Uh, 35 years later, we still don't have an effective uh, treatment for aging, which underlies cancer, which underlies heart disease, which underlies stroke. It even underlies the death from accidents. Uh, and that, you know, some problems are more difficult than others. I don't expect that anybody's going to understand the human brain in my life. I don't understand. I don't expect that anybody's going to solve aging despite my own best efforts over the course of two decades. Um, that's the way it goes. You do what you do and you line up, uh, your place in the course of history and keep your fingers crossed. Um, but, um, my time's up. Thank you, Congressman Alan Grayson. Uh, for, thank you for accommodating what is uh, a bit of a crazy day. It's an, it truly is an honor to have Congressman Alan Grayson on the show. Thank you. What do you mean have me? You don't have me. You don't own me, David. Well, my hey, God, such a kiss ass. I can't there believe he goes this. raging against the machine. Again, <laughs> this, he, this is the man who <laughs> Congressman Grayson. Go have yourself, David. Go have, go have yourself. By the way, uh, Grayson, let me just point this out. I'm, uh, I also grew up in the Bronx. I saw you're, you're from the Bronx and Bronx Science. Yeah, my true. brother went to that school. Bronx oh, Science. my God. Well, so we share that. That was such an amazing. I mean, that's where I learned to love science. I, you know, I, I when I was in Congress, I was on the science committee and loved every moment of it. As I as a New York Times reporter once told me who covered science, in the New York Times said, there's one great thing about science. It's all good news. Well, that's good. It's like the gospel. Is there an AV right. squad committee in Congress? <laughs> I'll tell you, the Republicans on the science committee thought it was the religion committee. Ah, you know, they, they, they had a whole different approach to the concept of science. Congressman, but, Congressman, but science is a wonderful place. Yes. Sorry, Congressman, I wanted to point out one other thing in your hunt for, uh, a cure to aging. I don't know if you're aware of this. There's an entire aisle at CVS of anti-aging creams. Just open your eyes. You don't know whether I'm actually bathing in those creams right now or not. You can't tell. It'll it'll be something you'll be thinking about late tonight. I can guarantee you that. Your last right. thought before you go to sleep was. Was Alan actually in a bathtub full of those creams when he signed off? Well, you won't be able to stop thinking about it no matter what you do. I already can't. I think they, I think they already you, found it. Thank you, Congressman. They already found a Thank cure you. for aging. It's, it's called death. Okay. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. David, you found the cure for boredom. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thanks. This was uh, okay. uh, That thank you all. We can keep going if you're up for it. I I, it's a. I want to make a comment. Yes, please. please. But Uh, now, now I think Ethan and Henry should run the show, and I'll lay back. Henry, please. Yeah. So the comment I was going to make was, the congressman said that they spent all of this money looking for a cure for aging, and that's true. There was a lot of research that was done in aging studies. What we did discover with that research was 
some of the things that cause the ill effects of aging, the things that cause you to become wrinkly, the things that cause your blood vessels to not work as well, the thing, you know, less elasticity, the things that cause your body to break down over time. That's what that research was finding in the publicly funded institutions. We know that a lot of that is because of telomeres and epigenetics, those things that change over the course of your life. Telomeres are the things that are on the ends of your DNA and they get worn down over time. And those things actually protect your DNA from the uh, uh, environment that they're in, in your body, essentially. And over the course of your life, those telomeres get worn down and the wearing down is actually what is causing a lot of the ill effects of aging. We know that because of the publicly funded uh, research that was done. We also know that there are activities that you can partake in that slow down the wearing down of your telomeres, things like not uh, over-consuming alcohol, things like not eating a lot of sugars and fats, things like exercising a lot. These age-old adages of live a healthy life will make you seem younger when you're older actually have a scientific basis in them. The healthier you live your lifestyle, the longer your telomeres last, and the longer your telomeres last, the less ill effects of aging you have. Now, the thing that we haven't found is a biomolecular treatment for keeping those telomeres intact for a long period of time. So to say that we spent a lot of money in the public sphere on trying to find a cure for aging and that that was fruitless, that's simply not true. The public research found the entire reason, well, at least a large part of the reason, why the aging process has an ill effect on our bodies to begin with. What we haven't found, and this is something where the for-profit institutions would pick it up as soon as there was an inkling of something that would be out there to do it, is some sort of chemical biomolecular treatment that they could put into people to keep their telomeres intact. It's, uh, I want to uh, just uh, hop on that. A lot of men uh, actually think their telomeres are longer than they are. <laughs> and <laughs> and they're flagellum. <laughs> that happens. No, um, just whatever length your telomere is, that's fine. That's what people really <laughs> need to know here. It's something to be ashamed of. It's natural. That's how mm-hmm. biology works. Different people have different length telomeres. Um, as long as they work to protect and the, there's the things DNA. you can do to stretch them ethan and sometimes Absolutely. that helps and sometimes yeah. it doesn't but but you don't want to pull on them too much <laughs> all no. right all right all right come okay. on no, come stop. on henry's no. I, henry's mother want, is here and your father is here hey david this is science <laughs> no, what i wanted to say is actually all joking aside I have been doing intermittent fasting for a number of years. And I, one of the reasons I do it. So I take a long break at night between, you know, when I finish eating till the next morning, because I heard it helps to repair the telomere length. It actually, it's good for the telomeres and for your, uh, it's anti-aging. Now are the telomeres, are they damaged uh, through persecution, through trauma? And I'm being serious. And then is that passed on to subsequent generations? There is some research that stress affects them, yes. Yeah, David, you remember I talked, uh, was it last week or the week before, about epigenetic inheritance and how stressful events over the course of your life can have lasting effects on the expression of your DNA in the protein products that come out of it because of methylation and acetylation and things like that that can happen to your DNA. You're, you're right. Stressful events over the course of your life uh, can, can cause ill effects to our DNA. We wouldn't have known that a long time ago, but it's true. Uh, if I may, Dr. Gina Huckamaki and Dr. Philip Hershenfeld 
have both produced two of uh, the greatest children in the world. Yes. Okay. Let's let's debate on parenting <laughs> skills here. I like uh, Dr. Hakamaki's background. Is that the University of Michigan? What stadium is that? Yeah, that's the University of Michigan. That's right. Oh, amazing. Look at that. Wow. What, maybe we can have a, a, an argument about parenting, like what makes the best kid? Because both Dr. Hershenfeld and Dr. Hakamaki have turned out amazing children. Dr. Hakamaki. I'm sorry? <laughs> All those beatings worked on Henry, I guess. Beating. Oh, <laughs> oh, so I was a good parent. <laughs> oh, you're joking. Oh, you're joking. <laughs> Oops. What is the? Let me ask you, Dr. Hakamaki. Hakamaki, uh, why is Henry such a uh, going to make such a great son-in-law for me? What 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 is it about him? What did you do? Because he really is perfect. So what I, what did you? I didn't do anything. Um, Henry was born this way, but we did have one. I, I told you that I was a nursing home consultant, and literally from when he was days old. I would take him in his little baby carrier with me to the nursing home and all the old folks would see while I was mm-hmm. reviewing their charts and doing their health reviews, the little the little baby in the bassinet being carried around. So my grandmother was in one of the nursing homes that I was doing the consulting for. So he grew up around older people and um, his his grandmother watched him when I was at work as well. And then my parents would stay with us in our home from when he was six years old for three or four months of the year. So we had not your centrist, centrist kind of a family organization, but we had older people that were living with us through periods of the year or that he was just exposed to them. And Which explains why I look about 50 years older than I am. <laughs> they, they just rubbed off on me. I, I took a few of their wrinkles along the way. His his babysitter, when... when um, he started kindergarten, and she would come to the house from across the street. She asked him when he got onto the bus one day, Henry, you're going, you're going to school. What are you going to do? And with his little Elmo lunchbox, he said, I'm going to get my master's degree. That was in kindergarten. He said, I'm going to get my master's degree? Yes. And so right from when he was little, he just he had an older person's personality, and he always wanted to be around like the older adults, when we would hang out, the, the, all the little kids are running around, and Henry would stay and converse with the older people, not the not the little kids. So he still does. <laughs> well, let me ask Doctor Philip Hershenfeld. Yeah. You are a psychiatrist. Uh, would you like to respond to Doctor uh, Gina Hakamaki uh, and and her re- her reasons for why Henry is a better son than Ethan is? <laughs> would you like to no, would you like to address well, he took me to work also and he worked in a mental hospital that's <laughs> put, the, put the bassinet down and then I'll be back in eight hours and so you do the math. I remember you were getting on the bus and you go to go to school and you said I'm going to get medicated <laughs> Dr. Hershenfeld. Daddy, it's cold out. Where's my straight jacket? <laughs> Would you like to respond to what Dr. Hakamaki said? 
I would say that there are many, many, many roads that lead to Rome and that you find good, intelligent, feeling, productive people who have had a million different kinds of backgrounds. And, and, I, and I don't think you can just say this is the way to do it. You should try not to overly traumatize the child. You should try not to overly coddle the child. Um, I mean, there's some general guidelines like that. I would say, uh, that notwithstanding what you just said, can you hear me, by the way? Yes, we can. You can if you could speak up a little. Speak okay. up a little. I know you're shy yeah. around your phone. Yeah, um, it's past my bedtime. But <laughs> I, um, no, I do think, though, uh, I'm not disagreeing with you, Dr. Hershenfeld, but I want to say that <laughs> Dr. Dr. Hakamaki's approach of taking the child to, to an old age home, if, you, if we can call it that, is, is, is deep and insightful because what you really want to instill in the baby and the toddler is uh, an, a, a very early sense of their own mortality. <laughs> That's really, really important. Like, just to let them know, this is, I hope you're, en- you're enjoying your life. It, it's, it's over in a flash. That's what will happen. <laughs> and you know what else that helps with Ethan? When you're a little, little baby being in an assisted care facility, it, lets you know that you don't have to feel down about being incontinent. It's not just you. Very oh, good. Yeah. And the teeth. teeth. <laughs> right. Who needs teeth? So well, like uh, let me ask Ethan a question. Please. What did your father do right? Because obviously he did a lot right. What, what, what would you say he did right? Oh, well, he, I, I'd say both my parents um, were very... Uh, enthusiastic about whatever nonsense I was getting into mm. or well, you know, it's interesting, Dr. Hershenfeld. He says both my parents, like he brings the mother into this when I was talking about the father. Interesting. Go ahead. Very fair guy. Very you know, white. Fair guy. He said fair guy. No, my point is that to show yeah, it's that same. It gets back to the thing you've mentioned a few times, the parent who sits and watches the person practice. And then the kid gets really good at the, at the, at whatever what did your father what, came, if you had to name one thing that your father did right we shot we shot a lot of hoops together i was always in the backyard shooting hoops and we did it together we would play one-on-one we would play horse you know he would get enthusiastic about what i was enthusiastic about that's i think that's critical quantity time over quality time oh um no 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 so it's both yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but yeah, and a genuine enthusiasm for the activity of the offspring. Okay. I would say that's critical. And Henry, what would you say Dr. Philip Hershenfeld did right with you? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've been listening to him for how long he's been on the show. And, uh, you know, I've learned a lot from him. And uh, I don't know how that helped me with my upbringing, but it's helping me now. So I guess that's something. Well, you know what I've noticed? I I sense just through these Zoom meetings that your father has a genuine appreciation of you, an enjoyment of you. And I'm just I read your face, Dr. Hershenfeld, 
when Ethan says something smart or funny and you you're you appreciate him. Like Not, Kvel. I, I'm sorry, I don't speak Latin. What is Kvel? These medical terms that you guys use in science. You know, Kvel, it's interesting because Kvel in Yiddish is like the gushing of a, of a parent over a child. But the word in German, a Kvelle, is just a, a spring, like a source of water. A Kvelle. So that's what it is. It's, it's springing forth with uh, enthusiasm. But David, your point is really, it's, it's the flip side of what I was saying. Enthusiasm for what the other person is, enjoyment. So I would say that that's the, that's the, the, magic, the, the magic sauce. I don't know. Yeah, do I, 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 I don't care. Your, your sound is all screwy. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Well, I was simply saying that enthusiasm, appreciation for the kids, uh, genuine enjoyment, all of that is uh, right. critical. And Henry, Henry Huckamaki. Go ahead, well, Dr. Hirschenfeld. Yes. The kid's individuality as a person. But he's not there to fulfill something uh, in you. He's not there to accomplish the things that you wish you had accomplished in life. Yes, for example. Right. He's a different person with his own interests. And that is a pathology in many parents, right? It sure is. Yeah. I want my kid to do better than I did. And what does that mean? They always say now in America... You know, uh, the great thing about this country used to be that the kids would always do better than their parents. But nobody defines what that means. What they mean is money. Right. That 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 is. We need to come to terms with what it means to do better than than our parents. Henry Hakamaki. Yes, David. You and your mother are here what what did your mother what do you what do you think she did right oh she did a lot right but uh i'm gonna take one second to address um what you just said about the new generations doing better than the previous generations historically in terms of economics that was true but for the last couple generations it hasn't been and the one other thing to note is that when you're economically stressed, it affects a lot of other parts of your life, which is why depression rates these days are way higher than historically they've been. Even if you don't look directly at economic societally, we're a lot more depressed than we were in the past. And that's because by and large, people are economically struggling. So you're right. What, what do we mean when we define uh, doing better than your parents? But the answer is that these things are all interconnected and that when there's these major aspects of your life that you're doing worse and it's going to cascade into other parts of your life and you're, you're just going to be worse off in most things, which is what the current young generations are right. facing these days. Right. But if I may, to- if I may, uh, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, you are a psychiatrist. Is that correct? I think we established that. Right. And Ethan, you are the son of a psychiatrist. Is that correct? That's right. And uh, actor, comedian. Right. And, and, and is, uh, your, is your father a Freud apologist? Is that fair to say? Uh, I would say for sure, yeah. All right. So, Ethan, I'm going to ask you, how would you diagnose somebody who, when asked, what did your mother do right when it came to raising you, how would you diagnose that person 
refusing to answer that question. Oh, oh I was going to get there, David. No, 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 no. What, what do you, he didn't really, what, what is the term for that when, when they don't answer the question? Um, the, the, the diagnosis congressperson. Kellyanne <laughs> <laughs> Conway, spin doctor. She's a future spin doctor. Dr. Hershenfeld, I asked the, the, the the young man a simple question what did your mother do right and he do, is it deflection is that what it would be called it would take many years of getting to know that young person <laughs> in order to answer that question <laughs> because it's not self-evident all right henry Yes. Will so you answer, answer the question? Yes, I will answer the answer question. Answer the committee. David, I, what did your mother so to get do? Back right. To the point of economic depression that we're facing these days. Yes. No, uh, in all seriousness, <laughs> my mom did a lot right when yes, she, did. she was raising me. And I think one of the most important things is to uh, not be just a consumer within the household, but to encourage us to be active participants within the household. So, uh, it's little things like cooking, for example. I've been cooking for how many years, Ma? And to try to help out in the house, I have three younger siblings, so it's a fairly large household. And the idea here is that if you're just a consumer within the household, once you're out of the whole household, you still see society from a consumerist lens. Whereas if you see your family as a cooperative structure where everybody tries to do their part, and is brought up in a way that they understand that you contribute to the family. When you contribute to the family, everybody's better off. Once you're out of the household, you have a much more cooperative outlook on society. And that's something that for me has really been beneficial. And I didn't even realize that this was what my upbringing was like until Dr. Harriet Fraud mentioned it in one of her podcasts. And my mom and I were both like, ah, there it is. That's exactly what we had. So that was a big, big aspect that, was really fundamental in my upbringing is the fact that we were a cooperative family and not the children being consumers of what the parents were able to provide. That was, that was absolutely massive. And then as my mom said, having experiences with different people at different cohorts, older people, uh, people that live down the street, being in contact with different kinds of people to the extent that we could in an incredibly white town, um, a town that had no diversity that I grew up in. Uh, but having that still the demographic difference, in, at least in terms of age, was really foundational in terms of my upbringing as well. So those two things were really big. And then, of course, uh, as Ethan and Dr. Hirschenfeld had mentioned, my mom was really involved with all of my activities and very supportive of everything that I wanted to do, uh, always encouraging me to do my best and to try different things. And that really allowed me to have the confidence to go out and try different things that I didn't know if I would be a success at or not. And there was a lot of the things that I was a miserable failure at. And there was a lot of things that surprised me how decent I was at them. And without her support, I wouldn't have even tried. So uh, thanks, mom. That was great. And I would imagine that the other thing you got from that upbringing, which a lot of kids don't because they live a life of being the consumer is you learn the pleasure in doing things, in learning how to do things. And things don't become a burden. Oh, I'll clean the kitchen. That's a nice project. When I'm finished with it, everything's going to be clean. That's an invaluable gift. Dr. Yeah, Hershey. 
Sorry, David, you can go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that when you have that also that cooperative upbringing, you're right that the people just do these tasks out of the sense of we should do these tasks to make things easier on everybody else around us. But the one thing that also helps out is that when you do those things, if somebody was brought up in a cooperative household, they're not always going to be seeking praise for the little things that they're doing, you know, washing dishes for three minutes and then saying, hey, hey, look, 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 I washed the dishes. I washed the dishes. We get it. You washed the dishes. Thank you. I was doing stuff for the last two hours. It's nice of you, but I didn't really need to hear it. If you're raised in a cooperative household, people just understand innately that this is what you do. This is what makes the house enjoyable to live in. This is what makes you get along with people in the house. And this is what makes your life not quite as difficult as it would be otherwise. Okay. I tried explaining that very lesson to our butler year after year. <laughs> and the guy, I mean, just, hello, nothing upstairs. Uh-huh. Well, I wanted to ask Dr. Hershenfeld, and I, I'm going to ask Dr. Hukamaki this question. Ethan today, vis-a-vis Ethan when he was 10, 13, what has surprised you about Ethan? What, what, what surprises you most about Ethan? His change in career plans. When he was 10, if he said, what are you going to be? He'd say, I'm going to be a basketball player and a dentist. (laughs) He became neither. Because he enjoyed the drills. (laughs) There you go. Nice. Uh, So what surprises you is his career path. His multi-talents. And um, And let me say this. What surprises me about Dr. Hirschenfeld is, again, we're we're into decade five or six here. He's still a psychiatrist. It's just like this thing. Come on. Aren't you going to do another gig? What's what's the plan? What's the plan? Okay. And Dr. Hakamaki, what has surprised you about Henry? I guess it, it wouldn't be a surprise, but the consumption and the absorption of the differing types of material, I I always think, I don't think I could ever stump him in any question of any kind. I don't care if it's something about football, which you, I mean, not soccer football, NFL football. I could ask him something about NFL football to some microbiology thing, to some political thing, it doesn't matter what the subject is. He's interested in it all, and he reads it all and absorbs it all and is able to... I I think that's why my older friends like to be around Henry as much as he would like to be around them because he could talk about any subject. You could ask him anything, and he'd be able to have an intelligent conversation about some aspect of it. So... He's interesting to everybody because uh, you, whatever interests you, making knives. I mean, there's just, it doesn't matter what the subject is. He would be able to participate intelligently in the conversation and make you feel like that's what he's been working on his whole life. Though I will mention that my knowledge of the NFL is about six years outdated because <laughs> I haven't watched a football, American football game in about six years. I only watch soccer these days, which is why she brought up the NFL thing. That would be a bit more surprising for me to know something about the soccer, which I wrote articles and stuff about. Well, I, 
David, I have to appear now at the Republican convention. <laughs> I'm introducing Trump. So this has been fun. I've enjoyed talking Thank to you. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Enough. Thank I'll, you so much, Doctor. And Melania, I'll I'll give him your best. <laughs> well, she has a question before you go, Melania. Melania Trump, uh, we have a uh, a psychiatrist here. Is there any question you would like to ask before he leaves us? Oh, I see, Davey. You only want to talk to Melania. Yeah, Melania, do you have a question? <laughs> and now I... No, I'm all done, David. Oh, you're not going to you. say, do you want to see my... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> all right. Good night, all. Good night. Good night, Good night everyone. You. Take care, doctor. Thank you. Bye, doc. Now playing the role of Ethan's father is Martha Pravis. Uh, David, I'm going to thank you, and I'm going to um, salute you. Okay, we'll wrap and, it up. Uh, no, no, I'm. Uh, oh, do you, do you want me to continue my? Uh, oh, I thought you were begging out. We, we should probably. Yeah. Yeah, we we should finish this up. Okay, I'm I'm going to say good night, y'all, doctor, okay. doctor, doctor. <laughs> I want to say something though before. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I I, I just I just want to make a note that. Diabetes isn't something to be joked about. I know it is a comedy podcast, but people are dying because they can't afford their insulin. And it's a very serious disease. And it's a disease that people, you know, they think it's funny because, you know, heavy people get it or people that are overweight. But, you know, it's pretty devastating when you have it and you're, you're 50 years old and all your arteries are clogged or, you know, you lose your sight. Or, you know, you lose a limb. I've been to the, the, the doctor where uh, um, I've seen people in the waiting room without, without their feet and without their legs. And I don't think there's any other disease that people joke about more than, than diabetes. And I don't think they joke about cancer or heart disease or anything like that. And it's a devastating and it's a very de- depression is another thing that goes alongside with diabetes. It's a depressing disease because when you live with it, uh, you, sometimes, you, you know, you, you can't af- afford it. You, it's, it's, a, it's overwhelming. And I just don't uh, appreciate having uh, been on this podcast and, and hearing all these jokes about diabetes. And that's all I have to say. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, I, I hope... Uh, I hope that people will understand it's 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 nothing to be joked about. And and neither is the you know, the people are dying because they can't afford insulin. Right. And uh, Uh, let me just personally say, I'm sorry if my jokes were offensive. I was trying to keep it light, but I I do acknowledge and understand how serious the disease is. So I apologize. And and I and I would also like to apologize for Ethan's jokes. <laughs> no, uh, no I, I, I'm sorry. I, okay, I, I was only answering things in an educational way. I would never joke about diabetes. That was my training as a diabetic educator. I would never joke about diabetes. Right. It, that's an interesting, it's interesting. Uh, sorry, Martha. It is. It is Thanks. Very, I know I'm very sensitive about this and, right. you know, maybe Ethan's father could explain why, but it's, 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 it's a very, it's a serious disease and it kills a lot of people. 
and a lot of people have it and it's nothing to be joked about and i don't know that's why i started my diabetic fury page because i i went as soon as i got on twitter all i saw was jokes about people with diabetes and wilford brimley and i just got so frustrated because it's a serious disease and it it, it, it kills people and a lot of people there's so much miseducation about diabetes people just think oh well you can't eat sugar but they don't have any idea how complex a disease this is and how many people it kills every year and how many other health problems that type 1 diabetes contributes to and you know i'm i'm sorry i i got out no, of hand you're, you're absolutely right <laughs> and uh, but people don't joke about cancer. I mean, people don't well, joke about brain tumors. People you, don't joke about you kidney disease. You haven't heard my album. <laughs> well. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, no jokes. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. And I wasn't well, aware. I mean, there are a lot of things that I wasn't aware. Like, I didn't know that people joked about this. So, I mean, Jim? We can't joke about Baron fucking Trump. But we can joke about diabetes. Right. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. And again, right. I'm sorry if it was offensive. And we're, that's thunder, what you hear in the background. Divine retribution. Yeah. Good night, everyone. Thank you, Ethan. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks. Thank right. you, Martha. Thank you, Henry Hakamaki. And thank you, Dr. Gina. Hakamaki. This was, I hope you all come back and uh, we will not make jokes. Okay. Thank you. time to take some questions. Let's go to Tom in Portland. 
Hello, Tom. Hi, David. Hey, I, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were recording for the show or just wrapping up a question. I feel really bad here. And Martha, if, if anything, if feelings were hurt because of stuff that went on in the chat room, um, I want to apologize for the whole chat room. <laughs> Oh, no, don't worry. I haven't even looked at the chat room. And don't. That's more fun than anything. <laughs> right, but I mean, I, David, I felt like it was important to ask that question because I have seen during your recordings occasions where your guest was seriously put off their game by, you know, word games in the chat room or whatever. And uh, just wanted to point that out to the regulars to maybe be aware of that if you see a <laughs> Not Martha's a regular, but a new guest to our show. Let, let's make sure that a straight comment in the chat room doesn't make a guest like hang up on the Zoom call and leave right away, you know, which, which could happen. But for the most part, it's a very polite chat room and it's right. mostly just fun and games. Right. It, listen, yeah, I'm it's- glad, Martha, that we were not part of the problem. Thank you. I'm not easily offended by anything, but except for diabetes jokes. Sure. Right. So, Understandable. Yeah. <laughs> in defense of the chat room in in defense of you animals, I was uh, talking to Thomas Frank about coming back and he mentioned a day. And I said, well, if you come back on that day, there'll be no chat room. And he went, oh, well, what, when, I, I want to do the show where there's the chat room. So. As much as I pretend to loathe you, quote unquote, people, you, you, there's a lot of brilliant stuff that comes to us in the chat room. How are things before we go to Landrew? How are things in Portland in terms of the protests? It got pretty ugly over the weekend. Antifa versus the uh, the alt-right. Yeah, to tell you the truth, David, I'm not really clued in. I haven't um, been trying to be more careful. As you know, I went down with my bike a few times to take part in the protest, but just feel like I I should lay low, make sure that I'm healthy. Um, So nothing really new to report, um, but it just seems like every day the news is, is worse. Very concerning what went on in Wisconsin the other day because... Um, people outside of Oregon might not know this, but we have a raging gun culture here, and we're fairly surrounded by extremely heavily armed people who, what happened in Wisconsin is literally their wet dream. Um, and very similar to what happened in Portland, in that the police didn't necessarily take sides with the right wing, with the alt right, but they kind of laid back. And watched in Portland. And well, well, like a lot of police departments, there there is a history here of known elements within the Portland Police Department that are white supremacists. And they coordinate a couple of years ago. They were not coordinating with the right wing on some protests, but they were texting back and forth a little too chummy with the alt right in Portland. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say that's. More than fair. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not yeah. equal. All right. Scary Th- times. Yeah. Thank you, Tom. All right. We're going to wrap it up. If anybody else has any questions, we will. Did, uh, Andrew have one, you said? Well, Landrew had one, but then he lowered his hand. So there he is. Hello, Landrew. Hi. 
Hey, good evening. Good evening. Thank you all for being here. Uh, amazing program. Uh, di- like like Martha said, diabetes. Oof. Um, yeah. Horrible, horrible, horrible thing to deal with every day, twice a day. Uh, my son's dog has diabetes, and we we inject them every day, twice a day, and that's hard. But a friend of mine, uh, his daughter was nearly born with type one. She was a little over a year when she was diagnosed with type one. And she's 26. She's 26 years old. They, they made it through that uh, very, very difficult disease. But uh, my, my real question is artificial pancreas. Do we think that's ever possible? Seems like a tough one. So uh, I can actually address this somewhat and then refer it over to uh, Dr. Mom for further comment. Um, In regards to artificial pancreas, I know that they are looking at generating uh, pancreas in the lab and cell culture, uh, along with a bunch of other organ types where they essentially just uh, culture uh, pluripotent stem cells in a culture flask, and then they bioengineer them in a way that it actually ends up with some sort of organized structure to make organs. So it would be nice to think that eventually we will have uh, the ability to make pancreas in the lab using stem cells and having those so that you're not going to have an extreme overreaction from your immune system against them where you're going to have to, uh, your body's either going to reject it outright or you're going to be on crazy, crazy immunosuppressants for the rest of your life. So that's something that's a little bit longer term. They're working on that with a bunch of different organs. But in the shorter term, uh, Dr. Mom, uh, would you like to talk about why, uh, what the probability of using transplants of pancreas or just beta cells directly, which are the insulin producing cells. Is that something that's feasible at transplanting a pancreas or, or beta cells into a person? So I definitely am not a surgical treatment expert for diabetes. I'm a pharmacist, but my understanding is you have two, and they, they have been doing research on both autographs and allografts of the beta cells. Which means what? Okay, so autographs, the autographs are using your own beta cells to transplant back into yourself. And my understanding of the problem there is that there's some destruction of glucagon, which is the counter-regulatory hormone, to insulin so that it ends up, if you destroy the glucagon, to break, you know, to, to do the opposite of insulin, you're going to have a problem with hypoglycemia. And the other using an allograft is using cadaver beta cells of the pancreas or pancreatic parts that would have the beta cells in it. They need a lot of them. They, it's not one cadaver's beta cells that you have to transplant in. So that's a barrier in itself. And the second part of that is even when they were able to do that and get enough different cadavers, beta cells for that pancreatic transplant part, that it didn't last very long. It was maybe a couple of years. And then 
you still became where your body didn't produce insulin. So it, it didn't appear to me, but I am definitely not a surgical expert, nor know the research that's been done or, or currently going on in terms of transplantation of beta cells. And I know that they are working on it, and I would hope that they would be able to perfect it beyond the limited amount that I've seen. Great. Okay. Thank you. We'll be right back. Andrew Miller is back. He reports for the industrial workers, and he was the one who broke the story about no evil foods, union busting down there in North Carolina. Welcome back, Andrew Miller. I'm glad to be here. Let's talk about the audio that you're running on your website. What is your web address? It's andrew-miller.com. Okay. And let me bring Alan Minsky in on this because he knows something about the rights of reporters as the PD over KPFK Pacifica. So Andrew Miller broke the story for the Industrial Workers uh, magazine about no evil food. They have taken all the vocabulary, the iconic iconic graphy, I mispronounce that word all the time, of the left. They have nose rings and tattoos. Why are you laughing, Alan? Iconography. Iconography. And they're presenting themselves as a left-wing vegan meat company, but they're busting unions on their factory floor. The NLRB is looking into the firing of, a, what, four union organizers, Andrew? Well, there's only two of the organizers actually filed an NLRB case. However, um, there were significantly more that were fired. Um, It's just not everyone was up for uh, up for the battle that a case like that can be. So, well, we should get KPFK and Pacifica on this, especially since one of the workers was forced to attend a meeting held by one of the CEOs of No Evil Food. And they were crammed into this room and they were told why they shouldn't sign a union contract. And it's the same lie that has been told for the past century. One of the workers audio taped and videotaped the meeting. Andrew, what happened to the videotape and what happened to the audio? So when... I first uh, found out about this story back in February and started talking with um, with some of the workers. The worker who had recorded the video on their cell phone uh, during these uh, captive audience meetings, they sent me a, a compilation of about half hour 40 minutes of what i believe was about eight hours total of a video that they ended up taking over the course of several of these captive audience meetings and uh that was really the basis for uh, a lot of the reporting because you had, you know, directly from uh, both of the co-founders mouths, all of these lies that they were 
forcing the workers to sit through and, and listen to. And uh, uh, for anyone who has had the unpleasant experience of being stuck in a captive audience meeting, they do have a very strong effect on workers, which is why it's been part of the standard anti-union playbook for so long. Um, Because essentially you have no choice but to be in that room. And while you're in there, ownership and can tell you whatever they want to tell you about the unions. The union leadership and organizers don't get the same sort of chance. So one of the things that No Evil Foods has said from the very beginning of us covering this story is, well, it was a free and fair election. Now, as soon as you listen to any of this audio recording, you realize there is nothing free or fair about being stuck in a room and told uh, unending and, and frankly, easily debunked lies uh, about unions and specifically about the uh, uh, United Commercial Food Workers Union that No Evil Foods Workers was uh, attempting to organize under. And uh, this audio, so this audio has been sort of the bane of No Evil Foods um, uh, uh, existence in regard to arguing that they didn't do anything wrong uh, in terms of the union drive and trying to claim that they're not actually uh, uh, union busting. And so originally... The audio was hosted uh, by the industrial worker on a SoundCloud account. Um, And then small chunks of it were also being posted uh, to YouTube, um, Vice magazine. They picked it up um, after we had run our article and they also hosted some of the audio and one of the issues that I know you discussed earlier (laughs) with Maximilian was that there is um, a tendency of social media companies under the um, uh, digital uh, I I forget the the name of the act but uh, where if someone claims copyright, uh, those social media companies will almost automatically just take something down because they're so afraid uh, of having a problem. Well, now let me just interrupt you for one second. Yeah. I just realized something. I get dinged by YouTube because sometimes we'll play music. In fact, we had... A uh, we did a parody of uh, Mr. Tambourine Man, Bob Dylan, about Jeff Bezos, and I got dinged by Sony because they're claiming it's Bob Dylan. But they say if you want to monetize this, then you can share the advertising revenue with Sony and Bob Dylan. And so, so- I don't think. I think we could run the audio on YouTube and offer 
if we run advertising on you, we could share the revenue, the advertising revenue <laughs> with no evil foods. <laughs> I, I'm I, I'm positive that they would be game for that. <laughs> but 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 using this isn't that well the so law that they're using to to it's the, that's sort of a uh, it is part of that, but what. YouTube has been able to do through uh, programming is that they're in the background. Uh, well, let me ask you a question, Andrew, yeah. on your website. Yeah. You're running the audio of this meeting. Correct. What's the name of the CEO? Mike Wolianski. Mike Wolianski. Yeah. And... Uh, we're being told that it's a violation of his privacy to run a picture of him on YouTube. The picture that he, uh, the picture that he uses to sell no evil foods. If I use that picture, it's a violation of his privacy. Why? Can't I download the audio off your site? Why do I have to stream it, but you don't offer a download of it? Um, I actually uh, uh, provided Dan with uh, a link that it can be downloaded directly from my website using. I. It's more of just a matter that I need to figure out how to make that readily available um, so it's easier for people to just download. However, um, I, I am uh, amongst everyone else. Uh, I received a takedown notice two days ago from the company that I host my website on, HostGator. And uh, I have been fighting it. And I unfortunately, in a lot of the cases, Prior to this, um, and I know Max touched on this as well, that uh, for a lot of the social media sites as opposed to the websites, you don't really get a very good notification. So a lot of times things get taken down before you even have a hey, chance Alan, to react. Alan, what are your your thoughts on this? It's certainly costing the, the lawyers time, which means it's costing no evil foods money right oh yeah but i mean you can't have you can't have empowered workers that's just not the american way these days it's really fun to be just attacked ridiculously in your chat room so i'm having enjoying it tremendously who's so attacking you i know some guy bill greenberg who's too stupid to understand how to get good information out of ian master's show well, well hang on for one second bill is a <laughs> hang on hang on professor yeah. greenberg is it's professor bill greenberg he's a linguist Let's not. I, I can't do the kind of show where people are picking. We, we don't eat our own here. Yeah. Well, I know. I mean, I, but that's the thing. I don't understand. And people take issue with a show like Ian's, but if they can't see, there's incredible information that's delivered there. You know, I don't get it. You know. Okay. So, oh, I thought we we're allowed to bring that into the airwaves. I apologize, David. Okay. Let, let's dial back the chat room. <laughs> Everybody, nobody is here. Everybody who is here is good, I okay. declare. So everybody be nice to one Thank another. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, all right. Well, let's continue this, Andrew, uh, next week. I'm sure I'm trying to figure out how to get that audio in the hands of so many people that there aren't enough lawyers. Oh, that's beautiful. To, to, like that. Or it would cost them. It would be cheaper for them to sign a union contract than to pay all the lawyers. Right. Yes. What, what do you think, Andrew? I, I, I think that's excellent. I, I, I think that's it's perfect. Um, I, I, I want to point out that, uh, uh, and I know uh, Max had brought this up as well, and it was something that I used in my argument uh, back to HostGator, which is that you know North Carolina is a one-party consent state, and the audio was uh, you know recorded and then provided to me with that consent of the one party who recorded it. So mm -hmm. there is no legitimate claim. And the fact that, that they have explicitly stated in their complaints that, that everything they're saying is true uh, and, <laughs> and that they're not perjuring themselves. Um, well, it's not true <laughs> and they are perjuring themselves. Uh, the other thing that they were trying to have removed from my website was, um, the, one of the, uh, pieces of parody art that, uh, uh, it, that invisible ninja had created. Oh. And, uh, so similarly, I'm arguing that parody falls under the, right. uh, um, uh, uh, fair use claims and so right. moevilfoods.com is the name of the website that was built to take on no evil foods before everybody goes and we do our diabetes town hall Alan if we did on KPFK a stop and start with that audio could hmm. they have well they can't do prior restraint can they sue a news organization for playing this audio and oh no 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 i mean it's a, if you file if you put it included in the news report on uh you know a, a labor issue i you the person you'd want to get it to is ernesto arce in the news department i can help facilitate that It'd be great and i love iww man we we need a general strike in the society yeah no <laughs> iww thing it's definitely time for that right now so over at pacifica over at kpfk the andrew would make a great guest and do it with Ernesto in the newsroom to do a stop and start to play the audio. Of good organizer, David Feldman. Oh, you, yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah, you, you, you wait to see what we're doing over it. Uh, I was going to make a bad joke. I'm not going to do it. Thank you, Andrew. We'll be right back. Thank you. Let's go to the newsroom where Dan is standing by. Dan. I understand you have our community billboard for today. Yes, sir. Um, I wanted to bring up Tom and Barb Weber's singer-songwriter concert. They had their larger of the, the two concert types that they do this past Saturday, and it was awesome. On Saturday nights, they do an hour-and-a-half-long show uh, starting at 7, uh, at 7 Central Time. And every Tuesday night, they do one at the same time as a half-hour show. So... It's good to go check them out. Ever since I learned about it, I've gone to every single one, and they're great. they're always they're always really great. Fantastic. Um, 
the Reverend Barry Lynn. Within the last month, month and a half, he has started uh, his website, uh, barrywlynn.com, and he's asking all the David Feldman show listeners to sign up for his mailing list, and he promised not to spam everybody too bad. Right. So that's good. Um, ben Burgess has a new podcast. I think he's got three of them in the books now, so he's going to be doing his fourth one. And if you want to attend the live uh, Zoom-style recording, he does that on Saturday. Um, from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. And, and if you want to attend, I guess you go on Twitter to look for his Zoom link, correct? Right. His uh, Twitter and Facebook always has it, so it's really easy to find right. if you if you right. go over there. And then one last thing, uh, Ricky Hutchinson has started an interesting thing on Twitter where he's reading uh, some of the uh, Marx books. The Capital Marx. I think yeah. the idea is he's doing four pages a day. I think that's right. the idea. And once a week, uh, Adnan Hussein is helping uh, do like a summary. So yeah. that's pretty I interesting. Think, uh, Dennis Haster, when he was Speaker of the House, did four pages a day. All right. I'm not, I'm not familiar. Sorry. Okay. I apologize. All right. Anything else? Got. No, sir. That's all I got today. All right. Thank you, Dan, and the newsroom. These buckets are filled with grapes. What kind of grapes? These are filled with Chamberson grapes. And the winner this Saturday, who's stopped music, eating international foods, having wine tours and tasting, vineyard tours, seminars, arts and crafts. It's a lot of fun, a whole day. Stop. Oh, 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 stop, oh, stop, oh, 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 She's actually hurt. No, there. I think she is. Yeah, she's Ouch. hurt. She took a hard fall off there. Okay. What? Gosh, I hope she's okay. Okay. Mm. We're going to make sure she we'll is. Try and check on it. her and get back right. to you as soon as we can. We'll be back mm. right after this. Thank you very much, David. Oh, Martha. Martha Stewart's here. We don't have time for you tonight. The show went a little long. Well, best run along now. Okay. Ta ta for now. Thank you. Sorry. That's a good thing. Well, it would have been nice to have you. I want to thank our guests, uh, Dr. Hershenfeld and his son, Ethan, Dr. Hakamaki and her son, Henry. I'd like to thank Congressman Alan Grayson. I'd like to thank Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America, Dr. Liam O'Mara. He is running for California's 42nd Congressional District. Make sure you send him money and vote for him. American hero, Burt Ross, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, Martha Previtt, Emmy and Peabody Award-winning Jim Earl. Follow Martha Previtt at Martha Previtt, P-R-E-V-I-T-E on Twitter and Diabetic Fury on Twitter. Jess Skarain, she's running for Senate in Delaware. I'd like to thank Andrew Miller from The Industrial Worker and Maximilian Alvarez, host of Working People, a podcast about the working class. It's done in partnership with In These Times magazine. I'll see you all tonight, I hope, at office hours. If you'd like to attend, just go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit attend a live taping, 
sign up. I'll send you a link and you can attend via Zoom or by phone. And tomorrow night at 930 COVID Town Squares, please, $15 a ticket. We're only allowing 100 people into the room to get up close and personal with Henry Huckamaki and the Irritable Immunologist. If you would like to purchase a ticket, it's only $15. All the proceeds go towards Henry Huckamaki's research and education. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit pay-per-view. You'll see it. Just hit pay-per-view. It'll take you right to the Eventbrite page, and you'll be able to sign up and attend tomorrow night's big COVID Town Squares. Thank you, everybody. chicken they sell comrade cluck they claim to do no harm that only when i make a buck i got to know evil blues and i just can't shake it the union came calling and the owners tried to break it they say they're liberal they claim to be progressive but let's not quibble they nothing but oppressive Workers tried to unite, the owners wouldn't hear it. They stopped it cold, tried to break that spirit. I got to know evil blues, and I'm feeling kind of dizzy. But the boys are back in town, according to Thin Lizzy. petition on the Mo Evil side. Let's see if we can help and make things right. They got fire in the belly. There's light in the attic. They'll have to mobilize cause it ain't automatic. I got the No Evil Blues and it's gonna be tough. We can help them unionize cause they got the right stuff.